Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. It is by the calendar September 9th, so this is our 9 9 portal. And I view this portal as a portal of release and purification and completion. So we're going to do our Virgo cleansing at this time here today and healing. And uh, we invite all of you to participate in receiving this along with everyone across the planet. So let's go into our heart center and going into the heart center. We call forth the full and complete merchants with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, and all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence, goddess presence. Feel the fullness this brings to your energy field. And see yourself in your mighty pillar of light, fully anchored directly to source, fully anchored to the heart of Mother Gaia. As she sends her love to us, Gaia asks us to open our hearts further and expand our pillar as we invite in everyone across the world to join us. Please repeat after me. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And allow the love within your heart to overflow. As we connect heart to heart, high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart with every man, woman, and child. Connecting all to the cosmic heart of all that is. And so we lovingly perform this divine service here today. And we give thanks for this opportunity to serve, to be the bridge between heaven and earth, to be the anchor of the new golden age, and to be the open door that no one can shut. We invite in for everyone all soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, all of our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the divic kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, 
the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome all of the ascended master realms, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries and divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all ascended master healers and healing teams. We welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work so very closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, and from Lyra. We welcome the assistance of all cosmic galactic universal healers and the entire company of heaven as we ask our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and to magnify, magnify, magnify it all in divine order for each being. In divine order, we ask that this be 999 billion times, 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. We welcome the assistance of all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level. Within every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of auric field, multidimensionally, And to easily and effortlessly digest every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, blessing and dispensation. With the greatest of ease and grace, we ask to assimilate it, digest, integrate, um, anchor, embody all of these frequencies, all that we receive the maximum that we can receive ever expanding to perfection individually and collectively. And to do this with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We call forth all those in our circle of support from the very first name that created it. To every man, woman, and child, every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, every friend, every neighbor, everyone in our communities, everyone across the world, as we ask for wholeness and harmony to be restored, mind, body, spirit, emotional, and we ask that the entire planet receive this as well. We call forth everything in our circle, all of the groups and organizations, all of the businesses and corporations, all of the institutions, each and every nation, 
each military, each government, the legislative aspect of each government, as we call in Lady Liberty and Lady Justice to overlight every aspect of government, every aspect of politics, every one working for any level of government in any nation. First, the executive branch, every president, every prime minister, every head of state, every decision maker, each and every cabinet post and cabinet member, as we ask for the violet ray and the sapphire blue ray to blaze through every aspect of government right here and right now and to assure that every decision that is made, that all those in leadership are demonstrating divine governance, heaven on earth, divine justice, divine harmony, divine law, the divine blueprint for this nation and this planet. We ask for the same for the legislative aspect of each government, for our U.S. Senate, for our House of Representatives, for every parliament, every legislative body on national, state, and local levels, every state legislature, every parliament in each and every province, each and every city, each and every town, all the way down to the school boards, the library boards, city councils, and so on. We ask that every law that is being considered or enacted be blazed through the vial of flame, blazed through the sapphire blue flame of divine government and divine love, And we ask the goddess of justice and the goddess of liberty to ensure that only the highest legislation takes place, that every law enacted reflect divine government, divine governance, divine justice, divine law. And that it ever be ever expanding into the divine blueprint for divine government for this nation and each and every nation. We call forth the judicial aspect of each government, calling forth Lady Liberty and Lady Justice once again to blaze the violet flame, to blaze the blue ray of divine uh, divine order and divine government, into every court, the highest court of the land in each and every nation, the Supreme Court, um, every federal, state, and local court system, each and every judge, each and every jury, each and every grand jury, each and every prosecutor, each and every uh, defendant, each and every person that is in any way connected to the legal system of the judiciary and each uh, government of each nation, 
as we blaze the vial of flame of divine justice and the sapphire of the flame of cosmic love and divine order, divine government, through each and every decision, each and every person involved in that branch of government, that only the highest and best decisions are made that once again reflect divine governance, reflect divine law, reflect divine justice, that ensure the rights of every man, woman, and child are restored in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth each and every nation. I believe it's Hurricane Lee. I'm not sure where its location is right now, but we've had it in since the beginning of its uh, initial start. Um, probably a week ago. And so we put in the circle every storm, every tropical storm, every hurricane, every tornado, every uh, typhoon, each and every fire, each and every, all the drought, all the floods, mudslides, earthquakes, whatever it might be, all of the uh, weather changes <coughs> and dramatic weather, all in our circle of support as we call forth Gaia and send her the highest healing here today to ensure that she comes to perfect harmony and balance and all upon her may live in peace and harmony and balance upon the planet and that everyone recognizes who they are, including as a caretaker. As a, as a caregiver of this planet. And as each person recognize their divinity as we place in the circle of support everything that is less than perfection, everything that is less than heaven on earth, every condition of life, every disease, every um, individual in experiencing lack on any level, whether it's lack of love or lack of abundance or, or um, lack of clean water or food or whatever it might be. We have everyone in the circle across the planet, and we are here to hold the image of heaven on earth, to see everyone fed and cared for, to see everybody, everyone loved and nurtured, and to and to assist all humanity to remember who they are and what they came here to do and their part in the divine plan at this time in bringing heaven to earth. We call forth all of the energy around the 9-9 portal, around this coming week's new moon, around the upcoming um, eclipses, and all of the energy around sports and, and going back to school and everything that people are talking about. We have that in the circle of support, bringing that energy and that focus and that concentration into our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of the planet to truly manifest heaven right here and right now. 
And we ask Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field multidimensionally. Through every ley line and song line, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. Through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up the spiral of evolution, as Mother Gaia takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. And so we ask at this time for the highest cleansing, clearing, purification, and sanctification that we can receive through the 50-point cosmic clearing. So relax and receive as we once again call forth the entire planetary and cosmic hierarchy for assistance. We call forth individually and collectively for a planetary and cosmic axiotonal alignment. We call forth Lord Michael to establish a golden dome of protection for each one of us and everyone that we've invited in. We call forth to Vuamas and the Archangels to bring forth their golden hands as a net to cleanse all negative energies in our, ener- neg- in our energy field individually and collectively. We call forth from Melchizedek, the Mahatma, and Metatron, the anchoring of the platinum net, to cleanse the energy fields of each person even more deeply. We call upon the Lord of Arcturus and the Arcturians to anchor the prana wind clearing device, both individually and in our group body. Now, there's two locations for this prana wind clearing device. We call them both in. We see it as a fan clearing at the solar plexus, clearing all unwanted energies out of the etheric body, and also at the heart level as well. As we ask for the highest cleansing from the Arcturians that we can receive at this time, and we're just going to let them complete that process as we proceed. For we call forth Joel Kuhl, the seven Kohans, Lord Maitreya, Allah Gobi, Lord Buddha, and the Cosmic Masters to anchor the core fear removal program. This is like a lattice work of light being anchored into our individual four-body system. We're asking this for every man, woman, and child and asking this for the collective as well, all in divine order for each being. We call for now the removal of all fear programming and blocks from every person that they may achieve their ascension at the highest possible level. Now, sometimes we can see this fear programming released It may appear as black roots intertwined in our energy field, being pulled out like a vacuum cleaner through our crown chakras by the masters at this time. Planetary and cosmic hierarchy, please remove all separative thinking from the four-body system. Please also remove all judgmental programming from the four-body system. Please remove all lack of forgiveness from the four-body system. Planetary and cosmic hierarchy, please remove all impatience and negative anger. Please remove all negative selfishness, greed, self-centeredness, and narcissism. 
please remove any negative thought forms, feelings, emotions, and imbalance archetypes from the four-body system. Please remove all superiority and inferiority thinking created by the negative ego. Please remove all aspects of guilt and shame consciousness created by the negative ego. Please remove all negative ego and fear-based programming in a generalized sense. Please remove, cleanse and remove all harmful extraterrestrial implants and negative elementals as we call forth the highest clearing and cleansing and removal of all unwanted astral entities. We call to Melchizedek, the Mahama, and Metatron for the cosmic viral vacuum to remove any clinical or subclinical viruses currently existing in any of our energy fields. We also call forth the removal of all negative bacteria with the cosmic bacterial vacuum program and all negative fungal energies with the cosmic fungal vacuum program. We call to the archangels and the Elohim to remove all diseased energy from the physical, etheric, astral, and mental vehicles. We call forth each person's personal interplane healing angels to now heal and repair any irritations, spots, and or leaks in the aura. We call forth to Melchizedek, the Mahatma, Metatron, Archangel Michael, and the Archangels for the removal of all improper soul fragments. We also ask for the retrieval of all soul fragments from the universe that belong to us in divine order. We call forth any energy that we may have left behind through any time, space, and mention to be cleansed, purified, sanctified, and returned to us. We call forth each person's etheric healing team as we now request that each person's etheric body be repaired and brought back to its perfect divine blueprint. We call forth the anchoring of each person's perfect divine monadic blueprint body and or my group of body to be used from this moment forward to accelerate healing and spiritual growth on all levels during the rest of this lifetime. We call for the complete cleansing and clearing of our genetic line and ancestral lineage. We call forth the Lord of the Lord of Arctura to now bring forth the golden cylinder to remove and vacuum up any remaining negative energy in our collective energy field. We call forth the clearing and cleansing and purification of all past lives and future lives. And we call forth now the integration and cleansing of our 144 soul extensions from our monad and mighty alien presence. We call forth a clearing and cleansing of all karma, asking for the greatest possible cleansing of our karma now. We now call forth from Melchizedek, Mahatma, and Metatron to anchor a matchstick worth of cosmic fire to very gently burn away all astral, mental, and etheric dross and gray clouds from our field. We now request a complete clearing and cleansing of our entire monad and muddy iron presence itself and all of our multidimensional beings. We now call forth the greatest cleansing process ever known from Melchizedek, Mahatma, Metatron, Lord Michael, the Archangels, the Elohim Councils, and from Mother, Father, God. 
we call forth the ultimate cosmic clearing and cleansing all the way back to our original covenant with God, goddess, source, all that is, at our individual, spiritual, original creation. And we give thanks for this amazing grace and blessing. We now call forth from all the cosmic and planetary masters gathered here a downpouring and light shower of core love and core light. And that the Christ, Buddha, Melchizedek attributes fill us, replacing all that has been removed and cleansed by the grace of God, Goddess, and the cosmic and planetary hierarchy of light. We call on Archangel Sandalphon, Pan, and Mother Earth to help us become properly integrated and grounded back into our physical bodies. We call forth our personal interplane healing angels to perfectly balance our chakras and four body systems. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. We're working exclusively here, or at least for this portion, with the violet flame. Calling in all the beings of the violet ray, including St. Germain, Poignan, and all of those that are represented through the violet flame. In the name of my beloved, I am presence, the name of God, Goddess. I now call forth the action of the violet flame of transmutation, of compassion and forgiveness in my work field. For the cleansing and purifying of every action, thought, and feeling in my heart, my mind, my solar plexus, and all of my chakras. I ask for the action of the violet fire to permeate every cell, atom, and electron of my four body systems at this time and at all times, each day of my life, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I ask for the healing of any distortions in my energy field from the past and present misunderstanding. I ask the energies of the violet fire to start healing any imbalance in my physical, emotional, and mental bodies. With much gratitude, I now ask for the action of the violet fire to manifest in my energy fields in full power. So be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am that I am. In the name of the great I am, I call to beloved St. Germain to saturate the world with waves upon waves of violet fire, to infuse every particle of life, every man, woman, and child on this planet in an orc field of violet flame, to protect and to awaken them. I ask that this action be sustained until full perfection is restored. In the name of the I am that I am, from the Lord, God, goddess of my being, I now ask that every cell, every atom, and every electron of my four body systems, all my subtle bodies, every particle of life of who I am in all dimensions and states of consciousness, 
be totally filled with the wonders and the miracle energies of the violet flame of freedom's love. I now ask to be filled again and again, 24 hours a day, each day of my life. So be it, and so it is, beloved I am. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. We now call forth the resurrection flame, the mother of pearl. See it in through and around you and in through and around the planet. Filling you with the most amazing frequencies. As we call forth the highest of healing for each one of us. And for every man, woman, and child. And every cell and molecule of life. In the name of the presence of God, Goddess, which I am, I call forth to beloved Sananda, Mother Mary, Archangel Raphael, angels of the healing ray, and all ascended beings serving the ray of healing. I ask that you direct your resurrecting flame of healing hourly through my mind and my feelings, through every organ, gland, and area of my body, anything manifesting imbalances. I ask for the power of your healing light and the fires of resurrection, the resurrection flame, to keep my body in perfect health at all times, to be a fit instrument of God, goddess on earth, in the service of my monad and the ascended masters. I ask this for myself and for every man, woman, and child on this planet. Let the flame of resurrection restore my original blueprint of divine perfection. So be it, and so it is. Beloved I am, beloved I am, beloved I am. And we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. We call forth the emerald green flame of balance, harmony, healing, divine truth. For the divine truth is our perfection. And so we call forth everyone to recognize that and begin to receive that fully manifested in their physical form, in their physical lives. In the name of my beloved presence, I am. I give praises, thanksgiving, and glory to the source of my being for my perfect health always. I am radiating health, increasing health, Mother, Father, God consumes my fears and imbalances into love and vibrant perfection. This day, I am a focus of light energy, flowing through me like a mighty river, a loving fountain of eternal youth and beauty. I am a manifestation of perfect health. All negativity in me is now consumed by the pure light energy which I am. I am, I am, I am manifesting optimum health. I live, I live in the consciousness of immortality, youth, and divine beauty. I am perfect health in its full perfection. I am pure light and healing energy, flooding every cell, atom, and electron of my body, blessing me, strengthening me, and making me a shining example of our Mother, Father, God's love. And so it is. 
And so we ask to seal this work individually and collectively for ourselves, every man and child. As I thank you for joining me in these decrees and in these invocations to bring heaven to earth individually and collectively for all. So again, thank you for your divine service. We invite you to further divine service. Almost every Sunday and Monday. We have the exception here this weekend. Okay. So, Monday, which is the 11th, is off. I am having hip replacement surgery that day. So, I will not be prepared to do a call. Um and so Sunday night, because I do have to prepare for Monday, we've decided to do just a half hour. So I'm encouraging you to come on at the very start of the call just to say hi, just to touch base. We'll have a little, um, perhaps a little meditation, perhaps a little update, and then we're only going to be on for a half hour, so by 9.15 Eastern Time, because we're talking about Eastern Time here right now, um, 9.15 Eastern Time, we're going to be complete. We're going to be off the phone. So if you know somebody that joins the calls and is not on my email list, then please let them know. Uh, and there is no call at all on Monday. And we'll be back next weekend. We'll be back here Saturday and Sunday and Monday regular calls. So let me give you, again, 8.45 p.m. is our start time, Eastern time. It's 5.45 p.m. Pacific time. We're only going to be on for a half hour tomorrow. And the phone number is area code 480-660-2224. 480-660-2224. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. So I invite you to tune in tomorrow for our half-hour program and then join us next Sunday. That would be the 17th and the 18th. And uh, we'd love to have you with us as a regular part of our um, callers, our, our participants, and those who are busy doing the work, the service work of anchoring heaven on earth. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed our activations here today and feel very cleansed and purified. Again, this is a good time for that on every level of beingness. So we've asked for this multidimensionally. And uh, if you need to, do so in the physical realm as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm going to go ahead and... um, Thank Torn Rama for their divine service and thank Rainbow for her divine service as I pass the talking stick to her. Um, filled with these energies of release and purification and completion and cleansing and sanctification as we just keep raising this planet higher and higher and higher in frequency with everyone possible participating, the theories, 
the angelic energies, the gemstones, the flowers, every aspect of nature participating, and with lots and lots and lots of love. And violet flame and resurrection energy, I pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll take that talking stick. It's really loaded. <laughs> so thank you for your divine service as well. And, uh, yeah, we wish you a lot of luck and on, <clears throat> on your transmutation. <laughs> and, uh, we're grateful for your service. So here, I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener supported radio program. It's each of us that make it happen. Each week we have expenses with DBS Radio for their services, and um, we're working on that now <laughs> in, in a different way. Uh, we got some great gifts yesterday for, towards February. We're putting everything towards catching up from the February vacancy that we had going um, before we before we address the rest of where we're at now, the end of August and these two weeks in September. So for this, these two weeks in September and the last week of August, we need $987.35. February is halfway paid for, and monies will be going there. And some of that money, $150 of that money, we're asking, no, $100 of that money of the 987 is also for February. So we're working on February and making that happen and then catching up with current debt. As that, as that should occur. So just uh, go into your heart space, see what is yours to give. Um, we need $355 for this week, and that concludes part, partly for February. Uh, so, yeah, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com, and you'll find our programs listed on Radio Station 1 for Fridays and Thursdays and Fridays. And then on Radio Station 2 for this program. This program starts at the 3.30 hour and be listed there on the homepage under the schedule on Saturday at the 3.30 hour. These are central times. And then the other two programs will be listed under the schedule for BBS Radio Station 1. Thursdays at the 8 o'clock hour. <clears throat> a night at the round table with the panel and on Fridays at the 8 o'clock hour and a hard news on Friday night with Tara and Rama. So those are the three programs and that's how you find them. As you click on those icons where they are listed on the schedule, that'll take you directly to our account with CBS Radio where you can make that donation using your bank card in any amount. So much gratitude for taking care of business this way. Thank you for your generosity at this time. We're being extra generous so we can be caught up in a good way. And we're grateful to <clears throat> BBS Radio for being, uh, extending us this opportunity to be that far in debt. So let's, let's show our appreciation for BBS Radio and for Tar and Rama and this way of gathering each week as we make our donations this week to BBS Radio. Thank you for your, taking that action. Thank you for all your contributions. We are so grateful to all of you and for all the ways you show up in your life. So 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. <clears throat> we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs and they were able to pay their bills up to 
$72 still yet to is to gather for the bill on um, Friday that is due, which is the 15th. So let's say by the 14th, we want to make sure they have that $72 to, to pay that $450.85 that's due for their Internet service on the 15th and no later. So that has to happen in a good way. And we're grateful for that contribution to come in for Tara and Rama. And also, Rama is out of gas and needs gas tonight um, to be able to go anywhere tomorrow. So as we can take care of that business in a good way, somebody make sure he gets enough money to buy gas tomorrow. So they're also needing, so they generally are asking for $200 in living expenses. And lots of gratitude for all the donations that came in yesterday and made it possible that they only need the $72 for their bills this week, and that's due by Friday. Um, so that's the 15th. Let's pay it by the 14th to make it happen in a good way. Yeah, and so there you go. That's the update for Tyron and Rama, and here's how we make a donation to Tyron and Rama's PayPal account. You'll find that located at rainbowroundtable.net that's the web address and as you click on the menu grid on that home page the donate link is near the bottom of that list the second to the last on that list click on that donate link now it'll take you directly to Rama's or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account where you can make that a donation in any amount using your bank card and then as you want to Access the friends option, you do that by entering the email address at that site. And that email address, Coran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com is the email address you want to enter there. And that makes, uh, that's the friends option. So that makes it, uh, the, your money go a little bit further. Either way is perfect. And we are grateful for your contributions. Um, <clears throat> so what else? Yeah, as you're sending something, please let Rama know what you sent and when you sent it. That email address for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at Comcast.net. And then as you need it, and you might need it if you're going to get something in tonight by wire or by PayPal, I guess, works too. Um, anyway. That email, that mailing address is Rom D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip. I'm going to say it again. Post Office Box 280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. Five six seven is the zip code. So there you have it. All the information. And again, thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. And I'm standing this talking stick, and Cheryl said it best, and it has everything on it, with all the rays and the gems and the flowers and the fairies and the, um, yeah, and and all all the good blessings from the angels. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Welcome. Greetings, everybody. Did you get enough rest last night? Greetings. What's that? 
I got eight hours of sleep. Well, you got eight hours last night? I did. I didn't get up until 11.30. I went to bed at 3.30. <laughs> oh, my God. If I sleep past 6 o'clock, these cats are on me like a wet blanket. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet they are. Yeah, you got cats. I didn't have any cats, you know what I mean? I just slept away the entire morning. So, greetings. I'm passing talking stick back to you. Okay, thank you, Rainbird. Greetings, everyone. And let's keep uh, our sister Cheryl in the circle of support as she goes into her hip replacement surgery. Outpatient surgery. <laughs> they, they classify it as that. Uh, all I'm saying is that good vibrations and perfect um, outcome for the highest good. And uh, thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. And Rama has given me a little bit of what he learned this morning. So I'll read that and then he'll fill, fill in the rest. So here's Rama speaking. He said, this morning, I went and sat in the plasma field at 10.15 a.m. The plasma field said to me, Greetings, Lord Rama. I responded and said, Greetings, Commander. And then he has a little note here, and he says, The plasma field and the computers here on Earth, they are all hooked up to the galactic starships. And it is the, it is the connection with the amino acid computers who have downloaded nanites into all the computers on Earth. These are good nanites, not the bad guy. <laughs> good, Rama. Thank you. That's a good explanation. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you say, know, half of the world will think you have been smoking and drinking something really wild by saying anything, of course, that you just got to say. Yeah. I mean, today, I, I mean, after I sat in the plasma field, I went and sat with the deer, five deer and six crows, and the caretaker at the I Am Sanctuary. This man is a uh, 76-year-old young <laughs> caretaker of the grounds, and Let's say he can run circles around me, and I've only been around the sun 70 times. So I have to catch up. Chop <laughs> 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 uh, wood, carry water before and after. I mean, essentially what the plasma field is saying to me is as we move into this energy of this Virgo new moon, then there's a solar eclipse coming. And how I heard it this morning on Moonwise, they said the solar eclipse could eclipse Mr. Trump and his cronies. And I don't know how to interpret that or take it. The lady on the radio said it will crucify him. And blaze the violet fire, I'm not wishing ill on anyone. 
Yet she used those words. And I know words have power. This is what the Dalai Lama's cat is teaching us. Aurora Ray. Words have power. And they play with words. And this drama going on. Remember the movie Zeitgeist. Zeitgeist Addendum. Chimatica. Uh, esoteric agenda. Words have magic. They have power. This is how we move through this realm. And sound vibration. It opens up portals. And you better know what you're doing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I just keep reflecting back. Yeah, when I opened that portal and I looked at Glastonbury Tor and the sun was shining, beautiful day, it could have been the 15th century, and there's no cell phones. <laughs> and, uh, oh my God. Uh, Are you talking about when you went to the... Uh, when I went to the Garden of the Gods. Right, that's a while ago. Yeah, and this is why we need to be utterly careful working with the galactic energies, because they're here in the physical, and... It's a big deal, and things happen. There are so many hundreds, and I bring it to thousands of whistleblowers that have seen stuff that are military, are civilians, people who are moms and dads, and they go to work every day, and they sometimes get put on buses, and then they go to these underground bases, and it's like, oh my God, the non-disclosures, they're as thick as a notebook. And the folks standing there with automatic rifles. And it, it's got to end now. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just say that we better get started because we've got a tight schedule for this afternoon. Send more love to the ones that are in something called denial, which is not a river in Egypt. And check first inside yourself to see if you are, you know, see if each one of us is in denial first, because that changes our attitude as we want to know and face and be working for the highest good of all concerned. So be it. All right. Mm. So and I'll say one more thing. For those who have a little extra, let's see, because it's got to do with, I mean, Rama, the message that you got was pretty much, I, I would talk to you over the phone when you were down in Santa Fe, that uh, we don't want to bring any of the dregs in with us in 2024, because that's all part of the old paradigm. We want to bring ascension in. And the old paradigm is working in the opposite direction. And so we got to watch our thoughts, too. And peace all over the world with... That it begin with me. Yes, with ascension in mind for every thought word, indeed. All right, this is the Galactic Federation unlocking ascension to all. This is about five, almost six minutes. So let's start with that.
Here we go. Galactic Federation unlocks ascension to all. Federation has been working for thousands of years to help all beings in the universe. The purpose of the Galactic Federation is to give all life forms in the universe the opportunity to evolve spiritually at an accelerated rate and accelerate their personal ascension process. They are sending us highly evolved spiritual teachers to teach us the metaphysical knowledge we need. They came here to help us with our evolution and give us the spiritual awareness needed to make the transition into the higher dimensions of existence. They will help us in our evolution. We will learn from them how to contact ET civilizations and become members of their confederation, where we will be able to transform our bodies into healthy light bodies. We no longer need to rely on the old ways of thinking, because now we can focus on more important things like love and compassion for all beings. We no longer need to be ruled by fear or frustration because now we can think differently and do different things than before. This new vision of life will lead us all into a brighter future for humanity, which will be filled with peace, love, and joy for all beings. The dark forces are doing everything they can to stop us from moving forward on this path of ascension and freedom. They are afraid that if we succeed, they will lose power over us, as well as over the planet itself. They hope that by stopping us, they can continue to enslave people under their control and keep them stuck in fear-based thinking patterns that they have used since time began. The Galactic Federation is here to help us understand how to make this transition from one level of consciousness to another. It is important that you know the truth about yourself so that you can help others in the same way that you have been helped. So the Galactic Federation has sent a message to humanity. You are not alone. This means that we are all part of an interconnected universe where everything exists together as one being or a whole system of energy. There is no division between us or any other living thing on Earth because we are all connected through love and compassion for each other, ourselves, and all other beings in creation. Whenever you are alone and feel lonely, remember this and know that you are never alone in your thoughts and feelings. Even if no one is around, the spirit of love is always with you because you belong to the universe and it loves you. As long as we do not neglect ourselves by locking away our hearts and minds, the Galactic Federation will continue to support and guide us in this lifetime on Earth. It is their intention to reintegrate all humans into the universal family. It must start with each person willing to embrace their own divinity and liberate themselves from their human mind and ego selves. So what's the point in knowing this? Many people will just brush it off and move on with their lives. But I think it's useful to know, from a practical perspective, that all these years we've been looking for ways to connect humanity and bring peace. But all along, peace has existed within us as our fundamental unity with all things. We are all one. So how exactly do we connect or reconnect with this wholeness? To begin, we can practice self-love and compassion. If we can't love and embrace ourselves unconditionally, how can we truly see the beauty within and around us? I know that I've experienced this to be a very positive thought. 
We all experience negative things in the universe, but it's worthwhile to remember that it is good in the world, and we can work towards more positive experiences if we choose to. Feel compassion for yourself and others. Love yourself and others as yourself, and know that you are connected to everything around you. In closing, I would like to encourage the members of humanity's collective planetary consciousness to remain calm during this period of detoxing and to be gentle with themselves if feelings of fear or doubt arise. You see, fear is a natural part of the process because it's an indicator that we are releasing emotion that no longer serves us. But as long as we remind ourselves that we are eternal beings and source energy is always available to us in every moment, then any fears that may arise will be short-lived and temporary. In fact, they will simply serve as a reminder that we are progressing along our path toward becoming even more conscious versions of ourselves. As you release this agitated state, your energy levels will naturally replenish so that you can enjoy more fully whatever it is you have worked so hard for. The huge changes we will experience in the not-so-distant future are for the positive and for our spiritual growth as individual beings. By sending this message, I hope to inform, inspire, and uplift you with thoughts about living in alignment with the divine for a wonderful life. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho! This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. <laughs> Aho, everyone. All right. So I guess I'll just make one more statement that we were being asked to get our house in order, all of us, so that we're in uh, a new place, uh, starting the new Happy New Year on October 1st for the fiscal year. And so we want to get our house in order. Uh, and uh, let's just say um, this message that we're going to play next will be very helpful. It's called Awakening Mind, Know Thyself. And it features Dan Schmidt, Rupert Spira, Lisa Natoli, um, Lou, L-O-O-H, Kelly, that's an interesting way to spell that, Neil Diamond, I think, Neil Diamond Walsh, I think that Neil brings, Donald Walsh. Neil Do, Donald, he is a diamond. <laughs> <laughs> you want to say a little bit about Neil Donald Walsh, Rama? Oh, just that he, you know, uh, has had conversations with God. He wrote that book, and there's more books than that. And let's say he had some kind of, I think, a near-death experience, or he died and went to the other side and met the man. <laughs> I don't know what man or being he met. I, it's been a while since I read that book. but uh, We got to meet Neil Donald Walsh when we were living, living with, with Marky. Marky, and Marky went with us too, and 
um, another friend of ours went too. We all got to meet him because there was a gathering in Santa Fe where he got up and shared stuff that he, Rama just explained a little bit about, along with others. There were some young ones up there too, 13-year-olds, that had, you might say, out-of-body experiences or dead on arrival, things like that, and they came back. And I'm not saying that we have to die. No. What I'm saying is that like Aurora just explained, as we just stay in this now moment, like the best way I can describe it is just being in this now moment. Like today, I just sat with five deer and six crows, and it's just this now moment, nothing else. And then the next moment is... They want to go somewhere else, so, you know, maybe I'll follow them to the next place. <laughs> but it's just right here, right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so also I just, I, I'm just going to take everything in a serendipity. Uh, uh, a, a document uh, came into my hands from a long time ago. The date of it was... Uh, November 16th, 2022. Yeah, 10 months ago. <laughs> and um, George Bush is on the front uh, in, in the picture there. And it says, The way the United States provoked and now sustains its Ukraine proxy war. Those are big words. The way the United States provoked the now and now sustains its Ukraine proxy war is no more ethical than it is in than its invasion of Iraq. As people cannot see this, it is because the propaganda, the media propaganda around the latest war has not cleared from the air yet. So let's keep that in mind as we listen to these wise words that Neil Donald Walsh is saying and everything we do today from here on end. Accountability. War no more. War is never the answer. Love is all there is. All right, so I'm just going to read this real quick. Uh, Awakening mind, know thyself. One more person's on this panel. His name is Donald Hoffman. Awakening is the next stage in human evolution. Awakening mind travels the globe speaking to wisdom teachers, visionaries, and scientists from broad and diverse disciplines, philosophies, and traditions who point to this time as an epic juncture and an invitation to a higher evolution for humanity. Speakers include, and then the whole name. All right, let's just start now. That's We can start. is the next natural stage of human development. So awakening is simply to, to recognize the, the nature of our essential being. It's not some weird 
mystical religious experience that's only available to the few. It's available to everyone. What we essentially are is already fully awake, fully aware. And it's totally unlimited. Your true nature is closer than the you that you think you are. Complete, whole, fulfilled, at peace. The next step in science is to say that consciousness is fundamental. Consciousness is the ultimate reality of the universe. What is awakening anyway? Somebody explain that to me. Whether you call it the true self, the imminent self, or no self, or Buddha nature, Tao, or Christ consciousness, it really doesn't matter. In this film, we're going to refer to it as awareness. Awareness is not the property of any religion. Awakening or realizing awareness is like waking from a dream the dream of your character in the play of life. Through our characters, we experience the world in all of its beauty and its ugliness. We can call this experience of life and death duality. Around and around we go, fixated on the character's thoughts and sensations. Good and bad, war and peace, light and darkness, birth and death, until we wake up and find out we are not the character. film, we are extending an invitation for you to directly experience your true nature, to find out directly, not intellectually, who are you? We will repeat this invitation in different ways. When inquiring into who you are, let everything be exactly as it is. Don't move the mind to make something happen or to find some answer on the level of mind and yet don't try to push away the mind simply intend to directly experience who you are letting the mind be a don't know mind Awakening is the answer to all of the world's problems on every level. All of the world's problems stem from a delusion, the fundamental delusion of the mind. 
That delusion is that I am this limited character. When we're living from a small separate self, there's always some kind of perpetual dissatisfaction. So this can be big dissatisfaction like trauma, or it can be just this background feeling. Something's not right. Something's wrong. I'm missing something. I'm even when I have some pleasure, even when I achieve something in world, even when I have a good relationship. If I just have a pause or a moment, there's this dissatisfied feeling like I'm isolated or cut off from something. So this feeling, which it seems like most people have. Uh, can motivate us to awaken from that small separate self whose nature is a kind of separation anxiety. This limited character has a tendency to grasp for what it wants. It's just a collection of conditioned patterns of, of craving what it wants or trying to push away what it doesn't want. It's this endless process of you could say a pleasure principle, you know, going after pleasure, avoiding pain. And if we believe we are this, this character, this conditioned pattern, then we suffer and we create suffering in the world. The world becomes a reflection of that egoic consciousness. The benefit of awakening is that you suffer less and the people around you suffer less. There's no doubt in my mind that my initial connection with my understanding of God was an awakening in, for me in my life, the biggest awakening that, that I've ever experienced. It was very much as if I had been asleep really for 50 years, walking around like a robot, just doing the things that I was taught to do from the time I was a young man, you know, I had the whole formula down. Get the girl, get the car, get the job, get the house, get the spouse. A formula that I really thought was how life was supposed to work until I got to be around 53 years old and I realized that while I had done most of those things and it become professionally a success to a degree, then I realized that none of it mattered. I woke up somewhere around the age of 53 realized none of this matters. None of this means anything. was shocked to find how this literally meant, how pointless it all was. Stop following the script that has been laid out for your character, the one inherited from parents, society, and biological conditioning. Then new dimensions open up within the game. The path opens up. But it is not a path to reach some destination. It is a pathless path, a stripping away of illusion to arrive exactly where you are in the now. My name is Rupert Spira. I speak about the essential 
non-dual understanding that underlies all the great religious and spiritual traditions. And I write and lead guided meditations and have conversations whose purpose is to lead to an experiential recognition of this understanding. Understand that the peace and the happiness for which we all long above all else can never, by definition, be found in objective experience. It can never be provided by objects, substances, activities, and relationships. I would suggest understanding that clearly and not spending the rest of one's life seeking fulfillment where it cannot be found. Anyone who is watching this movie is doing so precisely because they have either understood or at least intuited that the peace and happiness for which they long cannot be found in objective experience and have begun this investigation into their true nature. That is the most important investigation one can make, and it is the investigation upon which depends uh, our happiness. The biggest question of my life, of course, which I believe is the question most people look at sooner or later, is what is the point, actually? What is the point of life? That much to my surprise, I was told that the point of life had nothing to do was anything that I was doing. It wasn't about my job. It wasn't about my career. It wasn't about hardly anything in my physical life. Those were aspects of my life, but they were not the point of my life. The point of my life, as I have come to understand it, was for me to experience, express, demonstrate, and fulfill my true identity, who I really am. I think that the biggest question that most people face is the question that hardly anyone ever asks themselves or ever answers. The biggest question of life, my understanding is, who am I? Who am I? Am I simply a physical entity, like a bird in the sky or a fish in the sea? You know perhaps more sophisticated, but just a physical entity. I'm born, I live, I die. That's the beginning and the end of it. Or is it possible, just possible, that I'm more than that? Is it possible that I'm a spiritual entity? Simply having a physical experience. Every experience in your life has brought you to this one universal question. Who are you? Don't look for an answer with the mind. Let everything be exactly as it is. Who is aware of the mind? Feel everything that comes up. 
who is aware of those feelings. Have a complete experience of everything that comes up as a result of your inquiry. I'm Donald Hoffman, and I'm a professor emeritus of cognitive sciences at the University of California at Irvine. My work has been teaching students, although now I'm emeritus, so I don't teach. And now I do research. I do research on uh, right now on consciousness, mathematical models of consciousness, and how physics and space-time might arise from uh, a theory of consciousness that's completely mathematically precise. My own journey has been both from the spiritual side and from the science side. So my my father was a, a minister, a fundamentalist Christian minister. So I got that, you know, on, on Sundays. And I got science at, at school, and they conflicted, right? The the stories I was getting was uh, were, were contradictory. And so as a teenager, I realized I needed to figure things out for myself. And I decided the question I wanted to answer was, are we machines? Are people just machines or not? I mean, from the physicalist point of view, we would just be machines. From a spiritual point of view, we wouldn't be machines. It wasn't precise enough to say what, what we would be. And so so I decided to ask the, the question um, scientifically, are we just machines? And the best way I thought to do that would be to study artificial intelligence. And so, so I, I went to MIT and uh, was in the artificial intelligence lab studying artificial intelligence and also in what's now the brain and cognitive science department studying the human side of things because I wanted to do both. I wanted to study what can machines do and what's special, if anything, about humans and human neuroscience. To answer that, that very that very question, are the spiritual traditions right? Are we more than just machines? Or is the physicalist scientific uh, point of view right? And we, we are just machines and consciousness is just uh, an artifact of brain activity. The scientific materialist paradigm that has been predominant in the last century denies the existence of anything beyond the physical. Anything that cannot be verified by the scientific method. Science is at an impasse. It cannot move beyond the paradox that is fundamental to quantum physics which brought it face to face with the observer, with consciousness itself. Likewise, religions are for the most part functioning only on the level of belief. They've lost their original purpose, which was to lead to direct experience of the truth of who and what we are. The split between science and spirituality has rendered both impoverished. Religions and spiritual systems desperately need rigorous methods which can be shown to create conditions for awakening to happen. And science desperately needs an openness to the possibility of something beyond the physical. It is not about giving up religion or science, but about going deeper, being willing to change ourselves so that we become a better tool for investigation. We are the ones doing the experiment and the experiment itself. Religion has been the language and the container of these traditions 
of meditation, spirituality that have been written down and passed on through the generations. Now, certainly there is some language that is very literal, which divides religions and divides cultures when things are taken literally. But if you feel the spirit of religion, uh, you can follow the thread back to authentic awakening. Anyone has the potential, whether they have belief or no belief, because awakening is inherent within our human consciousness just by our human birth. So whatever you call it and whatever language is used, there's certain principles that are seem to be the same throughout these different religions and spiritualities and meditation traditions. Uh, when I was younger, this understanding was mainly available in the Eastern spiritual traditions. It was available in the Western traditions, but it was so disguised and codified in those traditions as to be almost inaccessible. So many people of my generation went uh, physically or at least intellectually to the East to find this understanding. And uh, Eastern uh, culture by uh, comparison with Western culture is uh, exotic. And so this understanding acquired a flavor of the exotic from the cultures in which it was expressed. And many people, myself included, uh, uh, thought as a result of this that there was something exotic about the non-dual understanding, that it required uh, some extraordinary way of life. You had to uh, give up family life for, or, or grow your hair or get a special name or subscribe to some kind of uh, uh, teacher or, or tradition or engage in strange practices. All these kind of uh, things which had nothing to do with the core understanding and they were to do with the culture in which the understanding was expressed at a particular time. So now the understanding has been completely divested of the traditional cultural packaging in which many of us first um, heard about it. And now just the, 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 the essential understanding is available in a way that enables us to carry on leading our lives exactly as they are, family life, work life. It's not necessary to make any um, external changes in one's life. The challenge we have on this planet is that we think there's more than one essence. So we live in a, a world of what I would call duality. There's male and female, black and white, big and small, fast and slow, up and down, here and there, before and after. But in fact, there's only one thing. All things are one thing. And there is only one thing. So it turns out that when we look deeply at everything, we see that here and there, big and small, fast and slow, up and down, left and right, male and female, are all the same thing, simply expressing different characteristics, but in no way separate from each other. I believe that all of us are individuations of God. I believe that God exists in, as, and through every human being. 
and for that matter, every sentient being in the cosmos. So I see then that I am in relationship to God as a wave is to the ocean. The wave is no different from the ocean. It's simply an arising of the ocean in individual form. And when that individuation is complete, the wave recedes back into the ocean whence it came to arise again on another day. So I believe that we are all individuations of divinity. And when we see everything as divine, we change our relationship with everything. And everything becomes different in our experience. That's how the world changes. Consciousness is the ultimate reality of the universe. So we might well ask if consciousness is the ultimate reality of the universe and everything and everyone is obviously that, then how come that this uh, the world appears to us as a multiplicity and diversity of discrete and independently existing people and animals and things, all made out of stuff called matter. How can we reconcile this statement that consciousness is the ultimate reality of the universe when it appears as a multiplicity and diversity of objects made out of matter? So the, the evidence that, that I'm using to suggest that consciousness is fundamental um, has many aspects to it. What, one is that physics itself says that space-time isn't fundamental. And evolutionary theory also agrees that space-time and physical objects are not fundamental reality. Now, both of those theories tell us only that, that space-time is not fundamental. They don't tell us what is beyond space-time. And so I... My argument is that what the physicists are finding beyond space-time, they're finding mathematical structures, uh, but what those are about is not really clear. What is this realm beyond space-time about? And so I'm proposing that the realm beyond space-time is, is about consciousness. And I would suggest that infinite consciousness has the ability to localize itself as numerous separate subjects of experience. That is all... Um, sentient beings or people or animals e each of us are localizations of infinite consciousness in infinite consciousness made only of infinite consciousness from whose perspective it views its own activity as the outside world so what appears to us as a world made out of matter from our localized perspectives is from the point of view of reality simply the activity of the one infinite consciousness. In other words, in the ultimate analysis, there are no discrete or independently existing things or people. There is one infinite indivisible whole, the unity of being, that is only refracted into an apparent multiplicity and diversity of objects and things when the one looks at its own activity through the perceiving faculties of the finite mind. If we are awake, we realize that there's one awareness that is disguised as all of these different beings on the planet. You know, one awareness shining through everyone's eyes. Then 
we literally see ourselves in others and that tendency to operate as an ego the the tendency to take for oneself falls away because we we directly realize the truth the truth is that we're all one consciousness the experience of my spiritual self was only possible in the realm of the physical for a very good reason because only in the realm of the physical was the opposite available in other words just to use a simple example if i wanted to experience myself it's like i could speak metaphorically as the light i couldn't experience being the light if i was amidst the light nothing else around me but the light which is a perfect definition of the realm of the spiritual so i would come to a realm which i call the realm of the physical where there is something other than the light because if i want to experience myself as the light not just know myself as that but experience it i could only do that where there was the opposite of the light in this case the darkness so i brought myself to the physical realm where the light and the dark exist simultaneously and then in that outward expression of myself as the light i could be who i really am in this understanding suggests that behind our differences we are all the same being not a similar being but we are all literally one the same being and love is the felt experience of this oneness or shared being it it's a a theorem of our theory that there is ultimately one consciousness so there is so we have this dynamics of many many conscious agents but the theory tells us that ultimately all those conscious agents are really just projections of a single one consciousness the the current paradigm in science has and it has been for for centuries is that space and time are the fundamental nature of reality they're irreducible um and they are the foundation of everything and prior to einstein space and time were viewed as separate now space and time together unified into space time are viewed as the fundamental nature of reality and science has then assumed that space time and objects in space time are the foundational reality and so for example when we talk about consciousness consciousness itself then must be somehow a product of objects in space and time in that physicalist framework space and time and physical objects without any consciousness are the fundamental reality and consciousness comes later on in the evolution of the universe right so that the big bang there was no consciousness there was just space time and energy the energy coalesced into massive particles and eventually life emerged after who knows how many millions or hundreds of millions or billions of years then after that consciousness came even later from that point of view um when you die the physical complexity that gave rise to consciousness dissolves and so your consciousness dissolves and so so the physicalist framework really does eliminate consciousness as a fundamental thing all altogether and says that when your body dies your consciousness goes with it from this other point of view uh, what, what I've done with my colleagues is we used evolutionary theory to point out that it's an implication of evolutionary theory that space and time is not fundamental So the physicalist interpretation of evolution is wrong 
the idea that that space and time and, and particles somehow have evolved to to human organisms is is the wrong framework because space time itself is not fundamental. We're positing a dynamics beyond space time that's much richer than dynamics of consciousness. What we do not do is throw away our old theories. When physicists say space time is doomed, that doesn't mean we no longer pay attention to Einstein. Absolutely not. We pay attention to Einstein. Any new theory beyond space time that the physicists come up with better project into space time and give us back Einstein and it better give us back quantum theory or you're wrong. Right? So all of our old theories are wonderful, wonderful friends and we're going to keep them as special cases of a deeper theory. So in our theory of consciousness, we have to do the same thing. We can't just propose anything we want. We have to have a theory of consciousness that projects and gives us back space time. It gives us back quantum theory. It gives us back special and general relativity. And it gives us back evolution by natural selection. If we cannot do that in precise mathematical detail, then there's no reason for scientists to take our theory of consciousness seriously. It's, it's, it's as if infinite consciousness puts on a virtual reality headset. Is it? Infinite consciousness puts on a, a VR headset made of thinking and perceiving. And in doing so, the moment it puts on the VR headset, it localizes itself within its own activity. And through that headset, it looks out through the perceiving faculties of a finite mind, seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, and smelling. And it fragments the unity of its own being and makes it appear as 10,000 things. What I'm suggesting is that there is very much more to, to the universe than the finite mind. I'm not suggesting that the universe only appears in each of our finite minds. The universe exists outside of our finite mind, but inside consciousness. But it is the limitations that of our finite mind that give the universe its appearance. So when we look out at the universe, we're seeing the reality that exists prior to its being perceived. But we are seeing it through the lens of our perceiving faculties, which gives it its appearance. So the idea of awakening in many spiritual traditions has, has been the idea that um, what we have taken as reality objects in space and time, our physical bodies and so forth, is not the final reality, that there's a much deeper reality, a reality of consciousness that transcends space and time and, and physical objects, and that we're not divorced from that reality. That reality is, in some sense, the essence of what we are. And so awakening is awakening from the illusion that I'm just a little body in space and time to the fact that I'm, in fact, the author of everything I see inside of space and time. I create it on the fly as I look and perceive. One becomes awakened by recognizing that what we essentially are is already fully awake, fully aware, complete, whole, fulfilled, at peace. It's like asking how how does the how does the sun become illuminated? Its nature is light. It is already fully illuminated. The nature of our essential being is already peace and happiness. It's not clear to us all, 
because our essential being is so thoroughly mixed with the content of experience that its innate peace and happiness is dimmed by experience. And, and for, for that reason, we think that our essential being needs to be enlightened. No, our essential being doesn't need to be enlightened any more than, any more than the sun needs to be lit up in the early morning. It, the sun's always shining with the same brightness. Our essential being is always shining with the same peace and joy. But that peace and joy are dimmed by the agitation and lack that characterizes our thoughts and feelings. There's no person that awakens. So, so the I that awakened, uh, I awakened from this Dan structure, uh, a meditation center. Uh, it was a Zen center. We were doing a Zen session, which is a long period of intensive practice. So Zen is amazing for creating this container where there are these conditions of no escape. So the Dan character that had learned meditation, the Dan character had been doing all this meditation, this doer of meditation realized that it couldn't awaken. It's like all the meditation tricks, all the uh, practices that had been learned were of no use. It got to the point where that character who was trying to awaken failed to awaken and had to fail. The, the character that I'd been living, the character that I'd been playing all my life had to let go or die. And what was left, what was left when that character, when there was no doer, when there was no meditator meditating or doing something called meditation, what was left was my true nature or, or me, just me. When we awaken from this small separate sense of self, it's not that we're killing the ego or we're uh, fighting it. It's actually we're allowing it to semi-retire from its job of ego identity and then relax to be part of our team, part of our consciousness. And this gives us a sense of freedom immediately that we're not looking at the world through a small lens, that we're, we're open-hearted and open-minded in a way that's expansive and yet at the same time more intimately connected. Enlightenment is not about becoming awakened. Nobody becomes awakened or enlightened. It's a recognition of the light, the light of pure knowing, whose nature is peace and happiness that we always and already are. My name is Lisa Natoli, and I'm known as a spiritual teacher. I teach about healing and awakening and transformation. Awakening is the recognition of your true nature. And it's the realization of what you really are, which is consciousness. And consciousness is just one word for many words that people use for awareness, life, love, God, um, light. So waking up to the recognition that I'm not this body, that I am that which never dies and that which is never born. And 
the the easiest way for me. That was a very difficult idea for me. I've been on a spiritual path since 1992. I started with A Course in Miracles. I was studied it religiously. I mean, I was someone who was so committed to knowing the self, knowing God, waking up. I couldn't get it because I was under the belief that awakening was something mystical, that it, something would happen, that something would occur and it would be like Jesus or Buddha or all of these enlightened masters. And it wasn't happening for me. I couldn't understand, like, why am I so committed? And I'm having deep moments of peace and happiness and joy and still struggling. I started to realize the simplicity of our true nature, which is awareness. So for someone who's listening to me right now, the awareness that's hearing this voice That's what we are. And it doesn't have a location. It doesn't have a gender. It doesn't have a color. It doesn't have a body. And it's totally unlimited. So awakening is where we wake up to our true nature. We wake up to the realization that I am the awareness of this experience right now as I'm, as I'm here. And it's so ordinary, we miss it. <laughs> we, we, we think it can't be that simple. The recognition of our true nature, um, it doesn't lead to happiness. It, it is happiness. The, the nature of being is happiness itself. So the recognition of our true, na true nature is the experience of happiness. Who is aware in this moment The mind will look for something or try to complicate it. You already are that which the mind is looking for. The mind will always miss it. So don't look to the mind for an answer. Don't push away your thoughts and don't get caught in the thoughts. Simply let go of the interest or attachment to thoughts, ideas, and beliefs intend to directly experience who you are don't try to negate the mind or to achieve some state all doing all manipulation all movement is more controlling by the mind allow the mind to be as it is Sometimes people can awaken just in day-to-day -day life. They don't necessarily need practice. So sometimes things will happen in life where there's an interrupt in the pattern of you and there can be a spontaneous awakening. But if someone's life is just going on in a kind of robotic pattern or a repetitive pattern, then some sort of intervention is necessary if if one is called to awakening and that interrupt in the pattern of view is sometimes called sadhana or spiritual practice. And these practices 
are always conditioned. There's something that we learn with the conditioned mind so they can make it more likely for awakening to happen sort of by loosening the bonds within the self-structure. Sometimes they say that awakening happens by accident, but the practice makes you more accident-prone. The techniques, the practices can be very useful to make you more accident-prone, um, but they, at a certain point, have to be let go. Um, because if you're, if the mind is continuously doing some practice or something, um, then the mind has the reins. The mind is in the driver's seat. So uh, the practices are useful, very useful as stepping stones for making the self-structure, you could say, less dense or lightening up the self-structure so that it becomes more permeable to our true nature. The paradox with practice is that when you finally awaken, you realize that all of the practices were being done by the false self, the character in the VR game, and that you, the true self, was never bound. All you have to do is give up the preferences of the ego, to give up the fixation on things. Anything within the field of changing phenomena is not the true self. The you that you think you are, the you that you've always been identified with, will never awaken. You awaken from that character. You awaken from the delusion that you are this conditioned character. So when people come to these retreats, they, they think, you know, this I, this little me is going to awaken. Some great thing is going to happen. But at a certain point, that little me will never do it. It has to give up. It has to fail. And it's only in that failure we realize who we are, that we've always been aware. We've always been present. We just got hooked into this character and we believed we were that. I started my um, spiritual search um, in the classical Advaita Vedanta tradition, which was a devotional path that um, involved uh, mantra meditation, which I practiced very diligently for, for 20 years. And uh, mantra meditation involves focusing your attention on a, on a sound, and then gradually the sound fades. However, it was really when I came in touch with the direct path that um, my spiritual search really reached its uh, culmination because in the in this direct approach we don't give our attention to any object however subtle for instance that um, a mantra the, the sound the breath we allow our attention to sink inwards or backwards into its source. Let's use an analogy. Imagine that you are watching your life on a television screen. You are identified with the character on the screen. Day after day, year after year, you are involved with the story of the character. When suddenly, you wake up out of the story 
to notice the screen on which the character appears, and you realize you are not the character you have been watching. Objects can come and go on the screen. Characters come and go, but the screen remains unchanged. The character can get wet, but the screen does not get wet. The character can be disturbed, but the screen is not disturbed. Without the screen, the characters would not exist. Yet the screen goes unnoticed. The characters go about their scripted lives. Awareness is like the screen. It is like the space in which all thoughts, emotions, all states of consciousness come and go. Thoughts, sensations, and the entire outside world appear on the screen, constantly changing, but the screen does not change. It's the mind that changes states through the human experience, but there's something. Not what you are that remains, something that is ever present, that is aware of those changing states, and that is consciousness or our true nature. As long as there is attachment to a character on the screen, a sense that I am that character, then there will be suffering, Maya, the illusion of the self. Nothing you can do as the dream character will help to free you. Whether you follow the script in the drama of your life or rebel against the script, if you act from the point of view of the character, then you're caught in the illusion. To awaken, stop identifying with what appears on the screen. Recognize that it is all impermanent. Stop reacting to thoughts and treating the program as real. If I withdraw attention from the screen. Turning awareness towards itself, an unfathomable thing happens. Awareness itself wakes up. This is not a happening. Happening is what happens on the screen. Awakening is just recognizing the screen that was always already there. Do not believe your next thought. Instead. Turn awareness towards awareness itself. I have always been myself. My sense of myself runs throughout my life. It remains consistently present throughout my life. What is present in me now? That was present yesterday, last year, ten years ago, and when I was a two-year-old child. What is this essential I or self? To whom all my experience happens? The, the recognition of the nature of that one is the great secret to life. It is the direct path to peace and happiness. It's not something that a person initiates. It's a, something that a person recognizes to recognize. That is to know again what we've known from the beginning, but have simply forgotten, or denied, or failed to believe. So we cannot initiate closeness to God. 
we can simply recognize, to recognize that it's always been there and will always be there. It was only this direct pointing to awakening, this opening to what's already here that allowed me to find uh, a new way of being, uh, a new stage of development. Many people think it's it's a very impossible or out of reach goal to know the self. And my own sort of purpose as a teacher, just because of my own awakening, has really been wanting to make it very practical, very down to earth. I love to teach people. It's available to everyone. If we believe and feel that we are a temporary, finite, separate self, we are, whether we know it or not, searching for peace and happiness. In other words, it's not possible to be a separate self or to feel oneself as a separate self and not be in search of happiness. So what is required in this case is to reorientate one's search for happiness instead of seeking for happiness in the objective content of experience to seek happiness in oneself. So the spiritual practice that is required is to direct one's attention or more accurately to relax one's attention into its source, pure awareness rather than direct it towards an object, substance, activity, relationship, and so on. So the the spiritual practice, if we can call it a practice, would be this um, relaxing of the attention, the subsidence of the attention into the heart of awareness, resting in being as being. Love. Pure love is my true self. It's my true nature. Pure love for everyone and everything, for every aspect of life, even those things with which I disagree. For one who has recognized the nature of their being, they know their being as the the source of the peace and happiness for which they long. So the world no longer becomes the place in which they seek happiness, seek fulfillment. It doesn't mean to say that such a person no longer has desires, but the desires are not there to fulfill the sense of lack that is characteristic of the separate self. As such a person has found the source of happiness within themselves, and their desires come from that sense of happiness. They do not go towards it. For instance, in the realm of relationship, it makes a big difference to our relationships. We no longer seek an other to fulfill the needs of ourself. We seek another to share the experience of happiness that we already have. And this relieves our, our friends of the impossible burden of providing happiness for a voracious, um, unsatisfied self. Nothing occurs in my life that has not brought me benefit or will not bring me benefit in the sense that every moment, every activity, every outcome moves me forward in the process of the evolution of my soul. And that's why I came here to the physical realm, to evolve. 
remain open. Feel your inner aliveness, letting energy circulate freely. Don't try to make anything happen. Who is aware of that energy, that inner aliveness? Notice the mind's tendency to control and manipulate, to get involved. Without the use of your memory or language, who are you? Beyond the mind and senses, who are you? Who is aware? Many people who are hearing these ideas for the first time, they've never even heard of the idea of the self. In my mind, there's two different camps of people. There are those who are on a spiritual path and they have heard this idea. They're trying to reach the self. They're trying to be the self. They're seeking. They're searching. And then there's other people who have just been living their life. They've never heard of these ideas before. They've never heard of know thyself. And many people think know thyself means know the body, know, know yourself, be yourself, be authentic. What it really means is to know thyself, is to know what you are, to know what you are in truth, to really know your true nature. The words know thyself were carved on the entrance of the Temple of Apollo in Delphi. And as such, stand as an invitation at the dawn of Western civilization to humanity, suggesting that to know thyself is really the foundation of all civilization. Why? Because our self stands at the center of all our experience. Whatever we are experiencing, it is we who are experiencing it. Whatever we think and feel, our thoughts and feelings arise on behalf of ourself. Whatever activities and relationships we are engaged in, we engage those activities and relationships in service of ourself. So our self stands at the center of our experience. So what could be more important than to know the nature of ourself? And would it be possible to know the nature of anything else if we do not first know the nature of that which knows it. I think awakening is about ending the nightmare and stepping into the dream. But by that I mean we desert or finally abandon the nightmare of what we've been told about life, about God, and about ourselves. And we step into the dream of our grandest notion. I often ask, what do you think your life would be like if you found yourself stepping into the highest, grandest, most wonderful thought you ever had about God and about life and about yourself? So this recognition of our true nature is not only the uh, recognition that brings our desire for happiness in the world to an end. It is also the recognition 
that enables us to live in a way that is consistent with the understanding that at the deepest level, everything and everyone are one. This understanding would bring kindness, compassion, justice, tolerance, understanding into our society. Our society would be revolutionized by this understanding. As humanity lets go of ego-based approaches, then science, religion, politics, and economics start to reflect the perennial wisdom. Whether it is the native traditions who realize great spirit in all things, or the Egyptian comedic traditions who describe the human evolutionary journey from the lowly scarab to the one source. Or when we hear the words of the mystics of the Christian, Hindu, Muslim, or Buddhist traditions, or the teachings of Plato and Plotinus, we find that those who have realized their true nature speak of groupings of conscious agents. Of course, they use the language of their culture and times to express the one perennial truth. Science is now starting to see not a world of unconscious particles and fields, but a universe made of conscious agents. Something new is emerging in the world of science. As Nikola Tesla said, the day science begins to study non-physical phenomena, it will make more progress in one decade than in all the previous centuries of its existence. That day is today. Every time that we've had a mathematically precise advance in science, it has opened up new technologies that look like magic compared to what we had before. So my, my feeling is that this theory of conscious agents beyond space-time will give us technologies that will be truly mind-boggling. For example, right now, most of the galaxies that we see, I think 97% of the galaxies that we see, we can never go to. They're receding from us faster than the speed of light. So that they're not moving through space faster than the speed of light. Space itself is expanding so quickly that their speed moving away from us is greater than the speed of light. So we could never travel through space to, to go to 97% of the galaxies that we can see. So there's all this real estate out there that's waving at us and saying, hi, we're out here, and you can never come to us. That's if you go through space time. But what if you realize that space time is just your headset? It's just the format of a game. And you're not stuck inside the headset. You can play with the software that's running the game. So it's like someone who's a, like in Grand Theft Auto. You're, you're a, a wizard of Grand Theft Auto. So you know how to use the car and drive the roads and, and you can beat everybody in the game. But suppose you actually know the software that runs Grand Theft Auto. So you step outside of the Grand Theft Auto headset and you can play with the software. Well, you can take the gasoline out of the tank of the, of the wizard. You can give him a flat tire. You can change the geometry of the roads. You can do whatever you want to. So once we understand our space-time headset, we would have to travel to the Andromeda galaxy through space-time, which would take us 2.4 million years, we can just go around space-time. 
I see the world around me as stepping into a greater expression and experience of what it means to be human and what it means to be an aspect of divinity. But I don't think that we have an endless amount of time. And yet a sense that time is running out. That's now or never time. I think we're on the right path. I have a sense of optimism that because of the kinds of opportunities that we see today in the world to communicate powerful and important ideas, ways that we didn't have even a few years ago, are creating the possibility that we can get to that place of critical mass, that we can reach critical mass before our time runs out. But we would be mistaken if we think we have an endless amount of time on this planet. When each individual disidentifies from their conditioned character, then they're no longer acting as an egoic entity. And that brings about a transformation on the planet. This brings a new Earth. For the life as we know it right now on this planet, I think we need to make some changes and make them quickly, dramatically and radically, if we want to see the tomorrow for which we've all dreamt. So could this uh, understanding become mainstream in our lifetime? Why not? Yes. The challenge we have right now is nothing is working. And the time has come for us to stand up and say that's true. Surely we can do better than this. Surely. We can expand our understanding of who we are and our expression of our true nature. We need to pay attention to our environment, to our politics, to our economics, and to our spiritual process on this planet. Because the problem in the world today is not a political problem. It's not an economic problem. It's not a social problem. It's a spiritual problem. It has to do with how committed we are to stepping into the highest spiritual truth. This is not new age philosophy. These ideas have been around for thousands of years. The perennial wisdom has been expressed through countless traditions and cultures. And like awareness itself has always been hidden in plain view. In Christianity, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas contains direct pointers to our true nature. The disciples asked Jesus, when will the kingdom come? Jesus said, it will not come by waiting for it. It will not be a matter of saying, here it is or there it is. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth and people do not see it. The kingdom is not here or there. Awareness is not here or there. It is not fixed in time and space. If you are waiting for something to happen, for some outward event or some state, some ascension, some healing or some energy, then your conditioned mind is still seeking. It is still mediating your experience of the now. 
In Buddhism, they say samsara, the world of suffering, and nirvana, the world of liberation, are not two separate worlds. They are one and the same. We don't manipulate or change things to arrive at some mystical reality. When we awaken, the perfection of the world is revealed directly as it is. Is it possible to simply be here and now in this moment, unmediated by that seeking mind? Is it possible to be okay with this moment as it is? To simply be. grateful for this preparation that these beautiful people made for us to listen to. Oh, my. Okay. We'll finish as much as possible of the next piece. And then we'll do what, when we come back after the astrology, we'll finish the rest. And this is our famous ones, Michaela, Sheldon, and Ethan Fox. And this is called The Breath of Fire. As you don't have YouTube Premium and are seeing ads on this video, oh, okay, yeah, ads on this video, 
You can now watch us ad-free on Rumble, Rama. Yeah. Can you do that? Um, no? I think I can. Search um, AAE. That's what you got to do. Search AAE yeah. on Rumble. Or Awake. You can do it on Awake, on Awake and Empowered podcast on yeah. Spotify. On Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Alexa, and others. Okay. We will also soon be launching on many more platforms without ads. In this episode of Channeled Revelations, Michaela Sheldon channels the Council of Light. Ethan and the guides discuss dragons and reptilians and their appearance as gods on Earth. Specific topics include the Anunnaki, the Naga, the Naga Kukulkan, and Quetzalcoatl, the Mayans and Aztecs, Catholicism, Dagonism, and Yava. All right, that's good. Um, so let's just remember as we're gathered here that we send more love to those who have been misbehaving, including ourselves. Send ourselves more love. All right. So we will offer this together, this wonderful piece that we're going to play next as well. Thank you, Neil Donald Walsh and friends. Wow. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Channel Revelations. I'm Ethan Fox, and I'm here with Mikhail Sheldon. And we'll be spending the next couple of hours talking about ancient civilizations and uh, wisdom that we can gain from ancient times that we can apply in our modern lives. And as always, Michaela is a trans channel, and I don't discuss any of the questions or the topics with her beforehand. Um, she's a trans channel, so we'll be speaking directly to the guides, but just to keep her conscious mind from interfering with any of the information, I don't discuss it with her before the shows. So whenever you're ready, we can start. All right. Okay. Who are we speaking with today? Well, we are speaking with the Council of Light, as well as an assembly of many different interdimensional beings and councils. Uh, who are prepared to provide answers to any questions necessary. Is it the same as usual, or are there other councils that are present today? We are calling upon the councils of different planets and star systems to assemble around us, uh, knowing, of course, that there may be some historic events that need to be shared, but also various interpretations of universal law, as well as the workings of the cosmos. Other planets, meaning planets within the solar system or just all over the place? Within this universe. Within this universe, okay. All right. So we've spent the last several conversations going in a particular direction and discussing primarily the Anunnaki timeline. But this time I'm going to change directions and go uh, and um, discuss an entirely different topic area. Uh, in order to later bring that into the earlier conversations that we've had so we can add some more nuance to that uh, along those lines. Uh, and so we'll later return to the Anunnaki story. 
but in in many other conversations, this channel, not on not on um, uh, Channel Revelation show, but uh, has discussed dragons and the Dragon Collective and so on. And I'd like to focus in that particular area today, but bring a little bit more historical groundedness to the topic as well. Uh, and along those lines, um, uh, first of all, is there any particular being or collective that is of a higher consciousness that has had a either a physical incarnation or um, incarnation on Earth, I mean, of any kind, that, or maybe been present during the incarnation of other dragons in this, in any Earth dimension? Is there someone else who could speak to that topic on a more personal level uh, other than the councils that are present now? Well, there are many who could speak to the topic. And the reason we are assembling multiple councils is ultimately, if we are to go into the history of dragons, we are looking no different than your own DNA and intergalactic uh, connection, meaning that uh, dragons are made of many different intergalactic and cosmic family histories uh, bound together through the wisdom of a similar DNA construction. So I just wanted to say one more thing. There's over 2000 people that have gone over the rainbow now in Morocco from this quake. What, honey? 2012. Well, 2012, there's going to be way more. And um, I just wanted everybody to take that into their hearts and blaze the violet fire. fire. And uh, there's going to be a lot more people going over the rainbow and a lot more people. I mean, over half of the injuries, which is upwards of 2,000 now, too, over half of them are serious. I mean, critical. Yeah. Like, and I think the, some, the people that have had those critical energies are adding to the numbers that have gone over the rainbow. So, blaze of wildfire. And as, uh, you know, Donald Watts was, was saying that we're not changing anything. We're just doing more of the same in the face of what's going on here. So, yes, we can. And let's get it all cleared up. It's not about anything except the spiritual uh, direction. Expand our spiritual awareness. All right. Here we go. Back to that's what these two are doing. (laughs) Here we go. Thank you, everybody. Well, we can certainly present ourselves as necessary as we tailor suit these transmissions to what you are asking, uh, we will draw upon the wisdom of, of many who are here. Okay. Well, dragons, interestingly, seem to have a pretty dominant role in ancient mythology and even to modern times. We see dragon iconography around the world, in particular in European countries like in London, for example. We see a lot of iconography, but even even the fact that it's used in in various um, Hollywood films and such, the the narrative seems to still be there, uh, and in many ancient texts as well, it's present. And what I'd like to kind of uh, understand first of all is 
did, did dragons incarnate on Earth in any third to fifth dimensional um, experience, or were they? Was it all, or is it just a collective that exists in a higher dimension but did not incarnate physically? Well, it is both. If we are to uncover the entire history of of dragon beings, we would have to go back to the very beginning of the Earth's evolutionary process to understand that the seeding of humanity required the interaction of beings from multiple dimensions and races uh, that were lending their DNA and also excited to be a part of a new um, cosmic experience, uh, as well as focused upon the expansion of the universe as a whole. So what we consider dragon energy uh, at the very beginning of the seeding process might be a bit different uh, than those that are recognized in ancient times, because like any historic account, uh, there are going to be um, periods where these beings have evolved and hybridized on the earth, uh, very much like we have spoken of in past transmissions uh, about the Anunnaki coming through portals. And there may also be times when dragons have come in and manifested in the purest state of their light. Now, we have also referred to dragon gates or guardians. And many of the dragons that initially came to Earth were very interested in the inner workings of the underground passageways and and tunnels and and the various stargates and portals and how they operated. They also came to seed what is now known as elemental energy, um, much of which came from alternate planets and star systems because we believe dragons to be more elemental in their expression. Uh, They are able to shapeshift, in other words, uh, able to tap into the energy of the planet that they have come to experience and use it in some very intelligent or or creative way. Would dragons be considered reptilians? Is there a connection there or are they an entirely different race? There is a connection there. And, uh, and, and again, we want to take you back to the very beginning of time. Um, and, and this would take a bit of time to explain because we're really tapping into a story that has continued on throughout history, yet is very focused on the reptilian race, much like what happened within the Anunnaki's history uh, in terms of catastrophic events upon their home planet. Uh, the reptilians faced many. And coming to the Earth at the very beginning of humanity's seeding, Uh, The reptilians that were in the highest and most loving focus lent some of the most incredible aspects of your human technology. Uh, They are very mind-driven beings, uh, but it is an efficient way of manifesting for them. Uh, They do not have an emotional body, and they bypass what humans often slowly process as sensitivity. Uh, they have no need for this because they are shapeshifters moving through time and space and dimension uh, very quickly. But you have to imagine that to have come to the earth to see a race, 
consecutive to a cataclysm taking place in their star system, things would have begun to shift or, or go awry. Um, and, and we want to explain the process here so that you understand when it, when it, a race is seeded, what is actually happening is the blending of Akashic energies from the DNA of all of the beings present puts together a format, a container, a structure, or a vehicle for new souls to arrive. So there is um, a very beneficial contribution on behalf of all of those who are present, but the energy that is being tapped into is actually collective in nature. So to give you an example, there were many Pleiadians who at the beginning of the um, Earth's manifestation took uh, a great interest in understanding this new planet and uh, had a strong desire, of course, to lead the way um, in the seeding process, not only of humans, but plants and, and animals and, and all of the lush nature that you find yourself surrounded by. When they came, they hybridized into a different form because the Earth's atmosphere and presentation is a bit different than that of the Pleiadian star system. But the goal is always to retain a connection to all that they have left behind because that is where the greatest current of contribution actually comes from. Uh, it's no different right now than you being connected to the source field and using that source field as an implement through which you are manifesting in your life. Now, if a home star system is going through turmoil or there's a great dimensional shift taking place simultaneous to beings landing on another planet, that energy is going to have an effect on how they hybridize and also continue their process of of um, evolution, uh, in other words. So when you connect the dragons to reptilians, what we wish to explain is that this was a modification that wasn't necessarily planned, but nonetheless happened. These dragon entities or reptilian energies were faced with dire a dire situation. They knew that the earth was a new planet. Uh, it was very prosperous. Uh, there was already a contribution of their own DNA that could be tapped into. And many of them arrived in this form. Some of them took home in the inner earth, which was a more comfortable vibration and dimension for them to acclimate to while others hybridized differently on the surface of the earth. So as you go through these periods of ancient history where you see the dragon iconography, uh, you are often seeing the reptilians that took this form, we'll say, uh, manifesting from the inner earth to the surface. Um, others are a more elemental representation and hybridization of those beings. All right, let me make sure I understand so far. So the original seeding, the dragon energy or beings or collective were, were part of that seeding. And, and so we contain some of their genetics as well, which I assume is a more mind mentally focused aspects of us. The reptilian brain is a matter of speaking. 
Um, and, and then, and so that was a very benevolent group of reptilians. And then there was this, uh, cataclysmic event that happened in their star system. And as a result of that, the reptilians that came over from that, which was at a much later time, were more malevolent. Is that correct? We, yes, we agree. Okay. And is this the Draco star system or something else? In the Draco star system, yes. Um, and of course, there are many clusters and, and um, stars within that uh, system to consider. And what dimension were they in prior to their cataclysmic event that caused them to leave? Well, there are some reptilians who came to the Earth at the very beginning of its seeding who had evolved into a 12th dimension. Uh, and this is why... Uh, even today, there are reptilians who are known as some of the most benevolent and loving gods. They came not only to teach humanity about manifestation through the mind, but also techniques of healing. Now, when you come to the earth, if you are in a 12th dimension, uh, things are going to shift. It's not that you would not have access to that 12th dimensional energy, but you would find yourself vibrating into a dimension that is consecutive to all others. So um, certainly there was a lowering of dimension of the earth through a variety of unintended uh, and malevolent acts that that began at this beginning period of time we are stating um, at the same time. Uh, dragons or the Draco or the reptilians have taken on different shapes and forms and manifested in different dimensions throughout earthly history. So are the kind of things that these ancient benevolent reptilians who were dragons, for example, who were part of the original seeding, you're saying they, they were teaching different things or they were um, uh, helping society advance in a positive way. Was this uh, group what's responsible for the meditative teachings, for example, uh, because a lot of depictions of Buddha or Vishnu, for example, are shown with snakes surrounding them or sleeping on a bed of a, with snakes? Is that representative of their mind-based teachings? Well, we want to distinguish that they weren't always mind-based, even though the reptilian uh, collective is a more mind-focused and driven collective. Uh, keep in mind that those that came to teach meditative practices were not doing so necessarily through the mind, but teaching those on the planet how to transcend the linear nature of a physical mind. Mm-hmm. Because to have a mind is is truly a, a brilliant expression of your hybrid nature. Unfortunately, the 12th dimensional, more benevolent reptilians that, yes, you certainly see depicted with ancient ascended masters, uh, understood how vulnerable humanity could become to the lowering of its consciousness through the mind or the swaying of the mind collectively to manifest uh, more massive uh, and, and earthly events. And that is why uh, the snake imagery that you are referring to uh, is not only uh, considered um, a mere reflection of the presence of these beings, but 
but perhaps the end result of the breath work and teaching, uh, which had to do with, with raising the life force or the Kundalini all the way to the crown, which in so doing, uh, activates what is known as a higher mind. So when we see depictions in iconography and even ancient sculptures of beings such as Buddha or various Indian gods who are considered benevolent when they are depicted with snakes, is that always representing this benevolent teaching or higher mind? Well, we cannot say always because it was a very auspicious time when these intergalactic beings chose to incarnate. Uh, certainly, the dichotomy of light and darkness is also being represented to, represented in some of these uh, symbolic renderings. Uh, at the same time, uh, we also want to stress that the reptilians were somehow seen as light teachers or guardians of the various processes that perhaps the Buddha became known for. Um, many of you today are being, um, we'll say, mentored by cosmic families and, and intergalactic teachers who are bestowing upon you uh, brand new modalities and technologies and teachings, and you are making them your own. So certainly we're seeing the interplay here uh, between the higher dimensional reptilian collective and those that they were also training or somehow um, influencing in their, in their, um, in their ways. Well, how can we distinguish between, because we have very benevolent reptilians, as we've talked about, and, and there's also malevolent reptilians as well. And in iconography and even in ancient mythology, we see representations of both, some that are very fierce and aggressive, and even there are various um, snake iconography around the world where the snakes look very aggressive and fierce, and then they then we also see them with Buddha uh, side by side as well. Uh, should we always assume that the appearance of it shows the orientation, meaning if it's a more fierce-looking depiction, it might represent a malevolent being? Well, not in every case, because there are also those who wanted to um, uh, share the uh, message or the appearance that those who were teaching positively aligned meditative practices uh, were somehow evil. <laughs> so, so it is dependent upon each image. And, and our advice is this. When you are looking back at ancient history and, and this type of symbology, you should always feel in to how it has been created and for what purpose, because sometimes it is not as obvious as a visual representation. Uh, there are also embedded vibrations uh, and frequencies within these symbolic renderings, very much like modern day uh, channeling, for example, or what the original biblical accounts of Jesus were meant to uphold. 
um, unfortunately, much of this has been degraded through time. So, so to simplify, we could say that based upon the fierce or more loving nature, um, this assumption could be made. All right. So the dragon, uh, consciousness and collective came to earth for the original seating at a time when Draco was in the 12th dimension. When they came to earth though, were they still in the 12th dimension on Earth, when they were, when the seating happened, was it a 12th dimensional seating or was it something else? Well, at the original seating, at the time when many of these beings arrived, Earth was and, and still is a, a 12th dimensional planet. Um, it is just that the dimension that you have access to has more to do with the evolutionary process of the souls within the timeline you are focused than it does within the um, actual determination of a planet's dimension. And in other words, we've spoken in previous transmissions about the very idea that within the inner Earth, uh, multiple dimensions exist. It is just that you are not perceiving those dimensions because they do not match uh, your vibration. There's no magnetic draw or electromagnetic connection between what is happening in those dimensions and what's happening on the surface of Earth. Yet many of you understand who are awakening to these various ideas that it is easy if you deliberately and diligently practice to enter the 12th dimension and to receive wisdom, energy, or information and bring it into your physical experience. It is just sometimes that the experience itself cannot hold the energy that you have received. So we are certainly validating that this was a 12th dimensional experience at the very beginning of time. And it had to be because the love-based frequency that is accessible in a unified 12th dimensional experience is somewhat necessary for a seeding process of this magnitude. We're not speaking exclusively of a physical seeding. Uh, we're speaking more of a vibrational anomaly, uh, even at the level of what may be considered an immaculate conception or a tantric practice. Um, yet the reptilians continued to evolve and want to refer back to the cataclysm that happened in their star system. Those that came to seed were in a, in a heart-based 12th dimensional frequency. But many more came simply because their star system and home had been somewhat degraded. And these are the ones that began to lower most in their frequency. Uh, it is very much like today on the planet. If human beings were faced with a catastrophic event, even if they existed in the 12th dimension, the conditions of that event and having to move through them may actually lower their dimension and vibration simply because of the experience they are having. And, and this is indeed what happened. So so beyond the original cedars um, who did continue on on the earth and and took more forms of light eventually, um, what actually began to happen was reptilians coming to the earth and hybridizing in lower dimensional frequencies. 
All right. And so what you're saying about the 12th dimension still exists and we can access it, but we can't actually step into it. It's sort of like what we're doing here today, right? We're I'm conversing from the third to fifth dimensional space in this environment, but meanwhile discussing these topics with 12th dimensional consciousness. Correct. You're, you're always attuning yourself to the dimension that you need access to in order to continue to evolve. The problem is you are a collective and, and we don't necessarily see this as a problem yet on planet earth, the collective is weighing you down in a sense. And this is why many are having dualistic experiences in, in their spiritual practice and, and, and focus. They are able to move between dimensions very efficiently. They're able to understand universal concepts and even teach them to others. Yet their lives are not necessarily reflecting a 12th dimensional reality. And, and to some degree, you must understand that Earth was created as a physical planet. So even though at the very beginning of time, the beings who came were 12th dimensional, they knew that once the seeding process started, the beings that had been seeded, new humans, were going to have to evolve in the likeness of the planet they chose. And that if they remained some of their 12th dimensional structure would have to hybridize and adapt in order to remain on that planet. Now, it did not mean they did not hold and maintain access to their home star system. And this is a more complicated topic and we don't want to veer off path, but we know that many of you are aware of various technologies, handheld and otherwise, that are seen in the depictions of ancient intergalactics. And these were elemental, very much like the dragon energy. But what they did was they allowed those that came um, in a 12th dimensional state, for example, to, regardless of the lowering of their frequency, still be able to capitalize upon the evolution that was taking place in their home star system. It's, it's somewhat like a telepathic exchange at the DNA level that needed to be supported and um, we'll say modified uh, to the earth's frequency. So uh, those who remained on planet earth were in a constant technological negotiation with telepathic communication from their home systems such that they could integrate within the DNA all that they had learned. And if they returned back, would find themselves at the perfect place and the perfect time to be a part of all that had happened while they were not present. So you're referring to what well, by technologies that are handheld, you're referring to things like the handbags we see in Many ancient depictions of the Anunnaki, for example, or even the Ankh, which is in a lot of Egyptian hieroglyphs. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yes. These are things that we are speaking of more the handbag depictions uh, than the Ankh. And we'll speak to that in a moment. Um, these, if they were to be opened and exposed, uh, could have changed realities in a moment. This is how powerful uh, the energies that were brought together uh, created a field, in other words. And that is why they are seen in such consolidation, because 
in the connection to them, an electromagnetic charge, or we'll say field again, was maintained, but it was intergalactic in nature. Um, if you think, for example, of a pyramid, and we have spoken in past transmissions about the 369, creating an unbroken connection to the universe. Uh, these were almost like a mini pyramid that an individual soul had created that brought together both the frequencies of the earth and the frequencies of their own star system to, to make this unbroken connection between their DNA and their, their collectives that they were not a part of presently. And so these handbags enabled them through the technology of what was in the bags uh, to maintain a connection to their star system, essentially, and maybe the dimension that they wanted to maintain while being on Earth, which was different. Correct. They were very much like communication technologies, yet not in such a literal sense that communication was literally taking place uh, as a cellular phone. This is more a DNA type of exchange that was happening. And, and it was important because those who were here were regarded as ancient masters of energy and, and teachers of light. And while certainly they had the ability to channel and had brought the memories of all that they had done on their own home planets to the earth, all of that needed to be reconfigured in order to be shared here. And beyond that, the earth was not always a very conducive uh, atmosphere for those who had manifested um, from a different form. For example, some of these 12 dimensional beings manifested from pure light into a physical body, which is quite a, a, a radical change and different way of both manifesting as well as uh, creating uh, beyond the non-physical, and, and many were charged with this. Um, certainly we could tell stories, uh, for example, about manifesting temples and technologies, which these ancient beings taught. But, but beyond this, their own bodies were considered to be much like the temple or the pyramids that are left behind. And they understood that they had to maintain clarity. Uh, there could be no distortions. If their bodies were going to transfer back into the light of which they came, they needed to keep pace with the evolutionary process that they had once started before they chose to come to a physical planet. It, it's somewhat like a skip in time that we have access to at a moment's notice. Our bodies are keeping up with dual timeline experiences through an individual soul's perspective. Uh, that is essentially what these technologies were capable of. Yet each of them slightly different and unique in their presentation based upon the, um, the, the cosmic location um, of which these beings came. So it's sort of like a maybe a dimensional bubble that was surrounding their bodies, let's say, as long as they kept these handbags nearby that helped them maintain connection to their dimension, meanwhile walking in the physical earth. Correct. Yes, it's a simplified way of putting it. Okay. When the 
their star system, Draco, degraded, and the other reptilians who were more malevolent came to Earth later. Did it drop in dimension before when that star system degraded? It, this is almost always the case because any cataclysm will set off a chain of vibrational events that will lower the dimension of those that live upon it. And what dimension did it drop to? It is It has dropped to a third dimensional reality, even though very similarly to Earth, uh, there are some that have shifted into a more of a fifth dimensional timeline. Um, both exist simultaneously. And, and it was third dimensional when the reptilians came to Earth later. It is hard for us to depict exactly the dimension in which every reptilian came to Earth because um, we would have to cover an entire uh, broad spectrum of time uh, because it was not as if this was one single event. So just so I can understand from a time perspective, did, did this um, event where the reptilians after Draco had uh, degraded, the more malevolent reptilians came to Earth. This was, was this prior to the Great Flood 13,000 years ago, or was it been since then? Some, yes, prior to the Great Flood period. And, and again, we want to make a slight distinction about the word malevolent, because those who came weren't necessarily setting their sights on destruction. They were focused on self preservation. And because of that, malevolent acts began to ensue. But also, remember, the earth as a different frequency than they were used to also changed them slightly. Um, We're operating through the mind without the benefit of an emotional body and a, a structure that blended both aspects. Uh, led them to manifestations that were not in humanity's best interest. All right. So, so they came to earth and when they came to earth, I'm talking about the, the group that came after the Draco degraded to a lower dimension. Did they enter the earth in the third dimension then, or was it a different one? You're asking if the Earth existed in the third dimension upon their entry? Well, obviously all the dimensions still exist, right? My, my question is, what dimension did they enter into when they came to Earth? Well, if we are to look across the board and make a determination, because we couldn't say in every single case that every single reptilian came into a third dimensional form, the third dimension was primary for them upon their hybridization. And this is why. Um, reptilians very much like yourselves, even though they have evolved all the way through the 12th dimension and are able to shape shift, for example, are more physical in their presentation. So, so coming to a planet like Earth, especially at a period of time in which they were facing a cataclysm, brought the majority of them in, in a more third dimensional state. All right, and um, so they came to Earth in a third-dimensional state, and now, and this we've discussed in previous conversations how there are multiple timelines that we've discussed. For example, Atlantis was on the ninth dimension on Earth. Uh, the Anunnaki were fifth dimension on Earth, and then as of thirteen thousand years ago, descended down to third dimension, where we've been since then. 
So the reptilians you're talking about came into a third dimension prior to 13,000 years ago. Am I understanding correctly? Yes, that is, we, we agree. Okay. So in that case, is it fair to say that they were existing in an entirely different reality than the, the Anunnaki or the um, uh, Atlanteans? Or were they, because the third and the fifth dimension can interact, were they in a similar uh, interacting with the Anunnaki? Well, we don't use the word interaction because that would assume that there was some physical interplay uh, between these beings. And, and of course, remember, we cannot exclude every single timeline that there has ever been on planet Earth because what you are saying is true. The third and the fifth dimensions are, are so closely connected that they almost always coincide. Um, third dimensional collectives or um, realities are attempting to evolve. And because they are, they are moving into multidimensionality. And the fifth dimension is the first step for that. But for the most part, you are looking at a distinguishing factor here between those that were Anunnaki and those that were considered reptilian. All right, but did they coexist on Earth in the same time? Yes, of course they did. They yes. just didn't know about each other then. Mm, well, knowing is, is, is something that we don't necessarily look at in a physical sense because remember, these were very evolved intergalactic beings, many of them using technologies and able to teleport themselves back to their home star system, um, where they would have certainly known about the evolutionary process of the earth and, and beings that had come to be a part of it, even if they did not necessarily cross paths. So in some cases, did the Anunnaki, being that they were in the third dimension, I'm sorry, the uh, reptilians were in the third dimension, Anunnaki were in the fifth, in some instances, did they interact? Yes, absolutely. And, the, and, and that is the case for uh, any timeline shift or split on any planet. It is very similar to what is happening today, although you wouldn't tend to interact with those who are not of the same frequency level or consciousness. Um, it is inevitable that there are going to be times when you will, and that is because the universe dictates it to be so. Uh, it is the only way that evolution can take place. So it's sort of like uh, in our previous conversations about if you're walking down the street and you're operating in the fifth dimension and you're walking next to someone who's in the third dimension, you may not interact with them because you have really nothing to say to each other because you're existing in very different realities, even though you're walking side by side. Was this similar to what was happening? It is. And we would also add that there were very different distinguishing intentions uh, for being on the earth as well as uh, what was focused upon as survival, um, where the common thread may have been working through human DNA uh, for those who are more malevolently focused. The Anunnaki were more highly technological in their process as opposed to the reptilians who while have created technology, are, are more closely connected to the elemental energies of any physical structure. 
Um, and even as you had mentioned previously, uh, working with breath. And were these interactions considering, if I'm understanding correctly, the Anunnaki being in a fifth dimension primarily and the reptilians being in a third, I would think the Anunnaki would be a higher level of consciousness than the, than the third. Is that correct? Uh, consciousness meaning the access to vibration and energy. Yes. Uh, keep in mind the big difference here that we want to point out is the reptilians are designed to be very physically and mentally focused. So that does not preclude uh, a race from evolving in consciousness, yet they also found themselves on a planet that may not have been exactly conducive to um, their ability to do what many of the Anunnaki had um, been focused on for a very long time, uh, which was using the the wisdom and the tools at their disposal that they had learned from their home star system and putting them into application here. So are these handbags that uh, if we were to, are there any of them still here or did they take them with them? The handbags were not necessary to be taken from the earth back to any home planet or star system for they would not have been needed. Many of them were destroyed or or because they were made of organic materials uh, may have decomposed over time, while others are certainly able to be unearthed and we believe will be in order to be uh, better understood. If we were to open these today, what would we find? Some sort of elements or what, what would the technology look like? Obviously not like circuit boards and things we know of as technology today. Very different in their presentation. And, and of course, um, we have to explain that the the power of the electromagnetic field that they created may have diminished simply because the way they were constructed was tailor suited to the environment and the dimension that they lived in then, which is quite different from the timeline that you are on now. Um, if you were to open the handbags, of course, they might all look a bit different in their presentation. Yet, one of the common um, components uh, that you may find is uh, a coil uh, using the uh, different elemental properties focused around a center coil in order to create a resonance. Also, much of what you see in the um, crop circles that originate from light ships, uh, these various images may have been carved into stone, also using elements na- natural to earth, uh, such as gold, for example, or using a, a, a liquid substance like water or plasma. Uh, these were all combined in order to make a valid connection to the star systems in which these beings came. Now, we've talked about these substances native to Earth, but remember, uh, these beings were also imbuing their own genetic imprint upon these technologies. Uh, it was very important because What they knew was the crystalline vibration of their DNA was akin to the various crystals that could be found within the inner earth. 
when they brought the two together, meaning holding them in close proximity to the body, um, there would be an undeniable and undetectable feeling or resonance, uh, much like the creation of a mandala inside of a temple. Um, this is how they were tuned, in other words, uh, very much like a modern-day instrument. When an instrument is tuned, uh, the player can almost feel or sense that the instrument it knows so well has become perfected for its use. Uh, these technologies were very much the same in that they had to be um, uh, tuned to the individual who was using them and sometimes even upgraded at times to match the changing vibration of the earth as well as the cosmos. Was copper used in any way in these devices? Because uh, in some ancient mythologies, snakes or reptilian beings are associated with copper. Copper was the foundation of the coil that we are speaking of. Um, and yes, it certainly was present, although uh, we would say the copper that many of you are using today or even ingesting, for example, in the body may have... Uh, slightly shifted in its elemental property uh, beyond what those who were using it in historic timelines had access to. Beyond meaning better in some way, or what do you mean by beyond? Well, the elements of Earth are always shifting themselves to meet the humans that are using them. And um, it is a little-known fact that elements are somewhat conscious. So so even uh, gold, silver, uh, copper, various crystals, uh, element, the element of water, um, it is adapting itself to meet the vibration of the human collective. And this is why we stress always that the elements of the body are so telepathically um, intermeshed with those of the earth that if you were aware of this, you could restore and heal your bodies or the earth in very short periods of time. The the ancestors knew this very well, and it is why many of the ancient healers were focused on bodily elements and ensuring that they become restored and, and aligned because it is your connection to your home planet. It is, is how you find balance and equilibrium as an, an individual being in a physical body. Just hypothetically, if we were to find one of these bags today, are they in any way beneficial to human beings who are incarnated now, or is this a technology that really doesn't serve a purpose now? Uh, only from the perspective of research, we believe, as there are many on the planet today who are creating similar forms of technology, not for the purpose of the handbags necessarily, but in order to hold humans in connection to cosmic energy or to increase the flow of what we call the divine through the physical body and into the earth. And, and we think that the, the design of these technologies from a, a purely focus of study uh, might be helpful in these endeavors. All right. So during the Anunnaki time period. We also had reptilians in the third dimension. Um, and I suppose just like there are third dimensional humans walking the earth today who are perfectly nice people uh, and very happy people, 
You also have very malevolent third-dimensional human beings walking the earth today. I suppose this is very similar with the reptilians. They might have been both as well, right? You must keep in mind that the reptilians who have arrived on the earth from the beginning of time have hybridized in many different forms. Uh, Some of them a very physical presentation and and others uh, a more non-physical presentation. Some have become... uh, more merged with human life forms and other others choosing a more reptilian presentation. Right. But my question is just as, just like we have human beings today in the third dimension, maybe they don't perceive higher dimensional concepts like we're discussing today, but they may be having perfectly happy, peaceful, loving lives and be nice people versus we also have, a lot of third dimensional human beings running around the earth today who are not very nice people who are doing very evil things. Would this be also true of the reptilians who are in the third dimension? Well, it depends upon the timeline that you are focused in and asking us about. If we were to answer this question based on present moment reality, uh, we would have to explain that the reptilians who are here both within the inner earth and who have manifested on the surface are malevolently focused for the most part because they are not doing well here. There are things about the earth that they need to change in order to continue their evolutionary process or to strengthen themselves vibrationally. Uh, And because of this, they are acting in ways through the mind with no access to an emotional body or empathy that would put them in a category of more malevolent in their focus. Yet, if we were to go back to the entry of many of these reptilians in ancient history, and and even at the very beginning of time, uh, we would say that what you are assuming is the case. Uh, There were many who were here in a more benevolent focus and, and others who came with a more malevolent one. Referring to the ones you said that are on Earth today or in the Earth. Um, so is that why, and I think we've discussed in the past, why people like um, various world leaders are spraying chemtrails or wanting to darken the sun? This is to make the Earth more beneficial or conducive to reptilian life. Is that correct? This is, is this is correct. Uh, the reptilians who are here are attempting to modify the earth to their liking. And it is through density that they thrive, which we know is a difficult concept to accept because you have learned that density is actually prohibitive to your ability to manifest to your desires and, and to your liking we are not necessarily speaking about emotional density here. We are speaking about the density of physicality or a very dense material reality because they are shapeshifters and they are instantaneous manifestors. And what they want is to have a physical connection to that intention. And in order to do that, They have to move aside uh, all of the interference or the things that might stand in the way of the clarity of what they wish to bring to fruition. For example, they are here as a part of a collective no less important than every human being or living being on the planet. 
the darkening of the sun or the dimming of the sun is an important consideration in this because they do not do well with the polarity or the the plasmic energy of the solar injections that you reap the rewards from. Uh, they are very different in their structure. And what they are going for is to create a reality that does not have the very high electromagnetic um, field that many of you operate through in coherence. To break that apart allows them to have more power because while they are physically focused and also uh, do very well within a, a more dense environment, Remember, they are very mind-driven beings and they bypass many of the parts of your human structure that benefits from all of these things. What the polarity of the sun might do to a reptilian who's arrived on the planet today is actually activate a sense of empathy or emotion within them. And this is something that would slow them down. It's actually something that they are not used to dealing with. So where a human being might become ill uh, or sick in the physical body and not have the energy to create, uh, this is actually what happens to a reptilian who has taken a, a more physical presentation on this physical planet. Uh, they would be very slowed in their ability to manifest and to create. In in many um, very ancient buildings or structures in India, for example, there are small holes that go underneath the buildings, and uh, the mythology or the 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 locals in that area have stories of the Naga who actually lived and came out of these holes in ancient times to teach the people who were there at the time and that those holes were, you know, for them essentially, because they're not something that human beings can crawl into. Um, and that underneath these buildings, there is a net vast network of caves and, and um, tunnels that they, that the Naga lived in. Is that because of the sun they needed to live underneath the earth? Yes. If, if they were to remain on the surface of the earth for an elongated period, what they were able to teach and accomplish as physical beings uh, would have been diminished greatly. And many of them who came uh, bore into the earth and created these caves and, and communities that are now known uh, as their their living dwellings. Um, they were not there previously. So the inner earth has become a more comfortable resonance uh, for many of these beings. Some of them were very enlightened, but as they remained in these areas and attempted to sustain themselves, have become weakened in their ability to transmit high vibrational teachings and methodology. And so they're living in the inner earth because of solar radiation, but also is that also because being inside the earth itself is a higher dense, uh, density environment? It is a far more dense environment. And, and again, we don't want to mix up the terminology here. Uh, we know that many define density in very linear terms. When we're speaking of density, we want you to think about dimension. For example, um, many would not consider what exists in the first or the second dimension because you don't exist there today. But 
But we think of the first dimension as the density of form, like material rock, for example. While a rock can be highly conscious, it does not need necessarily light to evolve because it is here to experience its reality through the density of thick form. And very much like that, the reptilians prefer a more dense type of environment, not necessarily on their home planets, but here on Earth, because the surface is far different than the orientation of their structures. So it's, it's, is it adverse for them that the collective consciousness of humanity is moving from third to fifth? Is that uh, a problem for them? The, the only reason it is a problem is that you are beginning to merge your structures, your inner technology to work as one. And then so we want to explain, uh, we keep going back to the idea that the, the human mind was the contribution of the reptilian collective. And it is a beautiful organism. It is something that they have learned to use and have mastered through time. But for a human being, to only manifest through the mind or to live and create through the mind is a limitation of its evolutionary path. So to move truly into the fifth dimension, you have to be able to reconnect the mind to the other aspects of your physicality and your energetic um, structure, whether that be the emotional body, for example, uh, or the spiritual body. And many would refer to this as um, the the divine feminine or um, reactivating the feminine within form. It is not to say that the reptilians do not understand or have learned to work with masculine and feminine balance. But remember, they do not use the benefit of an emotional body. So the more that humans adapt to an emotional body, the more that they begin to um, utilize it in concert with the mind, uh, the more they are ascending into the fifth dimension. Now, it is assumed that the fifth dimension is the same for everyone, but we must um, open the playing field here to other realities where Fifth dimension, because it's multidimensional, uh, can be something completely different for a race beyond the earth. So, so perhaps what we're alluding to here is that the ascension into the fifth dimension that humans are walking is truly not conducive to reptilians going that direction. It's why they are holding on so desperately to the third dimension because they have hybridized and adjusted to it so comfortably that any change there is going to affect them dramatically. So we're talking about density. Uh, Does that also uh, reflect on the current state of being of the collective consciousness of human beings? For example, in the recent years, it seems like there's a lot more suffering and hardship on the planet. Does that also contribute to greater density, which benefits the reptilians, or are we talking about an entirely different kind of density? Well, it does, and this is why. Um, the energy that you're speaking of, uh, it is non-physical. 
And certainly the reptilians are both physical and non-physical, just like you are. Yet their non-physicality uh, works a bit differently than what you have evolved to become. In other words, when you are existing in a reality where there is a great deal of suffering, you're not tuned in to your creative potential. Something else is able to siphon your life force for the benefit of their endeavors. And that is why there is so much suffering created in the third dimension. It somewhat creates a dormancy uh, within a human's ability to create at its fullest potential. But the energy uh, of that creation is always present. So so either we are using it to our benefit or it is going elsewhere to be used by those who may not have our benefit in mind. And that is the true current reptilian human anomaly we believe that you're existing within is that the more energetic density or emotional suffering that is placed upon a collective, the more energy that becomes available for those who are creating the suffering. So the last few years in particular, then, is it fair to say that the reptilians have been thriving as a result of more suffering on the planet? Uh, Not necessarily. We cannot confirm that. Uh, Remember, there is a desperate attempt upon the the uh, on the behalf of those who are here who are attempting to reinstate their DNA and thrive as a primary race, while at the same time remembering that this is coming from a place of weakness. So so those who are in power uh, are assumed to have all of the control and are thriving, when in fact, what we observe is that the only reason they're creating so much discordance is because they are in fear. Uh, they are in fear of losing that power. They are in fear that their genetic template will somehow be eroded and not be able to become restored. Or in some circumstances, they will not have the accumulation of energy or density that they need to continue to thrive. And, and this, we believe, is um, uh, the analogy uh, across the board of many of the discordant timelines that you are attempting to fight up against at the moment. Going back to India, I mentioned the Naga in India, and uh, it's a very prominent part of their culture and their ancient stories and mythologies. Are these Nagas essentially the same as these third-dimensional reptilians that we were speaking of? We wouldn't say the same. Uh, Remember, they are genetically tied. They come from the same cosmic family, but may have evolved completely differently on the Earth than those that we speak of today. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like human beings who have evolved as different races and, and through different levels of consciousness, the massive number of reptilians who have come to Earth have also done the same. And, and this is why in certain geographic regions or in ancient civilizations, you will see them depicted differently. Uh, some are acting out of their weakness and attempting to gain power. And others are here trying to create a life that is somehow meaningful and purposeful 
in sharing what they know with a race that is completely different from them. So we have many mythologies and even iconography of reptilians, and they look different in different areas. Some appear to be more snake-like. Some appear to be more dragon-like. Was there... Were both of those forms existing in, in uh, on Earth throughout our, its history, or was it one in particular? Well, both of those forms and many forms in between. Yet we think the iconography that you're speaking of is is so important to consider, because if we go back to even biblical periods where the story of Adam and Eve is very well known. The snake iconography can be seen as the um, dualistic dark versus light, where there could have been a choice to follow the darkness or to, within the self, raise the life force to highest potential. And sometimes when you are seeing the snake in various um, ancient settings, uh, it is merely a symbol of this choice or perhaps what a master is attempting to teach uh, through a transmission of energy or light. Uh, certainly in other circumstances, it is a linear and literal depiction of how these beings presented themselves. Yet we cannot deny uh, very much like what is happening today those that may have seen the the snake-like reptilians, even including the Naga, may have been having a more astral interpretation of them, meaning these were literal physical encounters. These were beings who were presenting themselves to humans in meditative state or in dream state, for example, uh, and these are the images that are left behind. Uh, the same goes for the dragon symbology. Uh, we have seen dragon energy manifest on the earth from many different cosmic lineages. It is not just reptilian uh, in its presentation. And you must always keep this in mind because dragons have taken on not only many physical forms, but very much like what we have explained about the Naga uh, have shown themselves energetically and been interpreted through uh, even communal meditative experiences. Those who have been using plant medicines, for example, and have taken tours through the inner earth have intersected with many of these dragons that, that do exist there and remain there in a form of light or even higher vibration. But, are translated through the perception of consciousness. Some of the depictions of dragons or even in ancient mythology or even modern Hollywood films, for example, show not really a snake-like being, but rather a being that looks more dinosaur-like with four, four legs, um, two or more wings. Did they ever take a physical form like that? Oh, they most certainly have in in several different timeline realities. And we see these as reptilian hybrids who have come to the planet and took a physical presentation or manifestation. Is there any relationship between that particular type of dragon and what we know of as dinosaurs or 
uh, or is it a totally different race of beings? There is some crossover here genetically, certainly, because any time that a race um, uh, evolves on a physical planet, uh, it is going to spawn new manifestations of itself uh, in slightly different forms. Uh, I'm not a paleontologist, but but from uh, from your perspective, I assume dinosaurs actually did exist at some point, and at least at what we know of them as these very large reptilian type of beings. Yes, yeah, we agree. And were these reptilian beings who scientists consider as being a very primitive race of animals, were they intelligent in the way that you're describing other reptilians being of a higher mind? Well, we see a very important distinction here between various breeds of what is now known as dinosaur and those who had wings. And and that's the important consideration because those that had wings were more intergalactic in their focus, meaning they were more um, representative of what is now known as reptilian consciousness where those on the ground, and you've used the word animal, for example, um, it took more of a, a dense form, not necessarily highly conscious, but um, interested in becoming oriented to a physical earth and, and evolving in close proximity to that earth. Uh, again, it's very much like the stories of ancient giants and and we will go back to some of the analogies that we have used before when any being comes through a portal uh, all of the information that it has gained throughout its past lifetimes uh, must translate into material form because it is coming onto a material planet uh, this can be seen even in the elongated skulls of some of the intergalactic hybrids of various ancient periods where the hybridization took a very physical type of formation, either in in the height or the weight or the presentation of those beings um, or somehow um, manifesting as light. Now, since the Anunnaki coexisted with some of the reptilians, and some did have interaction, was that interaction more benevolent, or meaning did they get along, or were they aggressive toward each other? Uh, both, we believe, but we lean more towards the uh, collaboration uh, in this sense, because even though both had experienced very similar cataclysmic origins prior to coming to earth they found themselves in the situation to share the knowledge that they had in order to preserve their genetics so there are some timelines that literally cross where we see reptilian and anunnaki beings um, we'll say um, co-conspiring uh, in the access of human DNA or even in the creation of more dense realities on the earth. You see, while the reptilians require a more dense environment in order to thrive, this isn't necessarily a 
requirement or a prerequisite for the Anunnaki, yet in order to accomplish their goals, very similar outcomes were beneficial. Uh, to blend the more technological um, insights and knowledge of the Anunnaki with the non-physical understandings of energy is resulted in some of the experiences that you are still having today. In some ancient mythology, it refers to, um, in some respects anyway, uh, in my interpretation of it, that there were reptilian beings who were fighting or warring with the Anunnaki. Was that true? There have been wars between the reptilians and the Anunnaki, and this, in a very similar sense, has been over energy and access to DNA, because even though there are periods of time where they are able or they were able to contribute to each other in creating similar outcomes, each of them were focused on uh, interacting with human DNA in a different way, in other words. So uh, even the elemental connection is something that we must consider. If the reptilians, the, the inner earth beings, or even the dragons, for example, are elemental beings, and we have a collective like the Anunnaki who are interested in harvesting and disturbing the elements of earth, uh, eventually we are going to see uh, some clash in terms of their ability to work together. It seems to me that in ancient times, there were gods both on the Anunnaki side, so Anunnaki gods that were worshipped by human beings, and there were also reptilian gods who were worshipped by human beings. And, uh, and they had very different approaches in the manner that it seems like their teachings or their desire to be worshipped went in opposition with each other, meaning that the Anunnaki gods wanted to be worshipped primarily and reptilian gods wanted to be worshipped primarily and they're constantly trying to sway human beings to one side or another. Was that true? Well, it is true and this is self-preservation is what you are seeing here because if each collective is attempting to preserve their own DNA and somehow through human beings siphon the energy uh, to be able to do that, uh, you are going to see gods appear in order to take precedence uh, over each other. Another commonality I found is that both groups, both types of gods, also had human blood sacrifices. Is that because of the, you're talking about the DNA and the energy, is that more easily drawn from human blood? Well, it is not the physicality of the sacrifice that is the most important consideration. Uh, when these sacrifices were done, it was a symbolic offering of energy, and it was the act itself through which the energy was siphoned. So, so the blood is merely, um, we'll say, a consequence of a, a more um, a symbolic type of ceremonial endeavor uh, that those who uh, engaged in these acts had come to understand. 
Meaning if you are giving a, as a human being, a blood sacrifice or even a human sacrifice, it's showing a greater level of commitment of your energy to that particular God. Well, it is showing a greater level of commitment of energy, most certainly, while at the same time offering the energy at its highest point. We're not talking about vibrationally here. When a human sacrifice is made, the level of fear and sorrow within the humans who are doing it, even though they believe they are appeasing their gods, is tangible. And this is what the gods themselves actually thrived upon. Getting back to the the dragon um, beings who appear in our mythology, four legs, wings, and so on, um, did that particular race of dragons also physically interact with human beings at that time? Yes, and, and we see these interactions even though some physical uh, being more energetic in nature. So, so where did the stories and the iconography come from? How did human beings depict them if there wasn't a physical interaction? It is much like what we have explained about traveling into the inner earth. Um, many learned that to interact with higher dimensional beings that were present upon their planet, they would have to breathe in a certain way or together chant and, and tone until they found themselves in a different reality. And many would come back with very vivid depictions um, as well as um, translations of energy and information that was exchanged uh, during these encounters. It does not mean, however, that physical encounters did not occur. However, it's far more rare, we believe, throughout history where dragons would have exposed themselves so vulnerably in a physical form to humans on the surface of the earth, mostly because the dragons that are more benevolent, and we're not necessarily talking about the reptilians only here, um, they were so kind and compassionate. Uh, many of them who Welcome came understood the inner earth far better than the surface. They were here to protect precious path passageways, um, tunnels, underground waterways, um, areas geographically where elements coincided. And to have created fear within a human uh, would have been of detriment to their personal purpose because any fear on the surface of the earth is bound to have a strong interaction with anything that lies below it. Um, we have spoken uh, in this transmission about the elements within the body having an electromagnetic connection to all elements on earth. Um, the dragons of history know this very well. In fact, they came to be teachers of it. How do you explain then the um, the phenomenon that is depicted in a lot of ancient mythology of dragons who are breathing fire and setting villages on fire where human beings lived and such? Is that was that a multidimensional etheric experience or did it physically occur? Well, as we mentioned, some of these encounters were indeed physical. Uh, these the the ones you are speaking of are more reptilian, uh, we would say, in their presentation than the dragons we are speaking of. 
more reptilian meaning they appeared more like snakes or reptilian meaning a humanoid reptilian? What you are saying about humanoid is what we agree with. Um, uh, we call it a hybrid, certainly. Um, and the dragon presentation, it was something that, uh, even though depicted in a very fearful way, um, may have looked a bit different in the times that those experienced it, meaning they weren't necessarily um, all dragon-like or bird-like in their manifestation, uh, some of them more human and uh, very much like the hybrids that are seen as gods or demigods. Um, these beings are, are very similar. Well, in China, they have mythology about um, ancient dragons, which are still part of a big, huge part of their culture. And their dragons appear more like snakes with small legs, and they're said to have breathed fire. So um, was this an actual physical reptilian being that existed? Well, in some circumstances, yes. But we do want to clarify the idea of breathing fire and translate it more as alchemy, meaning Many of these beings, whether they be more reptilian uh, in presentation or hybrid, uh, understood how to shapeshift and manipulate form, uh, much like the creation of a temple or a pyramid where light ships may have been called in and templates were used to transform rock and granite into perfect symmetry. Uh, these beings had the ability to do the same. And while the fire may be seen as very linear and, and a physical depiction of what they were able to do, uh, what their breath was capable of was moving mountains, changing physical form, and even destroying things at will if they believed it necessary. So if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying is it wasn't necessarily a physical fire as we would see fire today, but essentially they're with their breath, sort of like a pranic fire in a manner of speaking. So they had the ability to transform matter or environments, even destroy things with that energy. Yes, exactly. So when we're hearing of this, mythological idea of fire-breathing dragons, we're actually referring to um, the the chi or the prana then. Mystical beings with an ability to channel energy at very high rates and direct and use it at will. Okay. And this is something exclusive to dragons or is this something human beings could also do with prana? Well, it is certainly not exclusive to dragons. It is something that all beings throughout the universe are capable of doing, although it is dependent upon the form that they take and the uh, way that they channel the energies. So, so alchemy is your God-given birthright and those in ancient civilizations practiced in order to be able to teleport themselves or to move objects with the mind or to collaborate on a massive scale with light beings and intergalactic ships when they wanted to create technology. Um, these things are still possible today, even though you exist in a timeline where it does seem impossible. It is only because you are bound and confined by the presence of the third dimension that still exists on your planet. So when we, when we hear about these stories of 
dragons from, or even more snake-like dragons from ancient times that could destroy an entire town or village with fire. Um, where were they? Were they? They were powerful enough to do that. One being could do that. It, one being was capable of interacting with an entire community or village, dependent upon their level of evolution. And each being was certainly different in that level of evolution. And intention also comes into this because while certainly many of these dragons may have been focused on malevolent acts, um, it was codependent upon the individuals that were being acted upon. Um, this is not something that is easy for us to relay, but it still holds true today that you are co-conspiring and a participant within every collective event. Uh, nothing can be done upon you unless you are somehow agreeing to it or giving permission to it. But what has happened through time is that permission has been given very unconsciously. And we might say that is a connection between the reptilians and the dense environment that they so desire is they are attempting to put humans in such uh, a fog or a cloud of density that they are receiving agreement subconsciously to do the things that they set out to do. So in ancient times, just by the worship of the human beings of these reptilian gods, as an example, they were contributing the energy that these dragons or reptilian gods were then using to control them or even destroy an entire city. If the humans didn't uh, cooperate with that energy exchange, would it, have been, would it have been possible for them to have the power to do that? We believe it would have been much harder uh, to do that. Not to say that these beings did not have the power of alchemy and elemental fire within them, but it is a physical reality in which the energy of every soul is a contribution. And that means the awakening of consciousness is able to slow, stall, or weaken the energetic acts of anything that is attempting to destroy it. Yep. I'm going to stop there for a moment. This channel, not on... Not on um... As we go to the next section with Richard. And... Uh, we'll continue this. So we're going to take a little break here. Um, this is quite an awesome story. I could just say that my interactions with Ruth, the white dragon, um, yeah, she could breathe fire, and she did some stuff, and at the same time, we all take responsibility for what we've done, so to speak. Um, I'm going to say we'll be back in a few minutes with music and Richard. And a look at the stars. Satnam, namaste. Yes, now we can hear you. Yes, sir. 
Well, you know, I've told you this before. When I'm listening on BBS radio TV station 2 on Internet, there's about a 17-second delay. Right. Between your house through Houston to my house. Anyway, it's the 9th. It's 9-9. It is 9-9. Yeah. Wow. Big portal. Yeah. Uh, ruled by Sagittarius, the ninth sign. You know, three tri- the three interlaced triangles. You know. Anyway, all right. I'm supposed to talk about the astrological conditions. And the moon is at 23 Cancer tonight, so it's uh, opposite Pluto up there in Capricorn. And we'll be until this time tomorrow when it will conjunct Venus, which is not retrograde, but still at 13 Leo. And that Venus at 13 Leo is square Jupiter at 16 Taurus. Over there. So that's still going on. Typhoja talked about that. Jupiter square Venus is going to last quite some time here. And it's Venus's sextile Mars at 9 Libra. Which is good for me, but maybe not for everybody else. Uh, Venus... um, Mercury is retrograde. It's a 11 Virgo. And the sun tonight is at 18 Virgo. The sun is getting ready to be opposite Neptune this week. 17 and 7 is 24. Yeah, it's going to be sun opposite Neptune for about... uh, 20 days, two weeks, oh gee, two weeks of sun opposite Neptune, I don't know if that's good or bad, but, uh, I know, I was going to ask you, what does that mean? Well, Neptune and Pisces, you know, it's all that weird stuff, right, you know, instability, emotional instability, yeah, at one level, and uh, high idealism, high idealism, you know, all that wishing for the best of the best, best. You know, that's also part of Neptune. Meanwhile, Mercury is, I'm going to say it's no longer opposite, well, it's retrograde, so it's coming into opposition to Saturn. It's going to retrograde into opposition with Saturn, which is retrograde tonight at 3 Pisces. Oh. Yeah, now, that can be, that can be good or bad also. Yep. Yeah. Now, Chiron is still hanging out at 20 degrees of 
Aries, Pan retrograde. The North Node is at 26 Aries. Okay. Is that right? Is it moving that fast? Yeah. Well, Pluto's at 29 Capricorn, you know, and it's it's retrograde. And none of these guys are moving very fast. Mercury is moving about two-thirds of a degree a day, and Venus is only moving at about a, a fifth of a degree a day. Jupiter is minus one minute and six seconds of arc. It's like standing still. And Saturn <laughs> is minus four four minutes of arc per day. That's like standing still. Uranus is at less than a minute a day, so it's standing still. Neptune is a minute and a half per day, and Pluto is less than a minute per day. So the outer planets, for all intents and purposes, from Jupiter to Pluto and Chiron, are essentially standing still. Yeah. They're, They're moving so slow right now relative to the Earth but they're, for all intents and purposes, standing still. Uh, Mars is 39 minutes of arc per day. All right, so that's two-thirds of one degree per day. So Mars is going to be in Leo for a long time. And then Venus eventually is going to speed up here, but uh, not not this week. All right, moon's moving 12 degrees a day. And the sun is, yeah, 58 minutes a day. That's about normal. All right, that's it for right now. And when we come back, we'll see what see what changes between this week and next week. There should be some changes, you know, mm-hmm. you would think. Let me click on the 16th and hit the go button. You kind of disappeared there, Richard. I'm just bringing up next next Saturday to see if anything anything uh, strikes me as uh, important here. Yeah, let's let's look at this here. <coughs> just since we're talking about the speed of things, nope, 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 nope. Venus, yeah, Venus is going to double its speed by next Saturday. It'll be less than half a degree. Still pretty damn slow. Yeah, nothing. nothing. The only thing that's going to really change between this week and next week is the moon and the, and the, and the sun. All right. Let's go listen to Kaipacha and see if he can entertain me. Okay, he looks like he's in an interesting place. Yeah, he he likes to show off that way. Yeah. 
He absolutely does. All right. It's Kaipacha with the weekly Pele report for September 6th of 2023. Found a little clearing here on the trail. I'm on the island of Mallorca and it is beautiful. For what? The sun conjunct Mercury today. Today. I will read you the Sabian symbol for that. But really, um, not only that, but it is square to the moon. I'm going to head over to these uh, ruins over here, it looks like. Well, maybe they're, I don't know if it's a ruin or a cave, but I'm going to check it out. Yeah. <laughs> How about it? Here's a clearing for you. Oh, yeah, baby. So, Moon in Gemini, and uh, going to go into Cancer tomorrow, Thursday, okay, and uh, while, you know, while there, I mean, just, you know, what can I say? Uh, she's going to square Neptune, okay, up there in Pisces, just before she goes into Cancer, because we know Neptune's in late degrees of Pisces. And and then on Thursday, she goes in there and trines Saturn up in Pisces, squares Mars over there, okay? And um, by that time on Friday, what happens? The sun moves into trine Jupiter. Trine Jupiter. It's going to be really beautiful. It's interesting that by Monday, the sun goes along and comes into an inconjunct with Chiron. Yes, the wounded healer over there in Aries. It's interesting that first the sun was um, conjunct both Chiron and Jupiter in the first weeks of April. Okay, so if you can remember back to April, the seeds were sown. There was a Jupiter-Chiron conjunction uh, in the middle of March, and they moved pretty slow. So the sun came around and it really hit both of them. Yeah, uh, you know, right around the same time in the first two weeks of April. Let's look at these caves over here. And now it comes into the 120 degree trine from Jupiter and 150 degree in conjunct from uh, 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 to Chiron. This, I mean, those are like the major aspects, of course. And, you know, Mercury is doing the same thing. Yeah, this is just a... This is just an old cave. There's tons of caves all over here. Let's look in there. It goes pretty far back. Maybe it's the cave of Chiron. No, I'm not in Greece anymore. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Anyway, so, yes, the moon by Sunday moves into Leo. And there conjuncts Venus, who just started going direct. And what else is there, you know? Uh, Mercury is still retrograde until September 5th. So 
We're dealing with everything retrograde except for Venus and Mars. Yeah. So let me look at the camera, talk to you about this a little bit. And yeah, that's it. All right, everybody. I get so caught up in the beauty of nature and hiking around here and wanting to swim around here <laughs> that I forget what I'm going to say on the Pele report. <laughs> but no, no, I know what I want to talk about. I want to talk about healing. I want to talk about healing because why? The sun, you know, Mercury conjunction is in Virgo. Mercury is retrograde in Virgo, the sign of health and healing. In conjunction, Chiron, the planet of the wounded healer. In trying to Jupiter and Taurus, we've got Uranus, Jupiter, Sun, Mercury, Pluto, okay, all in Earth signs. And this Earth is saying, slow down. And all these retrograde planets are saying, retreat, slow down. Saturn and Neptune and Pisces are saying, let go, slow down. There is a time, and that's what this mantra is about. There's a time to inhale and a time to exhale. A time for yin and a time for yang. A time for doing and a time for being. A time for acting and a time for reflecting, remembering, reorganizing, retreating. And this is one of those times. The moon is, again, she's got her third quarter square today, and then she's going to be waning, 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 going into that final third quarter phase, into the balsamic phase. So there's, there is just a lot, and there's a lot of healing to do. Let's really consider this. This Venus retrograde descending down into the underworld for 40 days since July 22nd or 23rd or, I mean, it's, it has been this journey down inward to the heart, to the underworld of relationship, of love, of our values, of our ability to love and accept ourselves and to open to vulnerable, intimate connection and relationship with another. Now Mars has moved into Libra, that sign of relationship and partnership. And so when I look at all these aspects put together, and we think back to, okay, April when they were conjunct, now they're coming around for this. What is that in conjunct aspect? It is a health aspect. So this can be a time when you are not really feeling 100%. And what's the call? Well, the sun trying Jupiter and Taurus to say, listen to your body. Your body is your teacher. Your body connects you. It is the temple of spirit and 
Yeah. And not so much fiery intuition. Okay, Sagittarius, Jupiterian, fiery, but Jupiter is in Earth. So the gut, the belly, this inner feminine, Earth water intuition. And, and, and really bringing these two together. I want to read to you, uh, this Sabian symbol for the Sun Mercury conjunction because it has to do with power and it also has to do with spirituality, which I want to talk about a little bit. Just what the heck that is. <laughs> what that means. I think it means some different things to different people. So you've got this Sun Mercury conjunction happening at the 14th degree of Virgo, an aristocratic family tree, a deep reliance upon the ancestral roots of individual character. Stressed here is the fact that the power available to anyone in a time of crisis and decision has very deep roots in the past. Outlined by a series of previous, whether the past of physical ancestry, you know, like your DNA or your childhood conditioning or something like that, or the past outlined by a series of previous embodiments as incarnations, um, conditioned by some dominant purpose and by the many phased development of a particular type complex character. True spontaneity and creativity are always based on a structured sequence of antecedents if they are at all genuinely spiritual. I.e., and here's his definition of spiritual, if they are able to meet a collective need Only actions that are necessary, even if only in the long run, for meeting such a need can actually be called spiritual. Yeah? So, stop over here for a second. <laughs> yeah. So, at this stage, yeah, as it may seem to many people, suggests a technique which at critical times must be used. It characterizes the means for true success. One returns to the roots in order for, to produce the flowering of the personality. If this flower is to bring forth a living seed, root power is essential to seed achievement. So there's a big spiritual movement these days. <laughs> and moving spirit. And what is this spirit? It's just like, I mean, I, I think of, you know, Saturn and Pisces. And, you know, Pisces is a sign of spirit and divine intelligence. And, you know, this whole thing that is egoless and selfless and this is spiritual. And it does have to do. There is a certain polarity that we'll say between Yes, you know, spiritual and personal. It's it's this again. It can be the inhale 
okay, you know, to this personal world where we go down into the feminine, into our roots, into our individuality, into our past lives or our ancestral roots, okay, and then, you know, out of that, you know, we spring and our we take that sea power and we flourish and we blossom and we give something to the collective. We give something, we participate in the greater whole. So Virgo is this sign where we are, it's a sign of initiation from Leo self into Libra and beyond, which is partnership, relationship, a greater whole, society, the cosmos, so we're in this time period now, and this is, you know, integration. Healing is integration. You integrate your chakras. You integrate, you know, your spirit, mind, emotions, and your body will be healthy. And when your body is not healthy, it signals there's something out of alignment with the emotional or the mental or the psychic, spiritual. Yeah? So there, this is all this Virgo. It's about healing is integrating. Integrating ourselves brings personal health. And integrating into society, integrating into the whole, is service. It's work. Yeah? It's our job. I mean, what we're giving, what we are serving, what we are really bringing forward. So we're at, it's almost like I feel like we're at this time period right now where it's almost as if this, you know, this Venus retrograde, you know, is, is just like, and then she stations, okay, sits still, is about to go forward, is about to rise in the eastern sky with that Martian Aries energy of the warrior goddess. And we're in these final, yeah, these final couple weeks of the sun moving through Virgo, in preparation for really coming out. So it's time to go in. It's time to tap in and understand and feel intuitively when to act and when to be still. I know when I was a a Waldorf school teacher, Rudolf Steiner said that education is just teaching the children how to breathe. (laughs) That's all you're doing as a teacher, (laughs) is teaching the kids how to breathe. Yeah? How to inhale and how to exhale. Right? How to take in, and, and, and this is what the mantra is about today. Okay? Right? It's just not, you know, it's learning when, how... And why? We've got three things going on here. So the timing is one thing. Okay. You know, and I feel like right now we're in this place of the suspend your breath, you know, at the end of your pranayama, you know, root lock, mula bond, suspend the breath, you know, raise that kundalini up and, you know, like, Go into that space. I've often felt like, you know what? When you're not breathing, you can't be thinking. One way to stop your thinking is to stop breathing for a little while. 
and it really clears your mind. <laughs> it's one of my techniques. It's like, okay, if I want to stop thinking, just and you go into the zone, <laughs> and. and and so I feel like this is, you know, this stationary Venus at her same degree, okay, for, you know, like I said last week, you know, she's at that 15th degree for a while, you know, well, she's going to square Jupiter for a while. And so it's almost like, okay, feel, tap in, take this time because... Things are going to change. Mercury's going to go direct. Venus is direct. They're all, you know, uh, you know, Sun, Mer- Mercury, Venus are all going to bop out of Virgo into Libra. I mean, this is like, so this is the time to retreat. And with Chiron, let's look at this Chiron. What does Chiron and Chiron in Aries? This has a whole thing to do, okay, with Chiron is your soul path, the soul journey. Our are your actions, are your Martian actions reflective of your soul's intentions? So, you know, Chiron and Aries, sun aspecting Chiron. The sun is my creative force, my vital life energy, besides not having very much these days. <laughs> when it's in conjunct Chiron, okay, you know. Because Chiron wants us to reflect on, are we on track? Are we truly creating the spiritual life that we sought when we incarnated? So this is time to retreat, go within, do your retrogrades. Am I on track? Is this really what I want to be creating? Is this really where I want to be going? Is this my, you know... It's my chosen path. Is my chosen path in alignment with my soul's intention? This is the ultimate healing of Chiron and Aries that we are all going through collectively. So it's just um, that's you know so that's the when okay and how 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 to do this you know. Like I say, a lot of times Chiron is a health crisis where you just get laid up in a hospital bed or you get laid up with COVID at home or you get laid up. I mean, you just, you know, or you run out of money or you run out of gas or you run out of food or you just run out of you just run out of things. And and it becomes a situation where you are stuck. You're stuck. You missed your flight. You're stuck. <laughs> you missed your boat. <laughs> You crashed your car or whatever, but this is just where, oh, and especially like with Mercury retrograde, oh, I suggest you get somewhere and chill. I'm going on retreat. Yeah, next week it's going to be awesome. Uh, and be in some teepees by the lake and just retreat. I got and then after that, the Bahamas, swimming with the dolphins. It's retreat. Water, earth, Massage, you know, inner journeys, rituals, inner ceremony, candles, incense, you know, altars, just like spending time in nature. This is the how. And then the why. (laughs) There's the big one. (laughs) 
When, how, and why, okay? Well, the why is going to be different for different people. Yeah? Oh, my God. We are never out, very far outside the matrix. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, the why is different for different people. We, you know, you've got this in your, it could be aspecting different planets in your personal chart. Can be in a different house, okay, 12 different houses, 12 different people, depending on how old you are. It can be your Chiron square, your Chiron opposition, your Chiron return around age 51. This, so there can be a whole lot that's very, the, so you do the when and you do the how and then you go inward to find out the why. Yeah. So the mantra for this week. Yeah. There's a time to advance and a time to retreat like the waves upon the sea on the shore. Did you see the, yeah, I, I captured a little bit at the, uh, what do I call that? The prologue, the, the beginning got 14 seconds of kaboosh. <laughs> Those waves were advancing and retreating pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll start over. <laughs> There's a time to advance and a time to retreat like waves upon the shore. Learning when, how, and why is what I came here for. We're in the school of planet Earth, folks. Okay. We're infinite spiritual beings. We're having these earthly experiences. And it is about just really coming more and more into self-awareness, self-discovery. That's what evolution is. That's what it is about. And it's got to keep on going. Every experience is uh, bringing you closer to your home. I'm getting closer to my home. Do, 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 do. <laughs> There's our song for this week. Whoosh. <laughs> I was wondering what that was going to be. I, I, uh, over at the beach, I heard Hallelujah. Uh, you know, Leonard Cohen's uh, Hallelujah. I thought that might be it, but I like this one. I'm getting closer to my home. I forget who did it, but I will find it. And, of course, I put the link for that uh, below in the, in the YouTube notes. You hit see more, and you got all the links for my newsletter, for my school, for my workshops coming up, for my Spotify channel, where I've got all my songs from the Pele Report. Where I, and What else have I got? I mean, I got, geez, Louise, I'm all over the freaking place, man. So... Yeah, I write more in those notes, anything that I forgot to say. And then in the newsletter, I write more on top of that. You should sign up for the newsletter to get the whole shot. And I hope to see you in the Bahamas. I'm also coming to Florida. You can't make it out to see the dolphins and you want to really get into the deep stuff of Scorpio, Pluto, and the eighth house. And do some taboo tantra shadow work with myself and Brandy Joy. Uh, come on down to Florida. Yeah, uh, that one we uh, there's there's only a couple of weeks left uh, for uh, registration on that one. Be good to jump on it. And uh, there's a sale going on for the Bahamas um, that is this week. Wild Quest. 
when invited me over there is having a sail, so we could save a little bit if you want to come swim with the dolphins. Anyway, yeah, no matter where you are, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, I hope that you breathe, you're aware of your breath, you relax that breath, you let go and surrender to what is, letting go of the stress that causes so many physical emotional and mental problems. I think stress is the number one cause of all like disease, death, problems. I think they've nailed it all down to stress. And in some ways, the sun trying Jupiter is what? Faith and hope. If there's a way to deal with stress... It's just to have faith. Hope for the best. Go for the best and believe that whatever happens is for the best. This is Jupiter. I, it's just like, talk about the left hand path, accepting what is. It may even be painful, but I know this is for, something good is going to come out of this, even if it hurts. <laughs> ah, yeah, I mean, it's really great. So, and this goes pretty much for the whole week. I mean, the exact trine, you know, is Friday, but you're feeling it today. And it's going to build stronger and it's going to last all through the weekend. So have a good weekend. Go on a quest. Jupiter is foreign lands, foreign journeys, travel, get out of town, go climb a mountain, go ride a horse, whatever. Ow! Yeah, baby. One more time. (laughs) There's a time to advance and a time to retreat, like the waves upon the shore. Learning when, how, and why is what I came here for. So frickin' do it. Do your homework. Namaste. Aloha. So much love.
that. Uh, what else? Yeah. This uh, coming up this week here. Uh, sun, Sun trying Jupiter and Uranus, which I think he just mentioned. That's that's the the big help if Jupiter and Uranus are your friend. And uh, Mars will be closer to a sextile with Venus, and that'll be that'll be a little social. There may be some inclination to uh, gather with Venus sextile Mars and Leo and Libra. So that's kind of an okay thing for Thursday, even though it'll be the dark, dark night of the month. And uh, that's about it. And, of course, not much difference when we get to next Saturday, because that'll just be two days later. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, just two days later, the moon will be up there near Scorpio. So uh, that's it. That's all, that's all the news that's fit to talk about because the rest of the news ain't <laughs> worth crap. I understand. I, heard I, am, I am so tired of liars yeah. and deceivers. Whew. Yeah. There's yeah. a solar eclipse, I think, that's coming up. Uh, what? Solar eclipse? Solar eclipse. Uh, let's see. Is that, like, soon? I thought... Mm, it could be... It's... Let's see. Well, it's kind of kind of close on Thursday. They'll, the sun and the moon will be, well, they'll be more than two degrees apart, so maybe, maybe, uh, maybe this, I, I'm guilty of forgetting the difference between a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse. Which one's on the new moon, which one's on a full moon? <laughs> I think but a anyway, solar eclipse. Okay. Well, it won't be it won't be exact at my location because at my location they'll be they'll be two to two and a half degrees apart. So it uh, that's uh, that's the way that is. And, uh, anyway, all right then. <sighs> what? Uh, here we go. All right, let's see what then yeah, maybe Tanya talk about this new moon. Mm-hmm. All right. Gabrielle Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an upcoming event 
both from the astrology and numerology perspective. And this gives us a beautiful heads up in terms of the codes and the meaning of the planetary event. And in this case, it is the Virgo new moon. It's very exciting, this new moon, because of a sacred geometric shape that is formed by five planets. So I'm thrilled about that. Now it happens on September 15th, Universal Time at 2.40 a.m. That's in London. But in the Americas, it happens September 14th, 9.40 p.m. Eastern Time and 6.40 p.m. Pacific Time. So we have two dates, actually. The 15th expresses the spiritual alchemist, which is such a beautiful number. And the 14th of September adds up to 21. 9, 14, 20, 23 adds up to 21. And that's actually quite significant because this new moon happens at 21 degrees Virgo, where the sun and moon will be. And not only that, Mercury stations direct, and Mercury is the ruler of Virgo, so ruler of this new moon. Mercury stations direct at 4.21 p.m. Eastern time, and so 21 past the hour, that's 1.21 p.m. Eastern time and 9.21 p.m. Universal time on September 15th. So not only is the new moon Universal time on the 15th and Mercury, the ruler, moving direct at 21 past the hour, but on the 14th, the universal date is 21, and this new moon's at 21 degrees. So why is 21 so important? Well, we're in the 21st century, and 21 happens to be the description of these 100 years that we are living in, and it is the number of the truth shall set you free. So all 100 years is literally about being set free, and I'm going to touch on that subject a bit later on because of a particular planet that's helping with freedom in this case. So we have an incredible setup here between the sun and moon and Uranus and Jupiter. There's a double trine, or I should say quadruple trine, because we have four light bodies here, the sun and moon and Uranus and Jupiter, all forming trines to each other. Amazing. They're all in Earth signs. Uranus and Jupiter are currently in Taurus, and of course Virgo is the other earth sign. And then we have the third of three earth signs activated because Pluto recently retrograded back into Capricorn and is at 28 degrees Capricorn, still going retrograde. And Capricorn is, of course, the third earth sign. So we have this incredible grand trine, which you can see it is marked in green. It looks like a green triangle and the planets are marked so you can see all five being engaged and this is really really fortunate it's magnificent breakthrough energy breakthrough because of uranus it's inspiring energy it governs fortunate outcomes jupiter it really lets us look at our beliefs and decide which ones we want to activate jupiter rules beliefs as well and faith there's excitement there's enthusiasm there's transformation especially regarding new projects and implementing fresh starts because it's a new moon. Now, there's also an opposition from the sun and moon to Neptune, which is important because 
Neptune is in its own sign of Pisces, and we just had the Pisces full moon at the end of August. The seeds are being planted, and we're able to transmute and literally grow from what Pisces and Virgo are bringing to us. They are mutable signs. They tend to bring change. They tend to really show us that there's growth to do, listening to do, intuiting to do. And, of course, Virgo is all about health, healing, the bounty of Earth, being grounded, being meticulous, doing research. This is a wonderful sign for discovering the gifts of the planet Earth, the crystals, the flowers and nature, the aroma, the essential oils, everything that is coming from Earth is blessed by the sign of Virgo. And Virgo also is all about editing and making sure things run smoothly and efficiently. And because of the connection to health, it governs herbs and tinctures and acupuncture and acupressure and reflexology and any kind of body work and everything that you're putting into your body, the food you eat, the the water you drink, the air you're breathing. So Virgo really is about that growth cycle and mastering self-awareness. So self-growth and self-awareness are big. You're really being called to be of greater service as a result of becoming more aware of the things in your life that are helping you see more clearly. So this is all about welcoming journeys of self-discovery. Also, Virgo, because it's an earth sign, just like Taurus and Capricorn, it governs your actual physical environment. So cleansing your environment, doing a feng shui of your home, your office, your kitchen, your closets is a good idea. Clearing your headspace, you know, Mercury being the ruler of Virgo and currently still being in retrograde during the last hours of its retrograde during this new moon, literally hours later at stations direct, but it is at a standstill and Mercury means the, the way you think, the thoughts. And so not only clearing your environment, but clearing that space as well. Physical exercise is also governed because of the diet and the healthy habits and being helpful, being kind, being available, having a lot of discernment and focus. And one thing to focus with with Virgo and to watch for is perfection. Virgos can be perfectionists. So yes, it's good to have everything in its place and having order, being organized. But when you get into the worrying about things or being a workaholic due to the perfectionistic attitude, being critical, that those are the shadow side of Virgo. And we have to be aware of the shadow side of every number and every sign and every planet because that's how we learn. That's how we grow. So watch for those. Now, Virgo likes to bring order out of chaos. It likes to see how the pieces fit together and create healing. And so if you're wondering in the times that we're living in, especially in the 2020s, where everything is changing and seems topsy-turvy and even upside down, what is happening, what it means, Virgo's 
qualities of moral integrity and responsibility and reliability and being of service come into play because truly we are living in times where we are being called to be spiritual pioneers. And remember that Neptune is opposite this Virgo new moon and Neptune is all about spirituality and being in touch with the more galactic part of our consciousness. So we are being called to be spiritual pioneers, opening up new territories, and those territories govern a massive shift in perception. Truly, that is the main shift that's going on, is our perception of what is happening and adjusting that and broadening it. The the main discovery is taking what we're experiencing learning from it, and then our ability to shift our perception about it. So everything that may feel absurd or unprecedented during these times is happening for a reason. We are in the midst of shifting from a very rigid, linear, restricted, controlled way of living. And so expressing ourselves into an opening of our perception, a widening of our perception, will then allow us to function at a higher level and in much greater and powerful ways. So this is very important to understand how powerful you truly are. And at the same time, Virgo, because Virgo is a sign of being in service, governs kindness and innocence and humility and respect and reverence, the reverence of earth, for example, and the purpose for living. Those are always available to us in order to expand and they must be part of the empowerment process so the empowerment doesn't turn into an ego trip. So we are being tested now to shift our perceptions and Virgo is really the perfect sign to remind us that thought creates. Virgo is meticulous, it's ruled by Mercury, the mind, and thought creates, we create our own reality. And the way we experience this is that what we create is always mirrored back to us. So reality is actually a mirror of what it is that we already created. So anything that we decide to create, to work on, to believe in, that is how we empower ourselves. We have the power to create on infinite levels. And so just remember that this power ends where fear begins. That is a saying. I don't know where it's from, but it's very important to understand when fear starts creeping in and you start to be concerned about things, that's when power is lost. So our challenge now is to be free from that sense of foreboding and fear and instead just see that everything that's happening, no matter how crazy it feels, how absurd it feels and unprecedented it feels, that we need to experience it because It is mirroring back to us what we need to see. And then we understand that we can create anything, that reality is truly a mirror. And so once you decide you can create anything, you will create it. 
So our challenge then is to gain that freedom, to gain that freedom to know that we are that powerful. And Uranus, I mentioned earlier, there's a planet helping and Uranus being trying to this new moon with Jupiter at his or its size. (laughs) Um, Uranus and Jupiter together are extremely lucky. And so this is happening in Taurus and it's trying to this Virgo new moon. So this is truly the invitation to take freedom seriously, to gain back your sense of freedom and fearlessness. And then having the trying to Pluto in Capricorn, Capricorn really being the sign of the patriarchy, of, of building things that last, of careers, of public recognition. Capricorn is being transformed and has been transformed by Pluto since 2008. And this is Pluto's last sojourn until November of next year, Pluto's still going back and forth between Aquarius and Capricorn, but this is really a big moment for Pluto to be in this grand trine, Earth trine, with this new moon and with Uranus and Jupiter. So Pluto and Capricorn is totally rebirthing, transforming, destroying and rebuilding the structures that we have relied upon for so long. And so Pluto is helping us regain that freedom through that process. And Jupiter is reminding us, Jupiter, the biggest planet in our solar system, that there's always a bigger picture and that things are not always as they seem. Just like Neptune, Neptune in Pisces opposite this new moon, things are not always as they seem. There can be illusion and delusion and we have to have the clarity of mind to be open to see that. So we're shifting our perspective from linear living into multidimensional expression. And that's not always easy, right? We're used to linear. We're used to going from A to B and not considering a whole palette of colors that are alive around that road from A to B. So Virgo, the sign of health and healing, reminds us to keep our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual bodies tuned so that they are in flow, so that they are in harmony. And the opposition to Neptune means that the truth, 21, is often hidden behind a veil. It's not always clear. So Neptune gives us the intuition to see if something is a certain way when actually it is not. We can see that through our intuition. We can see the truth. So another thing to remember, because September in 2023 is a 16 universal month, 16 also governs sudden big surprises that are only navigable through your intuition, if that is a word. (laughs) Uh, So you need to tune into your heart-centered space. This will be very important to not get into that place where you are in the illusion or wishful thinking, right? And Neptune is about sleeping more as well, taking a time out and listening to something beautiful, looking at something beautiful, creating something beautiful. And the same time, Mercury, the ruler of the Virgo new moon is is retrograde. So we need to really pay close attention to what's happening within, to our spiritual nature, to get out in nature. Remember, this is an earth sign. This is very important to be in touch with nature. And by doing so, really listening to our inner voice. This is all calling you in a big way 
So looking at your creativity is important, your imagination. They need to have a bigger role in your life for this perception to shift, to become bigger, right? So one more thing on the 15th, of course, you know, Mercury is stationing direct and it is an important day because that is when the Virgo new moon is exact universal time. 15 is the spiritual alchemist. So the magic is there. And because the sun and moon are also trying to Uranus, they're really a degree apart for this trine. So it's a very close trine. This is a wonderful moment of being able to change, to shift, to reform. Uranus is all about the future and discoveries. Mercury stationing direct is bringing a new cycle. Remember, Venus stationed direct on September 3rd and 4th. So this is very important to just go with the flow at this time. And the new moon is a new cycle. And Uranus conjunct Jupiter is lovely as well. So you feel optimistic. You feel like you can create successful outcomes now. This is very important to have these beautiful planets, Jupiter and Uranus, in a conjunction. It will continue, even though they will drift apart. They'll both be in Taurus uh, for the better part of a year. And so even going into the spring of 2024, we're going to, again, experience these conjunctions between Jupiter and Uranus. So it's a, it's really the initial activation of that conjunction, this Virgo new moon. So it's a birthing of it. And again, it's lucky break. So really focus on that. There's a lot of higher learning with Jupiter as well. There's a lot of abundance with Jupiter. So higher learning about abundance and that it is plentiful and that it is truly you create your reality, right? So. We love everything about this new moon and every, all the planets that are activated, all the signs that are activated. There's somewhere in your chart where this is going to be creating some blessings for you, whether it's water signs that your planets are in or earth signs, and that's six signs altogether. So there's something being activated in a beautiful way for you. And to discover more about your own blueprint, including your numerology, your destiny, your purpose, Go to starcodeclass.com and you'll even have your astrology chart looked at when we go through that masterclass. It's free, it's fun, you get a handout, and basically you get to know your numerology and astrology codes. And you get to not only understand yourself better, but understand the people in your life more as well. So enjoy that free masterclass at starcodeclass.com. And I wish you a beautiful Virgo new moon. Lots of you. say he was going to read a Sabian symbol and then he didn't? 
Yeah, I thought I heard that. So, what? Yeah, he said he was going to read it a little later, and he never got to it. He just left it go. Right. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder which one he was going to... Yeah, because then you could read it, Richard. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to read 22 Virgo. That's where the new moon is. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah, okay. It says here, this is from the Astrological Mandala by Dane Rudyar. 22 Virgo, a royal coat of arms enriched with precious stones. Keynote, the certification, the certification of aristocratic status at whatever level nobility, in quotes, nobility expresses itself in cultural eminence. Once more, a reference to ancestral achievements occurs among these symbols for the sign Virgo. It is seen here in its most exalted character, for royalty is spoken of. Traditionally, the king is the spiritual symbol of unity of an integrated nation. As a coat of arms is visualized, we are dealing with a status that is not merely personally acquired, but has its roots in a notable past. Every great adept has come out of a line of human beings who have made their marks upon human evolution. Spiritual attainment is the result of a series of long, repeated efforts. It is the end of a royal road. In parenthesis, Raja Yoga. Mm-hmm. Yes. The term Raja meaning king. Yeah. This symbol contrasts with that of the first, and then it refers to heredity rather than to the training of useful raw material. Gautama the Buddha was known occultly as he who comes after his predecessors. The coat of arms represents the collective status, the spiritual office. Whoever wears it assumes the responsibility of an office. As the French say, noblesse oblige. Mm. Nobility confers upon a man exacting responsibility. The question implied in the symbol is, are you willing, able, and ready to assume a royal office? 
at whatever level it may be. So that's that's the Sabian symbol for 22 Virgo. And the other thing I think is interesting would be, uh, let's see, from tonight, let's see, 9-9, hit go, and uh, we've got, yeah, we've got that Venus stationary at 13 Leo. I'm curious about that one. Mm-hmm. 13 Leo. We got... Now, I guess we can squeeze it in here, can't we? we squeeze in a couple more minutes. 13, 13 Leo, an old sea captain rocking himself on the porch of his cottage. Mm-hmm. The quieted mind's recollection of crises and joys long past. Oh, uh, yeah. The sea captain has steered the ship of his ego consciousness through seas and storms, maintaining the integrity of his individual selfhood while in close contact with the collective unconscious. Now retired, he may try to distill wisdom from his many experiences and from his victories over elemental forces. The swing of the child consciousness has now become a rocking chair from which one can contemplate past as well as present scenes, gently moving as waves roll over the shore. Mm -hmm. Peace at last. Well, I'm retired, but I don't got the peace at last. <laughs> true, true, true. It's coming, though, Richard. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Namaste. Have a good week, everybody. Namaste. Thank you so much, Richard. So, till we meet again. All right, everybody. It's time to go to the uh, conference call. Rama, what's the phone number? Uh, 720. Seven one six seven three zero one, and the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. <laughs> okay, one more time, honey. Um, seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one. And the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. Thank you, everybody, for your listening ears, and we'll have a little chat for about an hour together, and we'll be right back here at BBS Radio, best radio in the neighborhood, <laughs> any neighborhood. Um, so for now, Satnam, and we'll see you on the conference call, everyone. Namaste.
Welcome back, everyone. That was beautiful, Rama. Mm. All right, we're going to finish Michaela with Ethan. This is about half an hour, and then we'll, we'll go on from there. Okay, here we go. Here we go, everyone. Um, this is not something that is easy for us to relay, but it still holds true today that you are co-conspiring and a participant within every collective event. Uh, nothing can be done upon you unless you are somehow agreeing to it or giving permission to it. But what has happened through time is that permission has been given very unconsciously. And we might say that is a connection between the reptilians and the dense environment that they so desire is they are attempting to put humans in such a, a fog or a cloud of density that they are receiving agreement subconsciously to do the things that they set out to do. So in ancient times, just by the worship of the human beings of these reptilian gods, as an example, they were contributing the energy that these dragons or reptilian gods were then using to control them or even destroy an entire city. If the humans didn't uh, cooperate with that energy exchange, would it, have been, would it have been possible for them to have the power to do that? We believe it would have been much harder uh, to do that. And not to say that these beings did not have the power of alchemy and elemental fire within them, but it is a physical reality in which the energy of every soul is a contribution. And that means the awakening of consciousness is able to slow, stall, or weaken the energetic acts of anything that is attempting to destroy it. Now, there, there's a lot of um, reptilian or dragon kind of um, mythology in uh, in Mexico, South America, for example, with the Mayans, with Kukulkan, who is depicted as a or as a feathered serpent, um, some sort of a fiery reptilian with feathers, which appears to be a dragon, at least from the descriptions we see in mythology. Was this a dragon of some sort? Well, it is not unusual to see some of the ancient native uh, cultures uh, adapting to the teachings of these various gods or reptilians because, remember, they were elemental beings and the natives were living so close in connection to nature and the earth that they were attempting to understand it better some of these tribes were gaining very beneficial information, for example, about how to alchemize through collective and tribal ceremony um, a shift in the energies. And this is where the very idea of, of a rain dance comes in. Others were perhaps led astray uh, in their abilities and understanding of their own power, where they may have adopted more to um, the idea of a god or a single power that lied beyond them. Okay, speaking specifically of Kukul Khan as an example, 
was this so you're saying an elemental being so did he incarnate in physical form with the human beings of that time or was this simply an astral or etheric experience that they were having he was a shapeshifter so at times he would appear as if in physical form while also able to transcend that form into light and was Kukul Khan a benevolent reptilian being or malevolent? Well, there were many benefits that this being offered the the Mayan tribes, and much of this is seen in what we would call their technologies, which also are known as various structures that were built uh, close to the earth and with earthly elements. At the same time, there was an exchange of power uh, that was going on where there was some praying to this God and and lowering of frequency of those on the earth. So very much like today, um, some of you are following within your own lives those who appear as gods or teachers. And it isn't necessarily that they are giving you information that is wrong uh, or bad, but when it is given, it is accepted as law. And, and in so doing limits a soul's ability to be able to retrieve their own uh, information and, and achieve their own level of mastery and to assume these powers within themselves. So, so we might say the Mayan culture was very much like that in that they were reaping the benefits of a great teacher. And some of those benefits came to fruition and, and have been left behind, seen and used by others. Well, at the same time, this culture, civilization could have assumed a higher level of consciousness. Um, they could have evolved far greater if not giving their power up to a single being. And the, the pyramids that were built in South America, Mexico, that uh, general area, have a similar structure to Egyptian pyramids, but but definitely different. Were were these built by these reptilian beings such as Kukul Khan, um, or were these also constructed by Thoth, as we discussed before, he built pyramids around the world? The architecture or the schematic of these uh, were uh, created by the god that you speak of, yet those that were present on the earth as Mayans uh, physically contributed to the construction of these pyramids. And there was a great consideration for the underground chambers, waterways, and tunnels that we've been alluding to throughout this channeling, um, connecting very specific power points to areas of these structures such that individuals could enter and be transformed. Now, Thoth, as an intergalactic being, also had input into some of these structures. Yet, what you're seeing in Egypt and how those came together are very completely different in their construction. Um, and, and this has more to do, again, with the dimension in, in which these civilizations existed in, as well as the presence of certain cosmic families and light beings who were assisting. Think of the Mexican or even the Mayan pyramids, for example, um, as being more earthly in their construction, um, not that the construction was not 
seen uh, through astral vision or uh, contemplated through the architecture of a higher dimensional being, but truly put into place uh, through the efforts and even sometimes the magic of those who are practicing in spiritual ways. Uh, where in Egypt, uh, the, the light ships truly took a more lead role in the construction of many of these um, um, sites. Okay, so the similarity, if I'm understanding correctly, between the two different sites, Egypt and, and South America, um, is that they both, uh, they didn't physically create them in the sense that they, as scientists or archaeologists or people believe today, is that um, slave labor was used to hand chisel these um, blocks of stone and carry them up a ramp to put them in place. So that that was not how it was done in either case. Based on what you're saying, you're saying that they were created vibrationally, but the difference is that in Egypt they used light ships in South America or the the Mayan civilization. They used some sort of vibrational um, frequency energy of the gods themselves. Even sound technology, we might say. Sound technology generated from these reptilian beings or technology of some sort? Actual physical technology. Um, here is the similarity, and, and perhaps this will be helpful. Well, those who consider that each stone was cut and placed uh, have a limitation in terms of the timeline and capability. We have to look at the various materials that were being used. These materials were electromagnetic and vibrational in their quality. And because of this, those who are very adept at alchemizing material were able to use forms of light, for example, uh, injections of plasma or sound to vibrate through templates a certain form and to let all the rest of the material that was not necessarily needed fall away. And this is why the area around these pyramids and even beneath is so magical and still sustains a certain field uh, or quality because it is not just the structure itself that is important, but all of the materials that were touched by the sound or the light that, that still hold the energy. And that's why it matters not whether a pyramid is destructed uh, or whether it still stands. Uh, the alchemy and the energy that was put into it will forever remain. And in regards to um, master architects like those, for example, you must keep in mind that pyramids, all pyramids on planet Earth are a collective or a family. They are designed to be interconnected, both beneath the earth through the ley lines, as well as within their orientation to the cosmos. This was a very purposeful design in order to activate important portals or areas for healing, for example, or even entry or runways for uh, various light ships or plasma ships to arrive. So, so, there is a commonality 
uh, and asymmetry to all of these various manifestations that you call pyramids, while each of them were architected at the time slightly differently. So even though Thoth wasn't involved in the construction uh, directly of the South American pyramids, they all essentially serve the same purpose, Egyptian and South American, other ones around the world are all part of the same grid then? They each have a unique individual purpose that is slightly different than another, yet together as one, they are creating and holding a field. So, so it is, yes, uh, true what you are saying that they are all meant to be connected and are strategically located in specific areas to benefit the whole of the earth while at the same time taking on very unique characteristics that um, apply to what the people of those times purposely required or what masters like those understood would be needed in the future. Now, you said, if I remember correctly, that Kulukan was a benevolent um, god, correct? Yes, for the most part. Okay. And so let me explore that idea a little further. When you say for the most part, a lot of ancient reptilian gods appear to have been a little bit of both. And this is also true for the Anunnaki, of course, but but in the sense that these were gods who wanted to be worshipped. They wanted people to uh, to follow them, um, and and they also fought wars and they also destroyed uh, and and villages and people and things like that. So they, when people did not or human beings rather did not worship them or give them their energy, they often became violent. So is that what you mean by, for the most part? It it is what we are alluding to, um, yet each individual God being different in in its intention. Um, For example, they came to teach others in the ways of what they knew because they were attempting to actually modify the earth to their liking. So so there was a give and a take and certainly an exchange of energy that was going on that may have been perceived as benevolent by those receiving it. For example, many of the ancient tribes that we have spoken about may have benefited greatly from some of the teachings uh, that were bestowed upon them uh, by these beings, while at the same time, giving up the balance of their own power in order to receive them. And yes, certainly there were some who were very angry gods that when not receiving what was necessary to sustain them may have created fear in order to continue to um, receive what was necessary to empower them. And this is, again, ultimately because they were weakened as they came here as reptilians. And that is always going to be at the core and foundation of these various stories. Um, even though these gods may be seen in, in all of their glory and, and in all of their power throughout history, ultimately the underlying factor was the fear that their genome would not continue on or somehow they would be diminished in their structure such that they could not thrive 
on the physical earth. So the constant receival uh, or generation of life force and power uh, has been the, the common thread or theme that has been very important uh, to these reptilians. And, and when it is not present, um, uh, creates a different form of consciousness within the being itself. Now, in in more current times, more modern times, the uh, uh, the Aztecs actually took over much of the pyramids and the land that was left behind by the Mayans. Was what what happened to the Mayans and uh, that caused the Aztecs to take over that area? Many of the Mayans, while they were somewhat hybrid themselves, uh, were led a Uh, from their origins and their ancestry, uh, meaning they were leading false gods who were very unlike themselves and attempting to become something that they were not. Um, it's, it's similar to today um, in your modern day society where the ego is led astray within a human to believe that they are something they are not. And then they begin acting out of that ego and not living the fullness of their organic truth or divine plan. Ultimately, it may not lead to their physical demise, but if an entire collective or family is focused on in this way, Ultimately, generations beyond it will not live or thrive. And that is what happened. Um, remember, genetic manipulation was very much alive uh, in the past, even though it took different forms than it does today, uh, meaning those in power were attempting to remain in power by wiping out the ones who had awakened or had somehow seen through the illusion that they must pray to a God that was no greater in power than themselves. So the Mayan collective, it did not continue on simply because uh, those that were procreating uh, in that civilization had been led astray to believe that that procreation was not coming from the purest of place. In addition to this, um, there was a small cataclysm uh, within this collective, more having to do with inner earth frequencies than something coming from off planet. Um, we've talked about genetic manipulation in many different uh, formats, especially in today's world as your food supply, for example, has been injected with things that are not healthy for you. Uh, this has taken place in civilizations like the Mayans in frequency-based forms. So combination, we'll say, of many things that led to the Mayan demise. And so the the Aztecs evolved out of the Mayans, or was it an entirely different race that later entered that area and took over that area? We see the Aztecs as being uh, original nomads, not necessarily genetically related to the Mayans, although you must consider that in close proximity geographically, there would be some crossover here. Were the Mayans Caucasian or were they similar in 
genetic appearance to the Aztecs. Very similar, we would say, in genetic appearance to the Aztecs. Now, the Aztecs worshipped the god Quetzalcoatl, which also was a feathered serpent. Now, is, was this an entirely different feathered serpent, dragon type of god, or is it the same one as Kukulkan? Same manifestation of the god previously taking on a different form. And did so did Kukulkan continue into the Aztec civilization in some physical form, or was this also an astral interaction? Well, remember, this is a hybrid being who is capable of shape-shifting. And so there were many times when the Aztec collective were interacting as one in a physical way with this being, while other times leaders of the tribe uh, or... Um, Councils, for example, were taking ceremonial astral journeys uh, in order to interact. It seems to be, this is more prevalent, it appears, although we don't have a lot of records of the Mayans and Aztecs, but that the Aztecs um, participated in various um, sacrificial rituals of human beings uh, among their tribes. Uh, to their gods. What was is that the was that the same as we're referring to earlier? The gods thrived on this energy from not necessarily sacrifice itself, but the act of um, committing your energy as a an entire race of beings that the Aztecs were to that particular god. It, it is always the energy, and and it is assumed that the sacrifice is being made of one person. Yet the greatest sacrifice is being made by all of those who participate in the ceremony. So it is a, a massive and collective energy that is being siphoned. Another interesting thing I find is from an architectural standpoint, the, a lot of these sacrifices were held on, um, uh, on the tops of pyramid structures that had um, a small building or room at the top that Looks very similar to what I hear, what I see depicted in biblical texts as a tabernacle building where there's a fire and smoke coming out of it. What's the significance of that? Well, it is the um, dispersion of the energy, we might say, that is the most important consideration here because the Choice of the location was primary and even the time or the period of season was also considered because if energies were ripe to expand the acts of those or the energy of the acts of those that were sacrificing, they would go well beyond the receipt of the God that the sacrifice was being made for. In fact, it may create um, a ripple effect throughout the collective of more manifestations of density or even more sacrifice in other words. So, so think of this as um, a method of channeling the energy uh, in a more efficient and collective sense, uh, whether it's done via the vibrations coming through the inner earth and into the chamber in which the sacrifice is being made, or, um, and, we'll say and, uh, in conjunction with elevated vibrations of certain star alignments. 
in any way was the the ancient god Dagon was, was that a reptilian being or a dragon being of some sort? Hybrid reptilian, yes. And um, there's some potential connection between Dagon and what became the Catholic religion today. Is that connection true? Does does Catholicism spring from a Dagonism religion? The Dagonism religion is the origins of some of the Catholic teachings, but not all. So we really want to go back to that period and talk about where the focus truly was, because not unlike many of the stories we have been accounting to uh, where a, a certain God is being prayed to or a sacrifice is being made, that this was the premise of, of these teachings. But it was done more through the religious programming or, or dogma of collective process, not necessarily a, a physical sacrifice alone, because what some began to realize is that the sacrifice was causing so much alarm that it had to be done more judiciously, or in other words, uh, in a subconscious type of way. So so beyond the Catholic religion, we actually see other religions springing off in, in similar types of forms uh, or concepts where the very idea of sacrifice or channeling energy to a god beyond the self is limiting the creative potential of the masses. There are many indigenous tribes that still exist today who tell stories of their ancestors having interacted with Dagon and that Dagon was a was a teacher and a benevolent leader of some sort. Um, is that is that true that Dagon was sort of a teacher role and maybe also had some malevolent tendencies as you early stated? Well, well, much like many of the human beings on planet Earth looked up to the Anunnaki for their knowledge and they may have been seen as benevolent beings in the teachings they were bestowing, uh, reptilians were seen very much in the same light because they were bringing such incredible concepts to the people that had never been heard before. Remember, especially in the vibrational or non-physical energetic uh, modalities, whether that be healing uh, or breath work. Uh, and because of this, these gods were trusted and, and seen as benevolent. And, and we are not making so much the distinction here between one or another. As, as we know, ultimately, there could be some good intent here where the ego begins to believe that what it is doing is for the benefit of those that it is teaching when, in fact, uh, it is actually only benefiting itself. So, so the idea of malevolence it is somewhat subjective to the one who is being malevolent because um, the intention behind it may seem very pure and maybe a motivating factor in its purpose uh, when in fact it is not actually doing good at all. So along those lines then, if, if Dagon and Dagonism as a religion was the predecessor of Catholicism, modern-day Catholicism, are the gods of the Catholic religion from ancient times reptilian then? In general, yes, but in not 
all circumstances because you are looking at the origins of the Catholic religion only coming through one individual group of individuals or timeline when in fact uh, it spans many and it has become what it is today uh, through the the blending and melding of many different historic accounts of, of what it once was. Now, when I read biblical texts uh, about things that happened in ancient times, uh, I know the Bible has been altered and modified for various reasons throughout history, but but a common thing that I find very hard to understand is the biblical God. Um, uh, now, we've spoken many times about how the one true God is a God within. And the, the, and, but in, in various spiritual and religious texts on the planet, whether it be, um, uh, Allah or whether it be Quetzalcoatl, for example, um, we always see gods who want to be worthy. They obviously are not the God within because they, uh, often, um, or in almost every case want to be worshiped. Uh, they want to be followed. They are jealous gods or they are, um, fierce gods or even gods who are very aggressive and, um, even destroy entire communities of people when they don't get what they want. And the, the biblical, uh, one true God is Yahweh. And Yahweh, from my readings of the various depictions of Yahweh, um, appears to be a very fierce, not benevolent God, benevolent to his people who follow and worship him, but not benevolent in a general sense. And and from the various descriptions, it appears to me to be a reptilian God. Is that is Yahweh a reptilian God? It is a hybrid reptilian God, and we've been alluding to this hybrid nature for this entire transmission because, remember, the original ones came and hybridized and evolved into many of the gods that you are speaking of today. Uh, the point that we want to make is that any time prime creator or the universal God that exists within every individual is given an identity, its frequency becomes diminished, meaning those that are reaching for its power are forever looking outside of themselves in order to channel it, when in fact, it is always present within every individual to the degree it is understood and realized as the self. So across the board, any time that you are contemplating a religion that has identified and named a god that appears jealous or or angry or vengeful, uh, what you are seeing is manipulation because that is a siphoning of life force and energetic currency uh, through fear. And, and that fear is something that reptilians and, and many other beings that do not have humanity's best interest in mind are attempting to constantly expand. So can we make a generalization then that Yahweh was not a benevolent God, but, but was a hybrid, more malevolent God then? Although he did do some good things. Well, what we can assume is that this God was of a reptilian consciousness. Wow. And that is another point that we should make because 
you are assuming each individual has an identity and must be connected to uh, a, a cosmic race, uh, when in fact, what has been going on throughout history is the integration of a reptilian consciousness within the minds of humanity and within those who are in power. And that consciousness is creating stories and protocols and uh, procedures that you must follow that are designed to diminish your connection to what we call God, which is actually universe running through you in all forms. Mm-hmm. And this God also demanded sacrifices as well be made to him. So this is a similar scenario to the other gods we've discussed so far today. Is that correct? It is correct. Yes. No, we'll, we'll come back to this idea in future conversations in more detail. But in the biblical stories, as well as the Anunnaki stories, at the time of the, the great flood, it appears that as we've discussed in previous conversations, Enlil uh, and, uh, and the Anunnaki group in a manner of speaking, um, partly through their actions and partly due to these, this nuclear event that occurred on Nibiru, uh, initiated the, the great flood. And in the biblical as well as Anunnaki storylines, there is a, another God that is speaking to Noah, uh, or Utnapishtim, depending on the storyline, who helped that individual and his family survive uh, the flood. And that appeared to be a different God who did not want to cause the destruction of the earth. And in the biblical text, that God is referred to as Yahweh. So was is this true that the, the, um, the God who worked with Noah to save him from the flood was in some ways in opposition to the Anunnaki race of beings? Yes, it is true, but remember, many of these biblical accounts have been completely rewritten in order to confuse humanity. So, so while certainly we can confirm reptilian interference in this idea of mass destruction or chaos, uh, we don't necessarily want to place the name Yahweh in direct relationship to this message. So the biblical reference of Yahweh is referring to reptilians in general? Is that what you mean? We believe it's referring to a collective consciousness. Okay. Of reptilians. Yes. Hybrid reptilians. So the Anunnaki wanted to destroy the civil life on earth in a manner of speaking, the Nephilim and human beings included, but the reptilians didn't want that. Well, they did not want the destruction of Earth because it would have destroyed their own collective. Uh, it would not only have had ramifications for the human beings and the plant and animal life, but it would have also destroyed their own race. So what's the advantage to them to saving human beings then specifically? Because either way, the flood happened, right? So they didn't stop the flood. They just simply managed to save Noah and human beings. Well, because the most precious asset at your disposal as human beings is your multidimensional DNA. Uh And that is what they are attempting to preserve because 
without it, there is no ability for the reptilians to tap into an energy that on behalf of human beings allowed them to thrive. Meaning if there are fewer human beings on the planet, reptilians don't have as much energy to thrive. That is one interpretation. But but remember, at the very beginning of time and the seeding of humanity by intergalactics, reptilians contributed their own DNA. And a race that finds themselves in jeopardy due to any cataclysm is going to rely upon the DNA of another in order to receive their own codes, history, and memories. So if I'm understanding correctly, you're, you're sort of saying in, in, uh, in my simplistic form that reptilians, because they were part of the original seeding of the humanity, that they have a vested interest in, in humanity existing on the planet, in a manner of speaking, even though at the same time we are, um, we're inter- well, not interfering, but, but our existence is also a problem for them at the same time. Whereas the Anunnaki did not have a vested interest because they were not part of the original seeding. Is that what you mean? Well, perhaps we can phrase it this way. In a very unconscious state, what has happened over a great many number of years is that humans have become hybridized with reptilians and the reptilian race now lives on through humanity. But weren't we also modified by the Anunnaki? So how is that different? It is no different. It is perhaps the war or the race that you are referring to right now, because within the human genome, both of these collectives have precious energy and information to siphon. And both of them focused upon their own preservation on a planet where human DNA is the most valuable to, um, we'll say, intersect with. Uh, is going to create some discordance. Okay. Well, we're going to finish up there for today. Thank you, Michaela. And we'll pick up next time with the, with our conversation that we started and maybe continue down this topic as well and integrate that into everything else we've discussed in previous conversations. So thank you all for joining us for Channel Revelations today. You can also find us on various podcast platforms, uh, also on Rumble as well if you'd like. And we'll see you next week for another uh, Wake and Empowered podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Ethan. Thank you, Michaela. Now Rama's going to play a five-minute and 55-second uh, piece that we got a call about from another sister and Rama, you can tell people what it's going to be about before you play it, okay? Uh, this is uh, called Galactic Federation Exposed Centuries of Old Dark, Old Shocking Dark Conspiracy on Earth, Taking Down the False Light Matrix. This is connected like with what these two were just talking about, the reptilians and the Anunnaki and the Matrix and if you've seen the latest version of the Matrix Resurrections Neo and Trinity saved the day go watch it again
Okay, so this is interesting. It's five minutes and 55 Along seconds. Along with the oracle. <laughs> yes. Okay, so triple change. Here we come. Federation's epic victory, Dark Forces defeated. This is the most exciting news for humanity. The Galactic Federation has exposed the Dark Forces that had been secretly sowing the seeds of negativity on Earth for centuries. These Dark Forces used a hidden network of false light matrices to achieve their goals. As the Galactic Federation scientists probed deeper into the Earth's energy fields, they discovered a vast network of interconnected nodes tied to an ancient artifact buried beneath the planet's crust. These nodes had been subtly manipulating the magnetic fields of the planet, subtly influencing human history, and spreading fear and confusion. However, now that the Galactic Federation has removed this negative energy, Humanity has the opportunity to harness the power of these nodes for the greater good and unlock the secrets of the universe. With this newfound knowledge and positivity, people can start living in harmony with each other and the planet, creating a brighter and more positive future. The removal of this false light matrix has opened up new possibilities for scientific discovery and spiritual growth as humanity can now tap into the positive energy that flows throughout the universe. This victory over the dark forces that had been manipulating the planet for so long is a testament to the power of light and humanity's ability to overcome even the most insidious forces of negativity and darkness. The discovery of this hidden network of energy and its removal is a momentous occasion for humanity as it marks the beginning of a new era of positivity, hope, and possibility. I am sure that when this news of the discovery and removal of this hidden network of energy spreads throughout the world, it will spark a wave of curiosity and excitement among scientists and spiritualists alike. People from all walks of life will be inspired to delve deeper into the mysteries of the universe, seeking to unlock the secrets of the positive energy that flows through it. In laboratories and meditation halls around the world, researchers and seekers will work to understand the true nature of this positive energy and harness its power for the greater good. They will discover that the nodes of energy that were once used for negative purposes can be transformed into sources of healing technological advancement, and spiritual awakening. As the light of this new era shines brighter and brighter, it will illuminate the darkness that has long cloaked the planet. The forces of negativity and darkness will find themselves weakened and disoriented, unable to resist the unstoppable wave of positive energy that now flows through the world. However, even as humanity celebrates its victory over the dark forces, new questions will emerge. What is the true nature of this positive light energy? How can it be harnessed for the greatest good? What other secrets lie hidden within the depths of the universe, waiting to be discovered and unlocked by humanity's boundless curiosity and indomitable spirit? The answers to these questions may remain elusive, but one thing is clear. Humanity will take a giant leap forward in its quest for understanding, growth, and enlightenment.
The removal of the hidden network of energy will be just the beginning and the possibilities for scientific discovery and spiritual growth will be truly limitless. So let us all embrace the future with hope and positivity and together we can create a better world for ourselves and for generations to come. The brave beings that make up the Galactic Federation have come here to help us and with their help we can create a better world for ourselves. Thank you for coming to this planet. We are all very excited about what is to come. I hope you've been inspired to read more about this event and the great spiritual transformation coming to our planet in the very near future. Humanity is indeed on the cusp of some incredibly exciting times, and it's crucial that we all understand what's going on before it's too late. So get out there, enjoy the rest of your time, and start preparing yourself for a grand spiritual revolution. As the ambassador of the Galactic Federation, I would like to thank you for taking the time to read this important message. You're in for a big surprise. Prepare yourself for it now, and you won't be disappointed later. Be ready and active. There's a lot of work to be done in this world, and it's up to you to make a difference. The time is coming when humanity will be confronted with events that mean the end of a way of life based on greed, consumerism, and materialism. We're at that point in history where we will be learning to live in a new world, one that is spiritual, sustainable, and balanced. It's time to advance our evolution as a species. It's time to wake up and prepare yourself for a grand spiritual revolution. You've got all the time in the world. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. <laughs> so that's Aurora. She just, this just came out, I don't know, 15 minutes ago. So I'm not sure. What? Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell everybody what you're going to play now. This is... Oh, that. Yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> this is for the record. Which one? The long one? Yeah, we should play the long one first. Oh. And tell us everything on the blurb before we started. It's oh. about Oppenheimer, everybody, and it's... Not the movie, it's something that came out here. I'm not sure when, not too long ago. And this first one is an hour and fifty five zero, an hour and fifty minutes. Yeah, I gotta get there. It's Rama's gotta get there. And then the second one is just 26 Uh, minutes. Um, (laughs) I'll just read this little ditty again from K. Pacha. Just the short little thing he says there. Okay, just let me read this, Mama. There's a time to advance and a time to retreat. 
like the waves upon the shore. Learning when, how, and why is what I came here for. Okay, so that's good. All right, this is called The Trials of J. Robert Oppenheimer. What does it say underneath that? Um, yeah. Right on. Um, I'm getting there. Robert Oppenheimer was a brilliant, arrogant, proud, charismatic, and a national hero. I wouldn't call him that. Under his leadership during World War II, the United States succeeded in becoming the first nation to harness the power of nuclear energy to create the ultimate weapon of mass destruction, the A-bomb. But after the bomb, but after the bomb brought the war to an end, in spite of his renown and his enormous achievement, America turned on him, humiliated him, cast him aside. And this goes into, it's a PBS story. It includes interviews with the scientists, former colleagues, eminent scholars to present a complex and revealing portrait of one of the most important and controversial scientists of the 20th century. The two-hour film traces the course of Oppenheimer's life, his rarefied childhood, his troubled adolescence's emergence as one of America's leading nuclear scientists, his leadership at the Los Alamos lab, and his tragic humiliation. I can just say from personal experience talking with Dr. Steve and Professor Nicodemus, who escaped essentially from Los Alamos labs, this man's not a hero. What he created is, um, like it, uh, talked about in the Mahabhajra. Mahabharata, I have become the destroyer of worlds. And this was a quote. Who said that from the Mahabharata? Uh, it was a quote from Krishna to Arjuna when Krishna and Arjuna are having this discussion on the battlefield and Krishna shows up to Arjuna in his universal form and says, I'll drive your, ride your chariot or, you know, whip the horses into shape and we'll win this war. Yet Arjuna died and, you know, it was. So Krishna was calling himself a great destroyer? I'm not sure. It's, you know, I, I convoluted it. You know, but it's like um, Oppenheimer. Let's, he, he tried to kill himself three times in a row. Yeah, and Professor Nicodemus and Dr. Steve told me that Mr. Oppenheimer used to sit with 
Georgia O'Keeffe at the La Fonda Hotel in Santa Fe in the La Posada, and he gets shit-faced drunk and cry into the bar. And in Santa Fe? In Santa Fe. The place where you worked for four years. Yes. And one time at... And there's a ghost that looks at that the shows up in that La mirror. Posada. One time Julia, the ghost there, came and put her arm around Oppenheimer as he was crying into the bar and tried to comfort him with the idea of, you know, there is hope for you even though you created what you created it's you know um he used to smoke chain smoke like the cigarette smoking man in the x-files it's not when you were there i I was i wasn't even born yet oh what i'm just telling you so la posada was there in the 40s or something yes that hotel, uh, La Posada's been around since the 40s. Well, he had to be, I don't know how old he was. I don't know either. Let's, let's go listen. Okay, so this is for the record, and let's just remain neutral and, yeah. and take in what Rama said, too. And at least we have... Blaze the Violet Fire. Cause yeah, I have this to blaze the Violet Fire for. War, no more. This is one hour and 50 minutes, so here we go. for Advanced Study, Princeton, New Jersey. There has developed considerable question whether your continued employment on Atomic Energy Commission work is consistent with the interests of the national security. In view of your access to highly sensitive classified information, and in view of allegations which, until disproved, raise questions as to your veracity, conduct, and even your loyalty, the Commission has no other recourse but to suspend your clearance until the matter has been resolved. shabby government office in Washington, D.C. It was reported that your wife, Catherine Peening Oppenheimer, was a member of the Communist Party. It was reported that your brother, Frank Friedman Oppenheimer, was a member of the Communist Party. J. Robert Oppenheimer, 
the most eminent atomic scientist in America, stood accused, a risk to national security. It was 1954. The Cold War with Russia was fueling fears of communist infiltration at the highest levels of government. It was reported that you stated that you were not a communist, but had probably belonged to every communist front organization on the West Coast and had signed many petitions in which communists were interested. The news shocked Americans everywhere. If Robert Oppenheimer could not be trusted with the nation's secrets, who could be? Brilliant, proud, charismatic, a poet as well as a physicist, Oppenheimer had seemed to enjoy the full trust and confidence of his country's leaders. He was a national hero, the man who had led the scientific team which devised the atomic bomb. The ultimate weapon of mass destruction. Oppenheimer came to prominence through unspeakable violence and suffered all the ambiguities and contradictions he had helped create. We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now I am become death the destroyer of worlds I suppose we all thought that one way or another What he was trying to help the world understand is that these are not weapons. These are forces of destruction so great that we finally, as a species, are in a position where we can destroy the entire human world without question. As the nation's top nuclear... That's why Ashtar is here. And the whole galactic forces of light are here, on the ground, in physical form. War is over as we want it. Nixon's advisor, Oppenheimer tried to warn his countrymen of their dangers. The powerful figures within the government feared he was a threat to America's security. They determined to destroy him. The country asked him to do something, and he did it brilliantly. And they repaid him for the tremendous job he did by breaking him. Doctor, do you think that social contacts between a person employed in secret war work and communists or communist adherents is dangerous? Are we talking about today? Yes. Certainly not necessarily so. They could conceivably be. Was that your view in 1943 and during the war years? 
The hearings would go on for nearly a month. The story of Oppenheimer's life laid bare, his secrets exposed. His brilliance and arrogance, naivete and insecurities, debated, dissected, and judged. A special three-man board appointed by the Atomic Energy Commission would rule on the charges. To defend himself, the embattled scientist felt compelled to tell his own story in his own way. The items of so-called derogatory uh, information cannot be fairly understood except in the context of my life and, and work. I was born in New York in 1904. My father came to this country at the age of 17 uh, from Germany. Julius Oppenheimer was a penniless Jewish immigrant who arrived in America in 1888, unable to speak a word of English, and went to work in his uncle's textile importing business. By the time he was 30, he was a partner in the company and a wealthy man. When he fell in love, it was with a sensitive, talented woman of exquisite taste and refinement. My mother was born in Baltimore. And before her marriage, she was an artist and teacher of art. Ella Oppenheimer was very delicate, a friend remembered, with an air of sadness about her. Robert was precociously brilliant, and both parents were protective of his uncommon gifts. Frail, frequently sick, he was attended to by servants, driven everywhere. He rarely played with other children. He wasn't mischievous. He was too brilliant to be just one of the children. But his parents treasured him, treated him like a little jewel. And he just skipped being a boy. My childhood did not prepare me for the fact that the world is full of cruel and bitter things, Oppenheimer said. It gave me no normal, healthy way to be a bastard. Sometime around the age of five, Robert's grandfather gave him a small collection of minerals. From then on, he said, I became, in a completely childish way, an ardent mineral collector. But it began to be also a bit of a scientist's interest, a fascination with crystals. He wrote to the New York Mineralogical Society on a typewriter. They were so impressed with what he had to say that of course, thinking he was an adult, they invited him to give a lecture. And little Robert, at age 10 or 11, shows up at the New York Mineralogical Society and has to stand on a box in order to see over the lectern to give this lecture. That is not a normal, average childhood. Eight years separated Robert from his brother Frank. Too many for companionship. Robert was a loner. And at New York's Ethical Culture School, he inhabited his own rarefied world, more comfortable with his teachers than with the other students, who nicknamed him Booby Oppenheimer. To protect himself, he relied on his preternatural brilliance and grew aloof and arrogant. He didn't grow up. He studied a great deal which shielded him from the world. And the emotional side of him didn't catch up until much later. 
Oppenheimer graduated high school valedictorian and then conquered Harvard. He studied chemistry, physics, calculus, English and French literature, Western, Chinese, and Hindu philosophy. He even found time to write stories and poems. He described it as being like the Huns invading Rome, by which he meant he was going to swallow up every bit of culture and art and science that he could possibly do. Harvard is an environment in which the intellectual life is a rich feast, but the social life is a desert. In all his years at Harvard, he never had a date. He remained immature, uncertain, easily bewildered in social situations. One friend remembered bouts of melancholy and deep, deep depressions. In the days of my almost infinitely prolonged adolescence, he said later, I hardly took an action, hardly did anything that did not arouse in me a very great sense of revulsion and of wrong. My feeling about myself was always one of extreme discontent. His doubts about himself came clear in his poems. The dawn invests our substance with desire, and the slow light betrays us and our wistfulness. We find ourselves again, each in his separate prison, ready, hopeless for negotiation with other men. Oppenheimer graduated in just three years and in 1925 headed for Cambridge, England and an advanced degree at the celebrated Cavendish Laboratory. Academic success had always come easily. Ambitious, determined to succeed, in England he would learn what it was like to struggle and fail. Oppenheimer, like so many theoretical physicists, it turns out that if he walks through a lab, the instruments all break. And he's trying to do a rather delicate physical experiment, and he's not getting anywhere. And he's sinking deeper and deeper into that special despair that comes along when prodigies grow up and, have, and realize they can't just do it by being a prodigy anymore. His eyes and his hands and his mind are not coordinated. He can't do what all of the other young people are able to do. And he finds himself one day standing at a blackboard, staring into space, saying, the point is, the point is, the point is. There is no point. <laughs> He fell into despair, he fell into depression. Here was a point where he was suddenly doubting his intellect, his ability to do science. So it's not surprising that at that point, the whole thing would go collapsing down for him. At the same time, he had never really learned how to approach women, how to close the sale, if I may call it that. And he was dealing with that as well. Wrestling with inner demons that threatened to overwhelm him, he was, he later said, at the point of bumping myself off. In 1926, 
Oppenheimer would save himself. He cut free from the English experimental laboratory and headed for Göttingen, Germany, to study theoretical physics with some of the greatest scientific minds of the century. I had very great misgivings about myself on all fronts, he said. I hadn't been good. I hadn't done anybody any good. And here was something I felt just driven to try. In Göttingen, Oppenheimer would make his mark in a new science, which explored a world that ran counter to everyday experience, quantum physics. Quantum physics is the basic physics behind electrons and atoms. It turns out that classical ideas about Newtonian mechanics and particle motion and so on do not apply to things of to things of atomic scale. You needed a new kind of physics. So if you're going to change at a different scale the, the whole structure of the physics, everything has to be redone, if you will. And that means there are enormous opportunities available for a young graduate student with talent to come in and make various aspects of this his own. Oppenheimer immersed himself in the mysteries of the subatomic universe, where nothing was certain and probability the only rule. He found the work exhilarating. There was terror, he wrote, as well as exaltation. Oppenheimer really flourished there. He annoyed everybody, of course, by talking too much and pretending he knew everything. He always considered very carefully what he said, as though he was speaking for the ages. And he expected everybody to be seduced by his Renaissance man knowledge of everything. In Göttingen, Oppenheimer came into his own as a theoretical physicist, publishing 16 papers in three years. By the time he was ready to return to America, he was focused and confident an ambitious young man with an international reputation. In the spring of 1929, I returned to the United States. I was homesick for this country. I had learned in my student days a great deal about the new physics. I wanted to pursue this myself, uh, to explain it, and to foster its cultivation. Oppenheimer was just 25 and already knew more about the quantum universe than nearly any other American. He settled in California and began teaching at Caltech in Pasadena and the University of California in Berkeley. But at first, his lectures were incomprehensible. It was customary until I got there for students to take his main course in theoretical physics twice in a row. They would take a second year to fully understand it. Other students were taking it in pairs one would listen, other one would write notes, and they'd work up the lecture afterward. He spoke at a very fast clip, puffing on his cigarette, which he always had. He was writing with his chalk, and he was moving back and forth between his left hand and his right hand so quickly that people thought he was going to smoke the chalk, you know, and write with the cigarette. Uh, and they could not, couldn't follow him. But he was able to transform himself into an excellent lecturer who was charismatic and extremely effective. Oppenheimer became a magnetic, dazzling teacher. But his arrogance could make even his colleagues wince. He was not likable because he wouldn't let you look at him. He was always on stage. You never had a feeling 
that he was speaking from the heart somehow. He never came across as a real person. There was always a studied remark uh, intended to convey some sort of, I don't know, superiority or deeper knowledge than you, poss- you Slav could possibly understand. He could be devastating, especially to young people. He became very impatient and was always all over them and sometimes reduced them practically to tears. His sharp remarks were not inadvertent. They had to do with the kind of arrogance and contempt. I take it to be a way that he disguised his anxieties, that he disguised his social insecurities, but it was immensely cruel. Oppenheimer called his behavior beastliness. It is not easy, he wrote in a letter to his brother. At least, it is not easy for me to be quite free of the desire to browbeat somebody. Ever since Oppenheimer had visited New Mexico as a teenager, he had been haunted by its wild beauty. In 1927, his father took a lease on a rustic cabin high in the mountains, 45 miles northeast of Santa Fe, and gave it to both his sons. The Oppenheimers called it Perro Caliente, Spanish for hot dog. He found peace there. He found a different self there, one that he liked, a cowboy self. Friends who went to visit him later would talk about the fact that he would go out riding for three days at a time up the ridge of the Rocky Mountains with a bar of chocolate and a pint of whiskey in his hip pocket. They would be starving and terrified, riding through mountain storms and lightning, and he would just be having a wonderful time. My two great loves, he once told a friend, are physics and desert country. It's a pity they can't be combined. In 1934, San Francisco longshoremen battled police, shutting down the waterfront just across the bay from Oppenheimer's home in Berkeley. America itself seemed on the verge of revolution, with violence in the streets, strikes, a failing economy, a third of the nation unemployed. But Oppenheimer remained aloof. I had no radio, no telephone. I never read a newspaper or a current magazine. I learned of the stock market crash in the fall of 1929, only long after the event. I voted for the first time in a presidential election in 1936. I was deeply interested in my science but I had no understanding of the relations of man to his society. The depression didn't affect him personally. He had an income from his father who was wealthy and politics seemed gross to him. Beginning late in 1936, my interests began to change. I saw what the depression was doing to my students. Often they could get no jobs. But I had no framework of political conviction or experience to give me perspective in these matters. In the spring of 1936, I was introduced by friends to Gene Tatlock. In the autumn, 
I began to court her. We were at least twice close enough to marriage to think of ourselves as engaged. Jean Tatlock was Oppenheimer's first real love. She was 22, studying to be a doctor, and passionately involved with the contentious issues of her day. The civil war in Spain, organizing workers, racial discrimination. She was also a member of the Communist Party and introduced Oppenheimer into her political circle. I made left-wing friends and felt sympathy for causes which hitherto would have seemed so remote from me, like the loyalist cause in Spain and the organization of migratory workers. I liked the new sense of companionship and at the time felt that I was coming to be part of the life of my time and country. I did not then regard communists as dangerous, and some of their declared objectives seemed to me desirable. In the 1930s, in the bottom of the Depression, there was a deep and fundamental concern about the future of this country, of whether its economic and to some degree political system was adequate. We came later in America to demonize people who belonged to the Communist Party, but it was a very common business in the 30s. Workers, teachers, doctors, writers, Americans of every stripe and color were party members. But although he shared many of their political concerns, there is nothing to prove that Oppenheimer himself was a communist. Oppenheimer never joined the party. The FBI spent 30 years trying to prove that Oppenheimer had been a communist and was never able to do so. That's probably good evidence that he never joined the party. Oppenheimer was deeply bound to Tatlock, but she was volatile, moody, sometimes distraught. After three years, she broke off their relationship. Their relationship appears to have been quite a stormy one. And Jean Tatlock, although for many years people who knew her didn't say this, was uncertain whether she wanted to be or with men or women, whether she was lesbian or heterosexual. And I believe that must have been at the bottom of her crises with Oppenheimer. And how that fed into his own sexual certainties and uncertainties, one can only imagine. He was troubled. That's why he was attracted to troubled women. He was troubled. He didn't know who he was. Oppenheimer would always feel a tender attachment to Jean, but they had gone their separate ways when Kitty Harrison set her cap for him. Kitty was 29 and also a former Communist Party member. She was married to a doctor, but that didn't stop her from going after the well-known scientist. When she saw Oppenheimer, she grabbed him. They were together, of course, for the rest of their lives. But it was, God knows, a tumultuous relationship with a lot of bickering and a lot of fighting and a lot of drinking. You know, Kitty and Jean were both dominant women. They were passionate women. And in some way, he could comfort them. He could save them or try to. Here were two women who both presented themselves as people who needed saving. And Robert jumped in like the, like the white knight that he, I think, wanted to be. In 1940, Oppenheimer became Kitty's fourth husband. Less than seven months later, 
their first child, Peter, was born. Although they continued to see some of their left-wing friends, the Oppenheimers were by now detaching themselves from Communist Party politics. My views were evolving. At that time, I did not fully understand, as in time I came to understand, uh, how completely the Communist Party in this country was under the control of Russia. Many of its declared objectives seemed desirable to me, but I never accepted communist dogma or theory. In fact, it never made any sense to me. What did make sense was science. He would never let politics interfere with his teaching or his physics. And of course, he paid attention to experiment, but he was a theorist. He probed very deeply. He was interested in the deepest ideas, and he did contribute to some of them. In 1939, he published with his student, Hartland Schneider, really a great piece of work explaining how stars collapse, how they can actually end up as black holes, which had never been understood before. That same year, a startling dispatch from the abstruse world of nuclear physics changed the course of history and Oppenheimer's life. Two German chemists reported that the uranium nucleus could be split. The discovery soon had a name, nuclear fission. The U-business is unbelievable, Oppenheimer wrote. Many points are still unclear. I think it really not too improbable that a 10-centimeter cube of uranium deuteride might very well blow itself to hell. The discovery of nuclear fission began a race that would end with the atomic bomb. He saw already at the beginning, as I think any really good physicist did just by doing the numbers about the amount of energy released in this reaction, that this was going to change the world. With that discovery came a change in the relationship between science and the nation state. Every country in the world in 1939 and 1940 that had the capability of even beginning to work on a bomb began that work. Not only England and Germany and the United States, but also France, Japan, and the Soviet Union. But the only threat came from Germany. We had information in those days of German activity in the field of nuclear fission. We were aware of what it might mean if they beat us to the draw in the development of atomic bombs. I had relatives there and was later to help in extricating them and bringing them to this country. Nine months after the discovery of nuclear fission, Germany invaded Poland. World War II had begun. When the United States entered the war two years later, American scientists feared that Germany was already well ahead in the race to build an atomic bomb. If America was going to develop a bomb first, they would have to work fast. In October 1942, the 20th Century Limited was speeding toward New York City. Sharing a private Pullman car were Robert Oppenheimer, and a 46-year-old career army officer, General Leslie Groves. Groves had been placed in command of the Manhattan Project. 
the staggering enterprise to marshal the vast technical and industrial resources to develop an atomic bomb. Now, he was looking over the man he hoped might head up the secret laboratory where the bomb would be designed and built. Gross's way of operating was to be blunt and brutal. He knew, as they said during the First World War, how to get the spam to the front lines. He knew how to get the job done. The two men talked for hours. When they were done, Groves had made up his mind. Oppenheimer, he believed, had the ambition, discipline, and brilliance to lead the most complex scientific effort America had ever undertaken. He's a genius, Groves said later, a real genius. He can talk to you about anything you bring up. Well, not exactly. He doesn't know anything about sports. Groves went away out on the limb in choosing Oppenheimer. No one would have would have supposed that this esoteric person with a, an interest in French poetry and Hindu mysticism would be a practical person to lead a laboratory. He'd never directed anything, really, to, to speak of. He hadn't even been a department chairman. Most of his friends think that Oppenheimer could not run a hamburger stand. Groves wanted Oppenheimer anyway. But the United States Army refused to give the scientist a security clearance. The country was at war. Even though Russia was America's ally, anyone with communist associations was considered a possible spy. It was the first time Oppenheimer's loyalty to America would be questioned. The security people are appalled. Oppenheimer is the last person they would want as director, and he's the next to last person they'd even want involved in the project at all as a, uh, as a janitor. Groves is very conservative. He hates communists. But Groves does not allow Oppenheimer's left-wing activities during the 1930s to trump his belief that Oppenheimer will be just the right person. In early 1943, I received a letter appointing me director of the laboratory. Almost everyone knew this was a great undertaking. It might determine the outcome of the war. It was an unparalleled opportunity to bring to bear the knowledge and art of science for the benefit of the country. This job, if it were achieved, would be part of history. Oppenheimer had once fantasized combining his passion for physics with his love of the desert and mountains of New Mexico. Now, he suggested a remote wilderness near the Los Alamos Canyon, northeast of Santa Fe, as the site for the atomic bomb laboratory. General Groves quickly agreed. Oppenheimer's fantasy had come true. Before leaving for Los Alamos, Oppenheimer entertained an old friend for dinner, Hocan Chevalier, a French professor teaching at Berkeley and a dedicated communist. Oppenheimer had known Chevalier for years. He was Chevalier was one of his closest friends. He knew Chevalier was a communist. It didn't really worry him. He judged that Chevalier wouldn't do anything that would compromise Robert Oppenheimer. But Chevalier put Oppenheimer at risk. He told his friend that a British engineer named Eltonton wanted information about Oppenheimer's scientific work to pass on to a diplomat at the Soviet embassy. Oppenheimer dismissed the idea, 
That would be treason, he said. Oppenheimer did not at the time take this approach as something serious. It was only later that it came to be a problem because it was useful to people who wanted to destroy him to make it a problem. Doctor, do you think that social contacts between a person employed in secret war work and communists or communist adherents is dangerous? Certainly not necessarily so. They could conceivably be. My awareness of the danger would be greater today. Doctor, in your opinion, is association with the communist movement compatible with a job on a secret war project? I was associated with the communist movement. And I did not regard it as inappropriate to take the job at Los Alamos. Doctor, let me ask you a blunt question. Don't you know, and didn't you know certainly by 1943, that the Communist Party was an instrument or a vehicle of espionage in this country? I was not clear about it. I am asking you now. If fear of espionage wasn't one of the reasons why you felt that association with the Communist Party was inconsistent with work on a secret war project? Yes. Your answer is that it was? Yes. You would have felt then, I assume, that a rather continued or constant association between a person employed on the atomic bomb project and communists or communist adherents was dangerous. Potentially dangerous. Conceivably dangerous. Look, I have had a lot of secrets in my head a long time. It does not matter who I associate with. I don't talk about those secrets. In times of spiritual trial, Oppenheimer would search the Bhagavad Gita, a sacred Hindu text, for meaning and comfort. He often turned to the story of the warrior Prince Arjuna, who to fulfill his destiny must fight and kill. In battle, in forest, at the precipice in the mountains, on the dark great sea, in the midst of javelins and arrows, in sleep, in confusion, in the depths of shame, the good deeds a man has done before, defend him. In April 1943, Oppenheimer was 38 years old, about to take on a task for which few people thought him capable, harnessing the forces of the atom to build a bomb of awesome, destructive power. There was little doubt that a potentially world-shattering undertaking lay ahead. We began to see the great explosion. We also began to see how rough, difficult, challenging, and unpredictable this job might turn out to be. A whole town was being constructed, and Oppenheimer tried to organize the science. But in addition, they were constructing roads laboratory buildings and homes. We had no sidewalks anywhere, and in one season of the year, walked around in mud up to our ankles. They were trying to build a first-class physics laboratory out in the middle of a howling wilderness. It was a hell of a place to try to move a linear accelerator up the narrow switchback mountain roads to install it at the top. The laboratory at Los Alamos 
was a closely guarded secret. From its beginnings, security had the highest priority. Army intelligence watched over everything and everybody, especially the laboratory director with the left-wing past. Oppenheimer's phones were tapped, his mail opened, his office wired, his comings and goings closely monitored. His driver and bodyguard was an undercover agent. Oppenheimer, who knew everything that was going on at Los Alamos, was still waiting for his security clearance. Oppenheimer goes about doing the job as best he can do it, but the security people are like flies on a hot summer day. They're constantly buzzing around him. They're constantly annoying him. He does his best to shoo them, you know, away. But there's one instance where he makes a terrible, terrible mistake. I had visited Gene Tadlock in the spring of 1943. Uh, I almost had to. She was not much of a communist, but she was certainly a member of the party. There was nothing dangerous about that. There was nothing potentially dangerous about that. The government knew all about Oppenheimer's visit. Agents from Army Intelligence waited outside Tadlock's apartment while Oppenheimer spent the night and reported the details to the FBI. Why did you have to see her? She had indicated a great desire to see me before we left for Los Alamos. At that time, I couldn't go. For one thing, I wasn't supposed to say where we were going or anything. I felt that she had to see me. She was undergoing psychiatric treatment. She was extremely unhappy. Did you find out why she had to see you? Because she was still in love with me. When did you see her after that? She took me to the airport, and I never saw her again. Jean Tadlock was a wounded, lonely woman who was at wit's end, and she wanted this man whom she loved to come to her, and he did. From the point of view of the gumshoes who sat outside Jean Tadlock's apartment all night in their car, writing down who came and who went and at what hour, and when the lights were on, when the lights were off, there may have been a security problem. But for him, human need, human compassion, caring for someone you love, trumped the security system. The FBI feared that Tatlock might be passing atomic secrets to the Russians. They tapped her phone, but persistent eavesdropping revealed nothing. Six months after Oppenheimer's visit, Jean Tatlock killed herself. I am disgusted with everything, she wrote in an unsigned note. To those who loved me and helped me, all love and courage. I wanted to live and to give, and I got paralyzed. I tried like hell to understand, and couldn't. I think I would have been a liability all my life. At least I could take away the burden of a paralyzed soul from a fighting world. You have said that you knew she had been a communist. Yes, I knew that in the fall of 1937. Was there any reason for you to believe that she wasn't still a communist in 1943? No. Pardon? There wasn't. I do not know what she was doing in, in 1943. You have no reason to believe she wasn't a communist, do you? No.
You spent the night with her, didn't you? Yes. That is when you were working on a secret war project. Yes. You have told us this morning that you thought that at times social contacts with communists on the part of one working on a secret war project was dangerous. Could conceivably be. You didn't think spending a night with a dedicated communist? I don't believe she was a dedicated communist. You don't? No. Five weeks after Oppenheimer's visit to Tatlock, General Groves rammed through his security clearance. But Oppenheimer continued to operate under a shadow of suspicion, and by the summer of 1943, the pressure began to tell. That August, Oppenheimer volunteered to talk with Colonel Boris Pash, Chief of Army Counterintelligence for the West Coast. He had begun to worry about his conversation with his friend, Hokan Chevalier, he realized that he should have reported it at once, but he still didn't want to get his old friend in trouble. General Groves has uh, more or less, I feel, placed a certain responsibility in me. I don't mean to take up too much of your time. That's perfectly all right, whatever time you choose. Um, I have no first-hand knowledge, uh, but a man attached to the Soviet Council has indicated uh, indirectly through an intermediary uh, that he was in a position to transmit information. I think it might not hurt to uh, be on the lookout for it. Uh, if you wanted to watch him, um, I think it would be the appropriate thing to do. His name is Elton. Oppenheimer had simply wanted to alert Army intelligence that Eltonton might be a threat. But Pash did not trust Oppenheimer and his left-wing past. He hit a microphone in the telephone receiver and recorded their entire conversation. Oppenheimer had no idea that everything he said was set down, transcribed, and added to his security file, where it would be unearthed years later with disastrous consequences. Uh, there were approaches to other people uh, who were troubled by them, and sometimes they came and discussed them with me. Uh, that's as far as I can go on that. These mm. people, were they contacted directly by Elton? No. Oh, through a, another party? Yes. Well, now, uh, could we know through whom that contact was made? I think it would be a mistake. Oppenheimer makes up this complicated story so that the security people are looking all over the place. Uh, and they won't finger Robert and they won't finger Chevalier. He evidently hadn't learned to think the way security people think. Every time he said something else, he just made it worse. Parrish ended up, of course, believing Oppenheimer was a communist spy. But I think in mentioning Eltonton's name, I essentially said that he may be acting in a way which is dangerous to the country and which should be watched. I'm not going to mention anyone else's name in the same breath. I, I just can't do that. Oppenheimer quickly put the whole incident behind him. There was too much work to do. Los Alamos was growing into a bustling town 
was thousands of people. He had wildly underestimated the magnitude of the job, but he was thriving. In spite of the initial doubts of his scientific colleagues, he was proving that he was more than up to the enormous task. He showed it an ability to motivate and inspire that I think surprised everyone. Everyone loved him because he was everywhere. He understood all of these absurdly difficult and intractable problems, and he often had witty things to say about them. <laughs> he had a certain charisma, a certain charm, a certain flair. He had a Robin's A blue convertible Cadillac, you know, and if you're a young kid, and here's the boss, and he's driving around with his pork pie hat and his tweed jacket and cigarette always, you know, like in the movies, you know, you're impressed. Oppenheimer inspired everyone. He expressed the intellectual essence of what we were doing, the deepest sense of what it was. I don't know, in retrospect, who could have done it better, who could have pulled that gang, 80% of which were prima donnas of their own, could have pulled that gang together and, and made them work as a, as a unit. In being the director of this historic laboratory, Oppenheimer found his greatest and most natural role. He was cruel to people before the war. He was cruel to people after the war. But he wasn't cruel to people during the war. The period at Los Alamos was the only time in his life when he wasn't plagued by existential doubt, when all the parts came together and worked together. It was the first chance he'd ever had to serve the country and forget himself. Oppenheimer shaped an array of brilliant, eccentric scientists into a team. The Hungarian refugee Edward Teller was his biggest problem. Teller was always an ebullient scientist, very bright, quite impatient. When I showed up at Los Alamos, uh, I saw this name chalked next to the door, E. Teller, but there was no one in the office. I learned that he was rather unhappy that he had not been chosen as leader of the theory division and had gone off in a puff. His passion from the very first was to create what he called the Zupra, the super bomb. The super was a hydrogen bomb, a weapon with nearly unlimited destructive power. But since a hydrogen bomb would need an atomic bomb to set it off, Oppenheimer gave Teller's super a low priority. Oppenheimer said, "No, no, we got enough on our hands. We're not gonna. We're not gonna. We got to make the. We got to make the atomic bomb. That's what we're gonna do. That's our job, and that's what we're gonna focus on." Teller threatened to quit until Oppenheimer relented and let him work independently to try and design his super bomb. But there would always be bad blood between them. Teller was obsessive. He would not accept Oppenheimer's judgment about the feasibility of this project. He was not a crackpot or anything like that. He was an excellent physicist. But he got off on something that was simply wrong, and he couldn't let it go. Teller never forgave Oppenheimer, and uh, 
He paid him back. Unfortunately. By summer 1944, the enormous burden of responsibility had begun to take its toll. Losing weight, afflicted with a rasping cough, Oppenheimer chain-smoked his way through increasingly demanding months. Kitty was an additional burden. She refused to take on the role of the director's wife and found herself at loose ends. After their second child was born in the Los Alamos hospital, a girl they named Tony, she became even more distracted. She was drinking hard, on the verge of emotional collapse, while Oppenheimer was preoccupied, desperately pushing the project forward. For me, it was a time so filled with work, with the need for decision and action and consultation, there was room for little else. They had to invent all these new technologies in these very short months from the summer of 44 to the summer of 45. Oppenheimer nearly broke down. He was really depressed. He thought he'd blown it. He thought they had found themselves at a dead end. It was devilishly difficult, grappling with problems which were on the edge of absurdity. Just imagine trying to find out what's going on within an explosion, all of which is over in less than a thousandth of a second. He seriously considered leaving the project. And one of his friends finally took him aside and said, Robert, you can't leave. You're the only person who can make this happen. You have to stay. I don't care what you think. And he did stay. The consensus of all our opinions and every directive I had stressed the extreme urgency of the work. Time and time again, we had in the technical work almost paralyzing crises. Time and again, the laboratory drew itself together and we faced the new problems and got on with the work. We worked by night and by day. While Oppenheimer and his team raced on, the war against Japan and Germany was reaching a bloody climax. On May 7, 1945, the Nazis surrendered. The race with Germany to build the bomb was over. joined this project fearing that the Germans were working on trying to produce a bomb and if they succeeded in reaching it before we did they wouldn't be very sentimental about using it. When Germany surrenders the bomb is several months away from being built and the question is should we continue? Is it the right thing to do? Is it ethical? I've never heard any suggestion from Oppenheimer that uh, <laughs> there was any course other than continuing. There was a kind of momentum involved in our efforts in this direction. It was an enormous project. We were all deeply involved in finding out whether the darn thing would work. When you see something that is technically sweet, you go ahead and do it. And you argue about what to do about it only after you've had your technical success. Caught up in the momentum of the project, driven by the desire to finish the job he had begun, Oppenheimer was determined to see it through. This might help to convince everybody, he argued, that the next war would be fatal. For this purpose, actual combat use might even be the best thing. 
he rejected the idea of demonstrating the bomb first. If you have a demonstration, what it is is a fantastic firework with nobody getting hurt. What's important about nuclear weapons is not that it's fantastic fireworks. What's important about nuclear weapons is the fact they kill people. On May 31st, 1945, Oppenheimer joined a meeting of high-ranking government officials, scientists, and military men. It was agreed that the most desirable target was a vital war plant, employing a large number of workers and closely surrounded by workers' houses. Oppenheimer made no objection. What worried him was whether the bomb would work. The answer would come in New Mexico's Alamogordo Desert, the place the Spanish had called the Jornada del Muerto, the journey of death. July 15th, Oppenheimer climbed a 110-foot tower for one last look at the bomb. It would be tested the next day. He was down to 115 pounds, tense, on edge. There was great tension about the test, great uncertainty, whether it would work or produce a, a pathetic fizzle. This had never been done before, and it was a, no one had ever clear picture at all of what to expect. The evening before the test, someone recalled the frogs had gathered in a little pond by the camp and copulated and squawked all night long. Oppenheimer chain-smoked nervously and sat quietly reading the French poet Baudelaire. Seductive twilight, the criminal's friend. Silent like a wolf, the sky is closing down. A dark cloth drawn across an alcove where the impatient man changes into a beast of prey. At 5.10, the countdown began at 0 minus 20 minutes. As loudspeakers ticked off the time at five-minute intervals, Oppenheimer wandered in and out of the control bunker, glancing up at the sky. At the two-minute mark, he was heard to say to himself, Lord, these affairs are hard on the heart. Minus one minute. Minus 55 seconds. We were given a piece of welder's glass to hold in front of our eyes so that we could look at it without being blinded. It was pitch dark outside just before dawn. There was a lot of tension. Oppenheimer lay on his stomach, his face dreamy, withdrawn. He grew tenser as the last seconds ticked off, an army general remembered. He scarcely breathed. For the last few seconds, he stared directly ahead. 
brilliant flash like daylight outside. Suddenly from pitch dark to daylight over a huge area, there was this rapidly expanding glowing sphere with swirling dark clouds in it. And finally, as it dimmed, you could see on the outside a faint blue glow. It was simply fantastic. It worked, was all that Oppenheimer said. It worked. We were just awestruck. There it was. It had happened. And the test was evidently a success. But we had no idea when the next thing would happen. Nobody had said to us that a bomb had already been shipped out. There was total silence. Fear and tension. Now we're into something. Now who knows what's going to ensue. We heard not a single word until the 6th of August. On August 6th, 1945, the United States exploded an atomic bomb over Hiroshima, a city with a population of 350,000. Even before the blast, Oppenheimer had been darkly mourning. Those poor little people, he said. Those poor little people. Yet he had given the military precise instructions to ensure that the weapon would be delivered on target. No radar bombing, he wrote. It must be dropped visually. Don't let them detonate it too high, or the target won't get as much damage. Oppenheimer was of two minds. His success had been exhilarating, but he was in anguish over the human costs. There's no doubt that there was ambivalence about it. I think Oppenheimer saw the question in all its complexity. It wasn't so simple as was he guilty about building such a weapon. He understood that the bomb was going to change history. He might have hoped that there was some other way to demonstrate its effectiveness. They knew what they were making. They knew it was going to kill a lot of people. They didn't like that aspect of it. But there you were. The second atomic bomb exploded over Nagasaki on August 9th, left him morose, consumed by doubts fast sinking into depression. This undertaking, he wrote a friend, has not been without its misgivings. They are heavy on us today, when the future, which has so many elements of high promise, is yet only a stone's throw from despair. seen photographs of the Nagasaki strike, he told the American Philosophical Society three months after the blast, seen the great steel girders of factories twisted and wrecked. Atomic weapons are weapons of aggression, of surprise, and of terror. If they are ever used again, it may well be by the thousands, or perhaps by the tens of thousands. 
he was a great supporter of using the bomb, but he understood all along that he was on the cusp of a new terror. Even at the moment when the scientists believed that there was no other choice. They knew that most of the people killed were civilians. They knew that the targets for these bombs were the centers of cities. It's a very heavy burden that he carries into the post-war period after Hiroshima and Nagasaki are destroyed. I have been asked whether in the years to come it will be possible to kill 40 million American people in the 20 largest American towns by the use of atomic bombs in a single night. I am afraid that the answer to that question is yes. In 1945, America was the only country in the world with the atomic bomb. President Harry Truman believed that national security depended on keeping nuclear technology secret. Oppenheimer, along with nearly every other nuclear scientist, disagreed. I have been asked whether there is hope for the nation's security in keeping secret some of the knowledge in, which has gone into the making of the bombs. I'm afraid there is no such hope. President Truman really did seem to feel that if you just kept the lid on enough, we'd always have the secret and no one else would ever get it. There wasn't any secret. The secret was it worked. On October 25th, 1945, Oppenheimer met with President Truman to share his concerns. When the president assured his visitor that the Soviets would never get the bomb, Oppenheimer became frustrated. Mr. President, he said, I feel I have blood on my hands. Blood on his hands, Truman complained later. Damn it, he hasn't half as much blood on his hands as I have. You just don't go around belly aching about it. It's not surprising Truman just about threw him out of his office. It was the president's decision. It wasn't Oppenheimer's decision. Later, Truman told his secretary of state, I don't want to see that son of a bitch in this office again. In the years after the war, Robert Oppenheimer's fame grew. His name became a household word. He was the father of the A-bomb, the government's top advisor on atomic weapons, privy to all the nation's atomic secrets. He was instantly famous. Nuclear weapons, nuclear energy, were such a big and new thing, such a surprise to nearly everyone, that it was very widespread to ask your local physicists, what does this all mean and what should we do? You know, the Rotary Clubs did it. You know, the Kaiwanis did it. The PTAs, I mean, everybody. And for, not only that, whenever there was in the pa anything in the papers about it, it was always a brilliant nuclear physicist. There was no other kind. Now, Oppenheimer was right at the top of it. So it was the president or the Congress or the senators or the UN, you know, who asked him and for whom he gave his advice. He was interested in power. He was drawn to it. 
He wanted to have a say in what became of those weapons. He wasn't going to go back down on the farm after he'd seen Paris. He realized that he might turn this fame and power into statesmanship, that he might become the sort of philosopher scientist, a philosopher statesman who could bring the rest of the message to government about how you'd go about eliminating nuclear weapons in the world. Oppenheimer was naive enough. He really thought that if he got inside, he could change things. Immediately after the war, I was deeply involved in the effort to devise effective means for the international control of atomic weapons. In 1946, Oppenheimer hammered out the details of a visionary proposal with some of America's most distinguished statesmen. The plan was designed to put atomic energy into the hands of an international agency, controlling uranium mines, atomic power plants, and atomic laboratories. It involved giving up nuclear weapons and internationalizing the entire nuclear enterprise. And Oppenheimer writes, we know that people will say, this is impossible. You can't do this. Our answer is we must. But Oppenheimer's hope for an international accord that would lead to the elimination of nuclear weapons was facing fierce resistance, foundering on the deepening antagonisms between two former allies, the Soviet Union and the United States. Oppenheimer believed that if we could figure out how to create a post-war period in which the foundation of international affairs was U.S.-Soviet cooperation, the world would be a very different place. But the Soviet army already occupied much of Eastern Europe. Americans feared that Western Europe might be overrun. Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin had fears of his own. The Soviet Union was not about to let the United States have a monopoly on these weapons. They didn't trust us. With reason. We had, after all, built a weapon in secret, telling our allies Great Britain, but not telling our allies the Soviet Union, and actually used the thing on, a, on an enemy population. Stalin had every reason to believe that we would use it on him. In the face of opposition from both the Soviets and the Americans, Oppenheimer's plan to internationalize nuclear energy went nowhere. So it was a brilliant and radical and evidently premature idea. Because national sovereignty trumped everything. On July 1st, 1946, the United States tested a 21,000-ton atomic bomb exploding it in Bikini Atoll in the Pacific Ocean. Two months before, Oppenheimer had written President Truman a letter opposing the tests. Truman paid no attention, calling Oppenheimer that crybaby scientist. By now, Oppenheimer was disillusioned with America's efforts to eliminate the threat of nuclear weapons, but he was even more disillusioned with the Russians. He saw how intransigent the Russians were going to be, and he went into another mode in his thinking about what should be done about the bomb. He felt 
that what you had to do instead of you had to accomplish the impossible, what you had to do is accomplish another impossibility, and that is live successfully and peacefully with nuclear weapons. That fall, Oppenheimer was made a key advisor to the newly created Atomic Energy Commission. As chairman of its General Advisory Committee, he reached what he described as a melancholy conclusion. As the prospects of success receded, and as the evidence of Soviet hostility and growing military power accumulated, we were more and more to devote ourselves to finding ways of adapting our atomic potential to offset the Soviet threat. We concluded that the principal job of the commission was to provide atomic weapons, and good atomic weapons, and many atomic weapons. Oppenheimer was now a scientific statesman. He had little time to be a scientist. After the war, he had given up teaching to become the director of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, a center for theoretical research, renowned as the home of the most famous scientist in the world, Albert Einstein. But Oppenheimer rarely did any research himself anymore. He published only a few scientific papers, and after 1950, never published one again. And that was a great grief to him. He had had dreams of getting back into science and doing something great while he was here. His wife, Kitty, begged me if, if I couldn't actually work with Robert and actually do some science with him. And I never could. Some, you know, it was, he, he never got down to the nitty gritty. He was older. What, he was 40? He was past the age when people do their best scientific work. The popular press continued to depict him as a scientist on the cutting edge and a model American. A happily married man with two small children and a German shepherd called Buddy. No one knew that he was under close surveillance by the FBI because of his past ties to the Communist Party. Communists have been, still are, and always will be a menace to freedom, to democratic ideals, to the worship of God, and to America's way of life. With America's relationship with Russia deteriorating, the fear of communism seemed to be spreading everywhere. And FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover continued to find Oppenheimer suspicious in spite of Oppenheimer's leadership at Los Alamos and his immense reputation. There were periods in which there was a let-up, but the FBI started to follow and surveil Oppenheimer in about 1940, 1941, and never stopped. Never stopped. As the Soviets tightened their grip on Eastern Europe, the hunt for communist spies was becoming a national obsession. Looked at from outside, the United States was the most powerful country in the world. But in the U.S., there was this awareness that the Russians had walked all over Eastern Europe and that communism was being foisted on the peoples of those countries. And that was terrifying to the American public 
And it wasn't long before there were politicians who learned to exploit that fear. The House Un-American Activities Committee had begun investigating what they called the communist threat to the American way of life. In June 1949, it subpoenaed Oppenheimer. The famous scientist tried to charm the congressman. When they asked, he confirmed the names of communist party members. Some had been his students. Later, he said that his nerve just gave way. It looked as though he was just trying to save his own skin by incriminating the students. To me, it was was horrible. He must have sensed that the flames could get to him sometime. And it wasn't clear to him what he should do. That same June, Oppenheimer appeared before Congress again, but this time made a formidable enemy. Louis Strauss was the president of the Institute for Advanced Study. He had hired Oppenheimer as its director. Strauss was also a member of the Atomic Energy Commission, a self-made millionaire, ambitious, proud, fiercely anti-communist. He did not like to be crossed. If you disagree with Lewis about anything, a fellow Atomic Energy Commissioner said, he assumes you're just a fool at first. But if you go on disagreeing with him, he concludes you must be a traitor. Oppenheimer and Strauss clashed over a minor issue at a congressional hearing, and Strauss never forgave him. My opinion is that if the determination were made that isotopes should not be shipped abroad, the Congress would be making a profound mistake. Oppenheimer was testifying in support of exporting radioisotopes to Europe, while Strauss looked on, seething. Strauss violently disagreed, fearing that the isotopes might fall into the hands of Russia. In a reckless display of arrogance, Oppenheimer aimed a jibe directly at Strauss, telling the congressman that radioisotopes were no more dangerous than a shovel or a bottle of beer. And everybody laughed, and the journalist said he looked over at Louis Strauss, who had turned beet red. He had never seen so much hate and anger on anyone's face as he saw on Strauss's face at that moment. Strauss was very sensitive to criticism. <laughs> if he didn't like people, he dealt with them. And he had a long memory. He could deal with them a long time afterward, um, if he wanted to. On August 29th, 1949, the Soviet Union tested its first atomic bomb. America was still the most powerful nation on Earth, but the confidence of many of its citizens was shattered. There was near hysteria in Washington. People were running around screaming, the sky is falling in. Now, why would they do that? If you've got all of your eggs in the basket that it's a secret, and then the secret is lost, then of course you think you've lost everything. The day the test made headlines, Oppenheimer received a call from an agitated Edward Teller. What should I do now? Teller wanted to know. Keep your shirt on, Oppenheimer told him. (laughs) From Teller's point of view, if there was a balance of forces between us and the Soviet Union in Europe, 
They had four million men on the ground in Eastern Europe and we had the bomb. Now suddenly they had four million men on the ground in Europe, we had the bomb and they had the bomb. So the balance of forces was upset. He hated the Soviet Union. He grew up in Hungary and communism was a four letter word. So he thought the only way you could deal with the Soviet Union was have more bombs than they did. That they would be influenced by force and by nothing else. Teller believed he had the answer to the Soviet threat, the super, the hydrogen bomb, which had remained his pet project ever since Los Alamos. It was up to Oppenheimer and his general advisory committee to recommend to the Atomic Energy Commission whether or not to try and create the most awesome weapon of mass destruction ever devised. A good many people came to me or called me or wrote me letters about the super program. It was not clear to me what the right thing to do was. Was it crash development, the most rapid possible development and construction of a super? The debate over the H-bomb sparked a controversy fraught with danger for the unsuspecting scientist. Ever since the war had ended, Teller had been trying to convince any high official who would listen that the super would keep Americans safe. He thought that if we didn't develop it, the Russians surely would, and we would be at their mercy. He thought that it would be crazy not to develop it, and that those who opposed it might possibly be unpatriotic. But Oppenheimer and the General Advisory Committee worried more about the destructive power of the H-bomb than they did about the Russians. They voted eight to zero against it. There was a surprising unanimity, to me very surprising, that the United States ought not to take the initiative in an all-out program for the development of thermonuclear weapons. The committee concluded that it shouldn't be built because uh, this was a weapon of genocide that had absolutely no uh, military necessity and that our stockpile of atomic bombs was a sufficient deterrent. The debate seemed to be over. Oppenheimer, along with some of the country's most experienced nuclear scientists, had rendered their opinion. But President Truman, fearing the Russians would develop an H-bomb first, dismissed it. On November 1st, 1952, the world's first hydrogen bomb explosion vaporized the tiny island of Alugalab in the Pacific. It became a great big lagoon. It just went away. And the whole water around it was milky white. It was scary. The heat from this thing was really very frightening. It started getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. This is almost 30 miles away. These were no longer weapons that were military devices. They were simply weapons of mass destruction on the most terrible scale. Well, let's take New York. The blast would destroy the entire greater New York area. The fallout would take out the rest of the East Coast. One bomb. It meant that a new era of warfare was upon us. We now had in our possession a weapon of genocide, not just warfare. 
The modern arms race started with the invention of the hydrogen bomb, and after which it was escalation all the way. If the development by the enemy, as well as by us, of thermonuclear weapons could have been averted, I think we would be in a somewhat safer world today than we are. God knows, not entirely safe, because atomic bombs are not jolly either. Once the decision was made, Oppenheimer did nothing to oppose it. Frustrated, he considered leaving the government altogether, but instead played the loyal soldier. Later, Oppenheimer's lack of enthusiasm would be interpreted as outright opposition. Did you, subsequent to the president's decision of January 1950, ever express any opposition to the production of the hydrogen bomb on moral grounds? I would think I could very well have said this is a dreadful weapon or something like that. Why do you think that you could very well have said that? Because I have always thought it was a dreadful weapon. Even if from a technical point of view it was a sweet and lovely and beautiful job, I have still thought it was a dreadful weapon. And have said so? I would assume I have said so, yes. You mean... You had a moral revulsion against the production of such a dreadful weapon. This is too strong. Beg pardon? That is too strong. Which is too strong, the weapon or my expression? Your expression. I had grave concern and anxiety. You had moral qualms about it. Is that accurate? Let us leave the word moral out of it. You had qualms about it. How could one not have qualms about it? I know no one who doesn't have qualms about it. Oppenheimer wasn't opposed to building nuclear weapons. He was just opposed to building huge nuclear weapons that wouldn't that were bigger than the targets. In 1950, the United States went to war in Korea. Soon, Americans were fighting both Korean and Chinese communists while the Russians seemed to be growing increasingly belligerent. Oppenheimer knew that America's military planned a devastating response to any Soviet attack. In 1951, he was shown the Air Force's top-secret strategic war plan. The plan was that we would bomb our way across Eastern Europe with nuclear weapons. We would then destroy the Soviet Union, and then... As a kind of an extra, we'd go on and destroy China because, after all, it was a communist country. The American government was planning in its nuclear weapons response to any Soviet attack to kill 200 and something million people within a week or two. Uh, I mean, Oppenheimer just felt that this was madness, sheer madness. Oppenheimer spoke out for moderation. He took a stand against building nuclear-powered aircraft and submarines and advocated open discussion of the growing arms race. And there's grave danger for us that these decisions are taken on the basis of facts held secret. If we are guided by fear alone, we'll fail in this time of crisis. But powerful Washington insiders believed he was standing in the way of America's ability to defend itself. They were led by Louis Straws. With the election of Dwight Eisenhower to the presidency, 
Strauss became the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission. He now had the power to build a case to rid the government of the influential scientist. Strauss would deliberately destroy the name and reputation and government position of Robert Oppenheimer. And when he destroyed something, he destroyed it thoroughly. Strauss began by orchestrating a campaign in America's most popular news magazines, alleging that Oppenheimer was undermining the nation's atomic weapons program. The stories depicted Edward Teller as a scientific patriot. Teller readily joined the crusade against his old boss. He had long wanted to remove Oppenheimer from public life. In 1951, he told the FBI that a lot of people believe Oppenheimer opposed the development of the hydrogen bomb on direct orders from Moscow. Teller sincerely believed that we were in a dangerous arms race with the Russians and that Oppenheimer was standing in the way of protecting the country against this dreaded foe. I think he may well have sincerely believed that. And I'm sure for Teller, it was also a very personal jealousy. Oppenheimer likes his bomb, but he doesn't like my bomb. I know that sounds absurd. And yet I have no doubt that it was part of the equation. So get rid of him and then tell her like cream would rise to the top of the bottle. They needed to get Oppenheimer out of the way so that Strauss and Teller could realign the physics community around the dream of building new and better bombs. Late in August 1953, the Russians exploded what the press called a hydrogen bomb. The news seemed to confirm what Americans feared. Their nuclear secrets were being stolen. Two years before, reports that Soviet agents had penetrated Los Alamos and passed atomic secrets to the Russians under Oppenheimer's watch had stunned them. Convinced that America was vulnerable, many began searching for someone to blame. One communist on the faculty of one university is one communist humanity. The reputations and careers of loyal citizens in universities, businesses, and government were already being ruined. Are you a member of the communist conspiracy as of this moment? People were really convinced that tomorrow Soviets were going to take over America. And they were convinced that it would be because of internal subversion, not because of external activity, but because we had spies and they were destroying the American way. The former executive director of the Congressional Joint Committee on Atomic Energy was convinced that Oppenheimer was one of them. William Borden had harbored doubts about Oppenheimer for years and shared his suspicions with Strauss. Borden is a natural ally of Louis Strauss. And Strauss allows Borden to take Oppenheimer's security file home. And Borden studies it for months and writes this letter to J. Edgar Hoover. Borden outlined a series of charges against Oppenheimer. He concluded with an accusation that went off like a bombshell. More probably than not, Borden wrote, J. Robert Oppenheimer is an agent of the Soviet Union. Hoover forwarded the letter to the White House. The president called in Louis Strauss to help him decide what to do. 
Straws convinces Eisenhower that if this letter was sat on by the administration, it would cost Eisenhower politically. And Eisenhower declares that a wall should be put between Oppenheimer and secrecy. On December 21st, 1953, Straws told Oppenheimer that his security clearance had been suspended. The country's most famous authority on atomic weapons, the father of the A-bomb, was stunned. He fell into a despairing state of mind, a friend remembered. The following evening, after meeting with his lawyers and more than one drink, he fainted on the bathroom floor. When he began to think about the consequences of what he was facing. I think he realized that he was in deep, deep trouble for the first time in his life. Oppenheimer realized that he was going to pay. I think he had the tragic sense. He understood the drama that he had to play out even though he later called it a farce. The hearings were enveloped in an atmosphere of fierce anti-communism. It was reported that in 1940, you were listed as a sponsor of the Friends of the Chinese People an organization characterized by the House Committee on Un-American Activities as a communist front organization. At stake was a man's dignity and the role that nuclear weapons would play in America's military strategy. It was reported that you strongly opposed the hydrogen bomb on moral grounds and by claiming that it was not feasible and not politically desirable. And even after it was determined to proceed, you continued to oppose the project. Confronted with charges that could ruin his reputation, Oppenheimer himself insisted on the hearing, despite the warnings of some of his friends. Oppenheimer couldn't see tucking tail and walking away. What would that say about the charges against him? On the other hand, it's too bad he didn't understand what sort of forces he was up against. With no credible evidence to prove that Oppenheimer had put America's security at risk, prosecutor Roger Robb, would have to wear the scientist down, force him into contradictions, confuse and embarrass him. Your brother Frank told you in 1936, or probably 1937, that he and his wife Jackie had joined the Communist Party. Did he ask your advice about it? Oh, no. He had taken the step. I had confidence in his decency and straightforwardness and in his loyalty to me. Tell us the test that you applied to acquire the confidence that you have spoken of. Uh, in the case of a brother, one doesn't make tests. At least I didn't. Well, I knew my brother. When did you decide that your brother was no longer a member of the party and no longer dangerous? I never regarded my brother as dangerous. Rob was an experienced trial lawyer. But Louis Straws wasn't taking any chances. The hearings turned into a trial in which Straws made the rules. 
Straws selected the judges, kept the defense from seeing all the relevant documents, and from knowing in advance which witnesses would be called. They are in a war against communism, and therefore the normal rules of justice have to be set aside in order to protect uh, the body politic. Straws even broke the law to get his man. The FBI bugged Oppenheimer's lawyer's offices, his home, nearly everywhere he went, then passed the information along to the prosecutor. The defense strategy was known to the prosecution in advance. It was the worst kind of kangaroo court. They had them ten ways to Sunday. Uh, there were approaches to other people um, who were troubled by them, and sometimes they came and discussed them with me. Uh, that's as far as I can go on that. Unknown to Oppenheimer or his lawyer, Rob had discovered the secret recording of Oppenheimer's conversation with Army Intelligence Officer Colonel Pash. He carefully studied the transcript and prepared a trap to catch Oppenheimer in a lie. Did Chevalier tell you or indicate to you in any way that he had talked to anyone but you about this matter? No. You are sure about that? Yes. Did you learn from anybody else or hear that Chevalier had approached anyone but you about this matter? No. You are sure about that? That is right. Doctor, I would like to read from the transcript of your interview with Colonel Pash. There were approaches to other people who were troubled by them and sometimes came and discussed them with me. That's as far as I can go on that. Do you recall saying something like that? I don't recall that conversation very well. I can only rely on the transcript. Doctor, for your information, I might say that we have a record of your voice. Sure. Do you have any doubt that you said that? No. So as to be clear, did you discuss with or disclose to Pash the identity of Chevalier? No. Let us refer to him then for the time being as X. All right. Didn't you say that X had approached three people? Probably. Why did you do that, Doctor? Because I was an idiot. <laughs> Is that your only explanation, Doctor? I was reluctant to mention Chevalier. Yes. No doubt somewhat reluctant to mention myself. So you told Pash that there were several people that were contacted. Right. And your testimony now is that was a lie. Right. That wasn't true. That is right. You did, you were sure, tell Colonel Pash there was more than one person involved. This whole thing is a pure fabrication, except for the one named Eltonton. Why did you go to such great circumstantial detail about this thing if you knew it was a cock and bull story. I fear this whole thing is a piece of idiocy. Oppenheimer is up against a kind of psychological torture. 
He was broken down by a very, very skillful prosecutor, made to look stupid, made to look like a fool. The purpose in proving him a liar was to impress the hearing board that he couldn't be trusted and that they should declare him a security risk. It had to be totally humiliating and destroy his confidence in himself. He's being told that he's a liar, untrustworthy, unworthy, and he folded. The story I told Pash is not a true story. There were not three or more people involved. I believe I can do no more than say that the story I told is a false story. It is not easy to say that. Now, when you ask as to why I did this, other than that I was an idiot, I'm going to have more trouble being understandable. I found myself, I believe, trying to give a tip to the intelligence people without realizing that when you give the tip, you must tell the whole story. But I am in any case solemnly testifying that there was no conspiracy in what I knew and what I know of this matter. I wish I could explain to you better why I falsified and fabricated. The trial proved to him his worst fears. Oppenheimer had been troubled all his life about who he was. He later said that he was repulsive to himself. The trial said that he had defects of character, that he was not a good human being. And unfortunately, he agreed. Oppenheimer testified for 27 hours. A parade of witnesses was called on both sides. He looked wan, demoralized by the time Edward Teller took the stand. Teller drove the final nail into Oppenheimer's coffin. I thoroughly disagreed with Dr. Oppenheimer in numerous issues, and his actions, frankly, appeared to me confused and complicated. I feel that I would like to see the vital interests of this country in hands which I understand better and therefore trust more. I would feel personally more secure if public matters would rest in other hands. I'm sorry. After what you've just said, I don't know what you mean. The hearing lasted nearly four weeks. In his closing remarks, Oppenheimer's lawyer warned, America must not devour her own children. 
We find that Dr. Oppenheimer's continuing conduct and associations have reflected a serious disregard for the requirements of the security system. We have found a susceptibility to influence which could have serious implications for the security interests of the country. We find his conduct in the hydrogen bomb program sufficiently disturbing. We have regretfully concluded that Dr. Oppenheimer has been less than candid in several instances in his testimony. By a vote of two to one, the board concluded that although Oppenheimer was a loyal citizen, his security clearance should be revoked. Numb and bewildered, Oppenheimer told a friend, I have so little sense of self remaining. In a futile gesture, he appealed to the Atomic Energy Commission, chaired by Louis Strauss. The commission upheld the verdict, four to one. I took a train ride with him to New York. And for some reason, he started talking about my case. My case. And he said to me that at the time, he thought it was happening to somebody else. He wasn't accused in the course of the hearing of having ever betrayed a secret. It was about getting Oppenheimer out of the security councils of the U.S. government. America's most influential voice for nuclear moderation had been stilled. The Oppenheimer hearing was a political battle between the Strauss view of needing more and more and more nuclear weapons and the Oppenheimer view that nuclear weapons are a part of our defense, but we have to you know, use them sensibly and we can't rely on them totally. That hearing had a profound effect on the nuclear arms race. It essentially opened the floodgates. It removed the legitimacy of criticism against more and more nuclear weapons. In 1954, the year of the Oppenheimer hearings, America had some 300 nuclear weapons. By the end of the 20th century, the United States would have at the ready more than 70,000. We built so many more than we ever needed, and the Soviets followed suit. Robert Oppenheimer turned 50. His security clearance had been revoked. His connection to the government had been severed. He would live for 13 more years, but he was never the same man. He had a strong, forceful leader before that, and he was a beaten man afterwards. He gave lectures on science and its interaction with humanity. He continued to direct the Institute for Advanced Study. 
he became what Yeats calls a smiling public man. I saw a lot of him at that time, and I saw the impact that this tragedy had on him. I can't recall ever seeing him happy, you know, just relaxed and having fun. I don't have the feeling that he ever felt good about himself, that he was ever in any sense at peace with himself. In 1963, Oppenheimer received what many saw as an official apology. President Lyndon Johnson presented him with one of the nation's highest scientific honors, the Fermi Award from the Atomic Energy Commission. With countless other men and women, we are engaged in this great enterprise of our time, testing whether men can live without war as the great arbiter of history. I think it just possible, Mr. President, that it has taken some charity and some courage to make this award today. Edward Teller was there that day, come to offer his congratulations. When he extended his hand, once again, Oppenheimer shook it. After the ceremony, Louis Straws wrote an angry letter to Life magazine complaining that honoring Oppenheimer dealt a severe blow to the security system which protects our country. Hmm. Robert Oppenheimer died four years later. He was 62. In those twilight years, he seldom returned to the New Mexico where he had come to feel at peace. When he was 24, he had written a poem inspired by the wilderness he loved so well and the allure of death. It was evening when we came to the river with a low moon over the desert that we had lost in the mountains, forgotten, what with the cold and the sweating and the ranges far in the sky. We waited a long time in silence. Then we heard the oars creaking. And afterwards, I remember the boatman called to us. We did not look back at the mountains. take a little um, a little uh, moment to just uh, whew. so Rama's going to find this next one we have this ought to you know as we say the power of love is the answer 
and war is never the answer. Uh, the one we want to do now, everybody, is called Love and Destiny Cards. Okay. That's two separate books. They're by the same author. Love and Destiny Cards in a Common Deck. What as a common 52-card deck holds the clues to a soul's destiny and love in this lifetime? Author Robert Lee Camp reintroduces an original divination tool found in diamonds, spades, hearts, and clubs based on quadratic spreads of Atlantean origin. Mm. Robert Lee Camp gives simple guidelines for anyone to access an ancient accurate divination system using a common deck of 52 cards. He shares tips from his book, Your Destiny is in the Cards, to unlock connections to astrology and numerology. Episode includes the history of playing cards as a cloaked underground system of divination with roots predating Chinese and Indian claims of invention. Detailed breakdown of card meaning and corresponding to the Gregorian calendar as well as astrological and numerological correlations. And this is with Regina Meredith. Mm. And this will, um, I think, bring a balance to what we listen. That was very, very intense, yet for the record, everyone. And again, Mm. love is the answer. So we'll get started with this. Here we go. This is 33 minutes. Yes. Every ancient civilization, like the Chinese, the Indians, they all claim to have invented the cards, and he said they came from Atlantis. These tell your lifetime karma on the positive and the negative and what you're likely to experience during your life. It has four suits, we have four seasons. We have red and black, which is day and night. But the most magical fact about cards that most people don't know is you add up the entire deck, it equals exactly the number of days in the year. I translated all these spreads into linear spreads that were really easy to read and wrote a book about it. If you have a kid as a ten of diamonds, they'll either get it by being a good kid or by being a bad kid. Okay. But they're gonna get your attention. Who among us doesn't enjoy a wonderful divination system? From astrology to numerology to tarot, each of these systems has its value and beauty in looking deeper into the hidden influences in our lives. But perhaps my very favorite of all is the destiny cards, an ancient system using a deck of cards. 
I first discovered the cards in the 1980s and picked it back up with Robert Lee Camp's books in the early 2000s, and we are very lucky to have him here with us today. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Regina. It's great to be here. I've got to tell you, I lived in Sedona. Your books were pretty much in every household. It was like the Gideon Bible and, you know, Motel 6. Everybody had the destiny or love cards or both. Uh-huh. And and some became pretty proficient at it. And the thing that struck me is like, how is it possible they're that specific and specifically accurate? So anyway, you're going to help us understand all. I so welcome. Love to. <laughs> well, first of all, um, first of all, let's talk about the cards, where the system came from initially, because most of the people have never heard of this system. Yeah, well, it's the, ancient. It, it the first book that was ever made public about this was in 1894 by a man named Only Richmond. And before that, nobody had ever heard anything. And Only Richmond said that every ancient civilization, like the Chinese, the Indians, they all claim to have invented the cards, which he said tells you that it had to be somebody that was much earlier than all of them. And he said they came from Atlantis, which was like 20,000 years ago. And passed down through and Egypt. passed and passed down, yes. And like, then on and went quiet. It was really okay, listen, let me find out. This this was part of kind of underground, almost priesthood kind of knowledge that was cloaked and kept in use by only those in with deep knowledge. And I have the only Richmond book and I was like my eyes are going every direction. I couldn't <laughs> figure that out for the life of me. He was the world checker champion three years in a row. He was. And he was an apothecary. You know, and back then, homeopathic medicine was very common. And to be an apothecary, you had to be a mathematician because they have to do titrations of of essences. And it's like all this math. And he that's what he did for a living. Well, that book, I mean, and he, I remember he said it was a very, very big deal when he was told he was to release this information because it had not been released to the public before in those thousands of years. Yeah, he was given uh, the, the some books and information and told that he was going to take this on and bring it to the attention of the world. And he said, this was during the Civil War, and he told the guy, I'm not even going to live through this war. Yeah. Uh, and then later he would share stories of how bullets would just miss him, like they go through his hat or his legs, uh, pant legs, and just miss him and how he came through the war and he did. And then, he and then he established a temple in Chicago and, uh, and published a couple of books out of that. And so then that takes us a little further along. Artie Ling, yeah. who that's the book I had in the eighties. What's your card? It was one book. What's your card? Yeah. I remember it was gold. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about that distillation before you then came onto the scene. Well, there was a book before, between Arnie Lean's book and uh, the Mystic Test book. Oh, and, I don't know about that one. And it's called Sacred Symbols of the Ancients Okay. by Florence Campbell and Edith Randall. So this book has been around. It was published in the 40s. And it didn't tell you anything about the prediction aspect, but it did tell you a lot about each of the birth cards. That's the book that turned me onto the system. A friend handed it to me, and I read it, and I was blown away by it, how it described my life. And it wasn't flattering. It was kind of... <laughs> You have a hard card. <laughs> yeah, my, yeah, and she let me know it. You know, I mean, she's hard on some. They're they're hard on some people's cards, but and I threw it down, and I was like, "This is so negative." And then two weeks later, I was out finding one in the bookstore, and I was like, "This is so amazing." And I was like, I was already doing astrology. I was like, "How could this possibly work?" Because in astrology, you need the time, the date, the place, yeah. and this all you need is the month and the and the, the day. day. 
And and there's eight birthdays that have my same card. How is it possible that it's accurate? But it was. And I know. It's kind of like magic. I really don't understand how to yeah. this day. I'm just constantly amazed. And that's why my friends and I, you know, something's going on. I tend to look at it in hindsight because I don't want to get programmed. Uh, like this year is a really difficult year. And I happen to have been looking. You know, I normally don't look. And I thought <laughs> this time it actually helped. It's like. Yes, it's going to be a tough year, so pull on your big girl under britches and, and deal with it, flow with it. So it can, even if it's hard stuff coming up, it can prepare you. Yeah, I mean, knowing ahead of time that there's a pothole in the road yeah. gives you a chance to prepare for it, maybe change the direction a little bit, Yeah, change the attitude. And looking it. in hindsight, it's like just validating, like, oh, my God, yeah, that, that year was absolutely amazing. Everything everything happened for me that year, right? These kind of years you're having, they usually prelude uh, a year of a big new beginning, you know? Oh, I feel, personally, I feel that. I feel yeah. so the huge doors are going to be swinging open. It's like these things had to be cleared out to make room for this new cycle that's coming in. So not to be afraid when we look in the book and we see... Nines. Nine, <laughs> we see a whole bunch of nines. Nines, which, you know, in numerolo- numerology, it's it's transformation or death and tra- yeah, transformation. It's letting yeah. go. But, letting you know, go. a nine can mean also, uh, it can also mean fulfillment in some situations because nines show up when people get married who are single. Mm-hmm. Nine of hearts, uh, it, because now it's the end of being single or you can if a nine of diamonds comes along you could actually achieve something that you've wanted for years from 20 or 30 years you finally achieve it and it brings happiness right and it's, a, it's still an ending it's an ending of that wanting of this thing yes yes know, like that so what, what most people don't realize about the common deck of cards is how significant it is it's the only card system you might say that perfectly matches the the cycles and the calendar of planet earth Lunar cycles. It, it has mm-hmm. 13, it has four suits. We have four seasons. It's got 13 cards in each suit. We have 13 full moons every year. Uh, there's seven days in a week and seven is the number right in the center from ace to thir- to the king from one to 13. Seven sits right in the center. It's the first of the spiritual numbers. We have red and black, which is day and night. And, but the most magical fact about cards that most people don't know is if you, if you take the number value of every card in the deck, we call it the face value, an ace being a one, two, three, up to the jacks are 11, queens are 12. You add up the entire deck. It equals exactly the number of days in the year, 365. Yes. And no other card system does this. And it shows you that it was made for planet Earth. It was made to be a symbolic representation of the cycles of the Earth. And so, I mean, in my system of belief, I, I would just, if I were just going to be kind of a pop analyst on this, I would think you were one of the masters in the Atlantean times. And it's time to reintroduce it. You've come in these times to help people um, have this kind of system to be able to make sense of their lives more easily because you made it easy. Yeah, I, I saw it and I thought, you know, everybody should be able to use this. It was complicated when I learned it. It was you had to learn how to read these grand solar spreads. I right, right. And even I made mistakes in calculating the cards for each year and each mm-hmm. planetary period. So I was already a programmer. Yes. And, and your, your life's been devoted to making this simple, accessible. To so I, I translated all these spreads into linear spreads that were really easy to to read and 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 wrote a book about it 
and made it easy to use. And that was been my purpose ever long, all, all along. So here we have, we're going to look at a couple. We'll look at the spiritual spread first and the top cards in the spiritual spread. So just tell us what that means. What's what, whatever so, it, the top. So, so these means. two spreads are the heart of the entire system. Mm-hmm. And if you understood it completely, you would, everything you need is ever, is found in these two, even though there's actually 90 of these total. Mm-hmm. Because these are, if you look at the difference between the spiritual and the life spread, you see that the cards have moved mm-hmm. to different locations. And it's done by a very specific process called quadration. And I, I could display that, but it would take too long. Yeah, but, and a lot of people don't like math and all that. So Yeah, so, so, you know, there's you end up quadrating this one and it becomes the life spread and you quadrate that and it becomes the next. Mm-hmm. And each of these also represents a year of life. You find your card here in the spread and there's a specific method for counting. So the life spread is like our lifetime karma, you might say. It's almost like your natal chart. Where you are in this life spread, your position in this life spread, it tells most of the karma you're going to experience in this lifetime. Okay, I'm looking at this in front of me and here we see across the bottom, we see astrological signs and also down the side. So now how does that factor in? So people that know astrology, this system comes very quickly to them because there is an astrological element to this system. Each of these lines and columns are governed by a planet. Mm -hmm. So like when you find your card, like you are a six of clubs, Mm -hmm. it's the Saturn column and the Neptune line. And that tells a lot about your lifetime. Well, for example, what would that tell about a six of clubs? Well, if you if you notice both both cards, uh, both sides, six of clubs is in, in one it's in a Saturn line and the other it's in a Saturn column, okay? So a strong affiliation with Saturn, so which if we Saturn. knew, we'd be terrified if we knew that at birth. <laughs> well, it, it, what it means is that most six of clubs are very hard on themselves. They're very Saturn to themselves, okay? They actually have the most blessed life spread of every card. They have the best card in Venus for love. They have the best card in Mars and Jupiter for money and success. And yet they are hard on themselves. They, 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 they so demand so much of themselves. To drive to be, to do the best you can. Exactly. And, and, the, and they need to be honest and they, they, they insist on that. And so, King Charles says the Six of Clubs. Oh, there's so many famous Six of Clubs people because Six of Clubs, your life spread goes from the Six of Clubs to the Six of Spades, the Queen of Hearts, and up to the Ten of Clubs to the crown line. So all Six of Clubs think big. They're always looking ahead like, my brother's a Six of Club, and he, he goes to me, Robert, why aren't you famous yet? <laughs> like, you should be. Well, you're becoming famous. <laughs> but he's always thinking that way, you know, and a lot of six of clubs, that's how they think. Yeah, it's a larger vision. It's a missionary card. So it's about taking and helping transform. Well, its highest role is to be a vessel for knowledge. Yes. To, to, that helps mankind because it's a John the Baptist card who brought the, the knowledge of Jesus. Right. And that's the allegory. Okay, so that's your brother. And Prince Charles and even me and many others. Now your card. Uh, Queen of Diamonds. Uh, one of the two hardest cards in the deck. <laughs> you must, did you resent your brother for having such an easy life? Well, you know, <laughs> he was always smiling. My brother is always smiling. I, it, I, he had a good last lifetime. He, I, I can't. You know, he's another He's another piece of work, my brother. But... Um, you know, I didn't resent him for it because I was the oldest, so I got to, you know, I got to kick his butt, you know, when I was young. Okay, so you got you trumped him that way. Yeah. But what, so let's talk about your Queen of 
diamonds? Well, the queen of diamonds, we get tested on every single area of life, money, relationships, uh, attitude, uh, you know, uncertainty. Uh, you know, a lot of queen of diamonds have multiple marriages. I'm in my fifth and last marriage. Yeah. And, and you, you have know, a beautiful little son. And I'm you're the happy. same birthday as Tom Cruise. He's had three. Yeah. He'll probably have four or five before he's done. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, it takes a long time. There's a lot of karma. There's a couple of cards that have a lot of tremendous karma from past lives. And Queen of Diamonds is one of those cards. It has a lot of karma. So we have to, like, you know, get straightened out about a lot of stuff. Isn't it interesting, though? You saw this card at first, and this woman was quite harsh with about the reality of this card. And you're thinking, get that thing away from me. And then you end up embracing this as your life's work, even though you feel you you didn't have the greatest advantages through the cards yourself. Yeah, I recognize the truth of it. That was probably my only saving grace as I realized, you know, yeah, it's hard to hear this, but this is all absolutely true. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can't deny it. That's how my life and I was young then. So I I hadn't even seen the bulk of it yet. You know, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. Those are, so that's an example of a couple of different cards and how they show. So back to looking at the spread. So we see the astrological part, which we talked about. And then you have across here these. The yeah. There, there are, are some significant yeah. positions, you might yeah. say. First of all, Jupiter is the best planet. And if you're in the Jupiter line or the Jupiter column, you have uh, a lot of blessings in your life. You know, uh, the Ten of Diamonds being the double Jupiter card. Uh, which is always protected, always protected. Bad things do happen to them, but nothing ever really gets them. And we're talking like the about, lightning will strike the person next to you. That's right. <laughs> and we're talking about Tom Brady and R.F. Kennedy Jr. Right. We're going to get back to him in a bit too. So talk about that. So so here, here's the Ten of Diamonds. We call it the most blessed card. But it's very interesting because they have two outstanding things. They have a five of hearts in Saturn, which means they all will go through a tremendously difficult divorce, mm-hmm. if not two, uh, in their lifetime. That's or even loss that, of a spouse or some, some that, kind of loss. That could happen that way, yeah, too. Sure. Yeah. And the other thing is that even though they're blessed, they have a hard time receiving money and, and prosperity from the universe. They feel like they have to give to everybody and won't let people give to them. So Tom Brady was the best quarterback that ever lived and the lowest paid quarterback. That yeah, ever lived. I didn't know that. Yeah. But I don't read the sports pages yeah. anymore. But yeah. seriously. Yeah, he he. Yeah, he's still in the news yes. every day. It doesn't matter. What oh, he well, has. Why you know, it also is the center of the whole deck. So it wants to be the center of attention one way or the other. Oh, interesting. I mean, they'll, if you have a kid as a ten of diamonds, they'll either get it by being a good kid or by being a bad kid. Okay. But they're going to get your attention. <laughs> and Tom Brady does get our attention no matter what is going on in his And life. he's a Leo, too. So, I mean, Leo's already, you know, he's like the quintessential ten of diamonds yeah. of all time. And we're going to talk about Robert F. Kennedy a little bit later sure. in that. Sure. Okay, so... Across the top, then these, you call these the crown This cards? is called the crown line. So people that uh, live up there or whose cards are up there, these people think they're better than everybody else. Got know? an attitude. Well, you know, it's like all you guys down here, all you 49 cards down here, you're the common folk. <laughs> all the rules that apply to you, they don't really apply to us. You know, we're talking about uh, Johnny Depp. So he's... Destined to be very have a very pronounced life. Yeah, but you know, I had a I have a best friend who's at birthday, and he's you know he was running for mayor for sheriff. I'm sorry, in our county where I live, but then he passed away all of a sudden, like at age 55. 
He just passed. Didn't need to, he had a heart potential condition. for that destiny. Yeah. So you know, but but the potential is always there. That King of Spades is so strong. That's the strongest card in the whole deck, and it's completely fixed. Like their will is, it's going to be their way or the highway, and that's that's a good or a bad thing depending on how you look at well, it. Well, it doesn't lend to diplomacy. No, but it does lend to power. But it does, yeah. And it lends to, it lends to taking responsibility for stuff and not, you know, not blaming anybody else for how things are going. And a lot of people are, as we discovered, three people on your staff have here have Ten of Clubs as one of their cards. Yes. You know, I mean, they're all about broadcasting, getting the word out about, about something. Could it be more perfect? You know, I mean, so many Ten of Clubs are, are famous. It's, it's, it's mind blowing how many Ten of Clubs end up being famous. It's, it's so common. And a lot of them have these other cards with them. So mm-hmm. it's a double whammy. Mm-hmm. So that's how that goes. And at the center is the Ten of Diamonds we just talked about. And then what about the cards that are down? Does it matter what's toward the top or bottom? Or is it all about this alignment between these two columns? Well, the um, the direction of these cards, when you look at it, is they go from the right side to the left side. Mm-hmm. If you notice over here, the Ace of Hearts on the spiritual spread, and it goes that way instead mm-hmm. of the way we read which is from left to right. Okay. So when you're, and your life spread proceeds in front of you. So the first card in your life spread represents the first 13 years of your life. So in your case, it was a six of spades and then Mm -hmm. a queen of hearts the next 13 years. And then you go up here for 13, 13, 13. Mm -hmm. So you got, so the six of clubs has 39 years in the crown line. Oh, that's a long time. You know, so because of that, cards down here, a lot of cards down here have the potential Mm-hmm. to achieve a lot of notoriety and fame because mm-hmm. this is the place of fame and recognition up here. It's mm-hmm. like the 10,000 astrology is very similar. Right, you know, right. People that have 10,000 planets always feel like they're going to be something special in their lifetime. Right. Okay, so what about the when you go into the destiny cards, you'll look up your year, which is the age you are, and then you start seeing these influences that have an astrological influence during like a couple month breakdowns or so. How does that go and what is that showing us? So in the book, there'll be two pages in the Cards of Your Destiny book that has your whole life in in little tiny lines of cards called spreads. There's like 17 cards in in each spread. And these cards are divided up in different ways. There are seven periods of the year, which is another, here's another really amazing thing about the cards. There's seven periods of the year. Each one is 52 days long. Mm -hmm. There you have that 52. And five and two together is a seven. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, seven is everywhere in the cards. So on your birthday, it begins the new year. And you'll have these two cards. And they'll be in the the Mercury period, the first period of the year. And these two cards will tell you what's happening, who it's happening with, what the nature of it's going to be for you. Yeah, because it's showing the cards. So that might be a card of a key person in your life. It could be somebody in your life or it could be an event or it could be both at the same yes. time. Yeah. So you can. And you'll see if it's under Saturn or, or Mercury. Or yeah, Jupiter. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, mm-hmm. Saturn, Uranus and Neptune period. And each has a distinct quality. Saturn being the most difficult. Jupiter and Venus being the most fun. Usually, you know, so like you wouldn't plan a trip during a Saturn period. Yeah. And everybody has Unless a Saturn Unless it's a period. trip to Earth. Mine are all Saturn, apparently. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> sometimes you can't avoid it. But, yeah. you know, in general, you would you want to yeah. like uh, it's good for doctor visits. It's good for teaching, for being and getting taught by somebody. But it's not good for fun, fun, fun OK, gotcha. Yeah. But then you have five cards that influence the entire year. And these are the most important. Like there's the, they're the headliners of the year, like the long range card, the the environment displacement and, and Pluto and result cards. 
And these tell you like a general theme for the whole year, which in retrospect, you'll look and see that it's been accurate. Oh, yeah. You won't really get the message until you get into the year, maybe three periods, because it's so new, the year. Yeah. But it's it's really cool how every year on your birthday, you have completely new influences and you can see them coming. And like if you wanted to make a lot of money and you saw you had a really good money card coming up in a period, you could plan for that and, you know, make take some action that would allow people to give right. more money. Right. Or maybe someone comes along with a suggestion you might otherwise ignore and you think, wait a minute. Or let's say your health is a little iffy and you see you have a difficult health card coming in Saturn. Well, you can take action now to improve your lifestyle and your health situation so that this won't will be minimized ahead of time. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I interacted with it, because I never before looked up a year in advance. I usually look in hindsight. Yeah. You know, I want to find my own way. But I just happened to and saw that it was going to be very difficult and actually, it's been helpful. I said, okay, let go. Just I let did a show with here. Mary Lou Henner, and she was real skeptic. She's a two of spades, so yeah. she's very logical, you know, and she goes, on, this cards, these cards, what is this all about? You know, this is before we're on the show. And, and I said, well, she said, well, I, I looked and I, you know, I had a son last year and I don't see his, I don't see a birth, a, having a child card anywhere i go what's his birthday and she told me and i was like her long range card for the year yeah <laughs> she results she still did not want to admit that, yeah. it, that it had made any sense to her <laughs> well it does i i do have to say so that's evident you can see that from the birth of your child look at their card you know you kind of get a feeling for what their soul has come in to do yeah their challenges as well as their gifts absolutely and, you know i'm thinking of writing a book about parents and children and the cards because it, it would really help a lot of parents like give their children a better start in life by understanding their nature and not fighting with it, trying to make them into something that they want them to be. That would know. be so useful. Yeah, that's the only book I have in my mind that I might write. Is this about. like how, essentially, how do you engage with and raise a king of spades? Or how do you raise a five of clubs, you know, which will go against all norms and and not follow the advice of their father or, you know, or anybody and, and resist authority <laughs> figures and yeah. and be do the craziest things that anybody else ever would they never take chances. They do. They want to experience everything. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's talk about that for a moment. Resonance groups. Um, in my family, for example, my parents are deceased now. My mother was the seven of spades. I'm the, I mean of of clubs. I'm the six. My sister's the five. My dad's the four. My son's the two. Um, you're his a father triple, is you're a triple two, club. And I'm a triple All club. All three of your clubs um, and your I'm cars a triple are clubs. Club. I mean, so everyone in our family are clubs. Yeah. And we and we also got we got on well. Yeah, well, you know, uh depending on your karma, you'll either be in a family where, you know, there's harmony or there can be disharmony. You know. Right. Uh there can be there's all sorts of karma that gets interwoven into families. I mean, how many siblings did you have? One. One. Well, I have six. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a lot of potential for disharmony. <laughs> yeah. Two of my siblings are six of clubs, by the way. My, one, I have two a sister and a brother who are six of clubs. Well, that's what I'm wondering. There are these kind of resonances. I that seem we draw to have to some us. karma with six of clubs. I mean, I just have yeah. had a lot of different connections with six of clubs people and I can see it in the cards. I can see it, mm -hmm. you know, show up there. But you'll have that in your life. You'll have certain people that you run into a lot of. Like you said, you have a lot of ten of diamonds. No, I have a ton of four of diamonds. Four of diamonds. I love them. 
Yeah, well. Easy relationship. I love Four of Diamonds. Well, you know, depending on their birthday, you've got a lot of connections with them. You're in the same row down yeah. here you're in the bottom row, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, but what about this notion of families? Do Is it unusual for families to come in in a similar suit or the preponderance It's a little of bit unusual if they're all the same suit. Um, oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of un- that's kind of unique. Uh, but I've seen families that all have the same number. Oh, okay. Let's talk about that. Tell us about that family. I had a family and what the that number all was. they were all nines. Oh no. Yeah, they were all nines. Okay, now I I can't fathom how that would flow. Well, being a nine is is considered uh, it's a tough life unless you're spiritual. Like a lot of spiritual oh, yeah. teachers are nine. Are yeah. nines? Uh-huh. Uh, Eckhart Tolle is a nine of diamonds. Uh, Einstein was an eight, was a nine of diamonds, um, and so there is like in the life of a nine, you have to let go. So it can either be a life of like complaining about how much you lose all the time, or it can be a, a lifetime of merging with the infinite and becoming awake. How did that family contend with the nines? Well, they were they Somewhere were kind, they were kind asleep. of weird. They were kind of weird. <laughs> I remember they had this baby and they wouldn't they they covered all the furniture in their house with plastic so that he couldn't get the furniture dirty. And I I can't conceive of that. Oh well, my mother did that. We had our little thighs sticking to that nasty clear plastic growing up. What's the point? <laughs> it, it, well, it becomes an obsession. It can nines can be obsessive about stuff, you know, yeah. because it's a high number. Like there's only the ten above the nine. Mm-hmm. You know, all all the higher numbers can be a little obsessive at times. Yeah, so that would be crazy. Okay, let's talk about another kind of reflection, which is if you have a family or a group with a preponderance of fives. Yeah, I like I'd like to see that. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, fives are always breaking tradition. Yeah, they mean they want change, change, change. And and, and the the very essence of a five is dissatisfaction. Mm. Like I'm not happy with where I'm at, what's going on. So that leads to adventures, to travel, to non-commitment in relationships and jobs. Freedom is like sacred to fives, you know. So I, I can't even imagine a family of fives. What would that be like? <laughs> that be like? Most five people have a lot of issues with their dads because the dad is the essential authority figure and they're totally against authority. Right. So they usually have a... A, an abusive relationship with their fathers mm-hmm. in some form, either verbally or physically. So, you know, or even uh, perceived, you know, so yeah. it, it's interesting, but then you have the five of clubs, which a lot of them become really rich because they have the millionaire's card in their life spread. They have the seven of diamonds and Jupiter, which is the millionaire's card. Oh, well, so they yes. come to money very quickly in their mm, life. Yes. Even though they're like social outcasts or, you know, like just on the fringes of society, in some other form, they're happy. You know, they have weird relationships. Like they don't get married, but they have partners that they have, they're with for 30 years, but off and on, and you know, no rules and openness and, you yeah. know, things that traditional people would just say, oh, that's horrible, right? But, you know, that's them. They're fives. That's, we have five fingers on each hand. We have five holes in our face. We're five race. Yeah. We're a five race of people. Yes. The fifth race. Star Trek is like all, all the other cultures yes. in Star Trek go, what's with you humans exploring all the time? You know, what's yeah. with this, you know, it's really true. Because a lot of other species don't understand this climbing the hill just to see what's on the other side. Exactly. Yeah. That's a five thing. Yeah. You know? And we're five. We're a five race. 
That's why the cars would never work on any other planet than the Earth. They're, they're made for planet Earth. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, you know, and so here we've talked a little bit about the seven, a little bit about the five. We talked a little bit about the ten specifically. The nines. The, and the nine. So people need to just get the books because we're only, we only have so much time today. Right, yeah. I want to get into some of the other fun stuff. Someone gave me a playing deck with a little playing card, little tiny ones. They're like an inch. And so I put them in a cute little bowl. And then um, every now and then I'll stir them around with my finger and feel around under there and just pull a card, uh-huh. right? Yeah, yeah. Is that a way we can also use these cards yeah, besides absolutely. drilling down into yeah. ourselves and, and our loved ones? And if you happen to just find the cards on the ground somewhere, like you're walking around, mm-hmm. sometimes you find them just laying around, yeah. there's a message there. That's a yeah. way a message can be given to us. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to know that the book has your whole life laid out for you every every 52 days well, of your that's life. That's upsetting to people because it's like, hey, wait a minute. Wait, hold on. Where's my free will? Well, good. Let them think about that because go back in your past mm-hmm. and test it. Oh, I moved this year. Let me see if it's in the book. So that's where you have to get to understanding free will on a different level. The soul is the one with the greatest free will. The mind that we live in, this little mind, is the most highly conditioned and programmable and so forth. You know, we have a spiritual teacher in Asheville. She's awake. She's 50 years old. She's a beautiful woman with a family. And she's a five of diamonds, which you would never think would get married. And she, her spirituality is, is the way she teaches is like a five of diamonds would, would teach. But she has none of the negative qualities of her cards. Because there's no ego there that's resisting anything. Yes. You know, so it's possible to transcend all this stuff, but you may still act like your card, but you won't be playing out the negatives of that card. Well, and again, this is, we choose to be born in a certain place at a certain time. So where our soul is already stamping onto our lives, these esoteric influences. And we're bringing with us this past life karma, which the cards reveal, like yes. your, your card, your birthday, your, your planetary ruling cards, your other... And your life spread cards, these tell your lifetime karma on the positive and the negative and what you're likely to experience during your life. So. Yes. And the fun thing about the book, The Love Cards, you can you look up your card and then next to it is the table and you look up the person's card that you have some kind of relationship with. And it will tell you these little this numeric what your connections are with. Each it'll other. tell you how intense the connection is how much attraction there is, and how much compatibility there is. And you see these numbers, yeah. and, man, they're right on. They're <laughs> right on. I lo- it's a quick look into whether or not you want to run through the hills or whether you want to ha- transform yourself through yeah, challenge. It's, it's such an amazing, accurate system with relationships. I mean, all of it's accurate, but I, I just crazy. find this to be amazing. I do, too. <laughs> Any final thoughts before we say goodbye? Oh, just that everybody, this was meant for everybody to use. It, it, it can be your lifetime companion. Your life, it's like having a, a consultant that you can consult with and, and refer to every time for every month of your life, really, you know, and all your relationships. It's meant to be there to help us. So yeah. That's what I'm hoping people will take advantage of it. Well, I love it, and I want to thank you so much for dedicating the last three decades of your life to making this available for us, and we will be seeing more of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robert. Thanks, Regina. I love you. To learn more about the Destiny cards and the love cards, you can go to seventhunders.com, Robert's publishing company. If you don't already have these books, you have many, many fascinating hours of self-discovery ahead, believe me. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds.
Okay, I don't have those those books either, but um, I have been in good graces of numbers of people that do, and they're great set of books. And the Theosophical Society also publishes them, but as uh, Regina Meredith said, seventhunders.com can lead you to these books. Um, I was going to find this beautiful song that we've played a number of times. Caroline brought the gentleman who created the song and sings the song. I'll just repeat uh, Caroline's message is multiplicitous, but nothing is as it appears. The light has won. Hold that in your heart above any outer signal which the brain has been trained to not only notice, yet respond to in certain ways. Uh, yes, we want Rainbird. Yes, yes, Commander Don or Doug, either one of you. <laughs> Please, yes, do. I'm <laughs> sorry. I thought we just automatically do, but there you go. Yes, thank you for asking. Um, the light has won. Hold that in your heart. Yes. Hold that reality in your heart and know how real and how beautiful it is. Know that you are being held in the heart of so many with so much thanks for all this beautiful light you anchor into this earth. New life, new beginnings will come to these places affected by the fires, Maui, Lahaina Maui, and affected by all else. Great breakthroughs have been made recently regarding the Sara law. Most of you will live, live to see its enactments, and those who do not will simply live elsewhere. You'll be home, and you can come back to experience that moment of that announcement as you wish. You don't ever have to feel that you will miss anything. That would be impossible now. And so, we send you much love and many blessings, dear ones, honored as always to assist and to support all of you. And, uh, all right, Carol, a rainbird, uh, here we are at this final moment again, and I'm gonna pass this talking stick. Oops, 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 oops. <laughs> oh, I was just announcing your presence. All right, Raybird. <laughs> <That's laughs> <your funny>. <laughs> okay. That's a good it. one, Robert. <laughs> I thought maybe I just knocked you out. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, there you go. That caps it all off. I can't do better than that. So, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the for the whole evening. All, although it was such that it was that last little part was long. So. It was, um, but for the record, you know what I mean. Yeah, I know. We're we're uh, witnesses. We're all witnesses here. So I mean, just got to remember, we've already won. So, and patience is still a virtue, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we we obviously have patience, and we wouldn't still be here. So <laughs> <laughs> that is an, uh, an understatement, Lady Master. 
So let's see what, what, what Rama's got. Here comes that talking stick, and hopefully it comes without a bell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're going to hear the bell again, but that's that's good. Everything in its right place. And uh, we wish all of you just a wonderful uh, rest for the remainder of this night. And... Uh, we will do this again next week. And in the meantime, remember what I have heard and everybody knows is that love is the answer and war is never the answer. And may peace prevail on earth. And good tidings to us all. And I just, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, calling in how together as a community of light that we all are here hanging out together for uh, oh at least a couple of decades here and, and we, when did we start this Raman? Uh, on 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 uh, conference calls in 1999 Jennifer Lee do you ever send her any messages Rama well maybe you can send her a little bit something and um so 1999, 2009, 2019, uh, uh, 2021, 2023. <laughs> and Rama and I met in 92 <laughs> and uh, we all love each other we love you and thank you all of you who have come through this and I'm just making an extra request for those who have it to help uh, BBS Radio and, and, and Rama and Tara to uh, be able to uh, catch up Pay for February, that's on the top of the list. And then also pay for, stay abreast of this month. It's $1,220 this month collectively. Uh, $305 plus $50 as we haven't got February yet paid for. As we get some extra donations, then that $50 a month is going to fade away again. So it'll just be for this month, 305 a week. And uh, I'm calling in all the angels to bring that to fruition. Ram and I will put a, a request for assistance together t- tomorrow. Manana, my farthest night, let's listen to this beautiful man's soul and spirit and his words and his, his beautiful voice and song take us out. Tell us, Rama, what you're going to play there. The angels are listening. All right. Okay, here we go, everyone. Well, sort of. <laughs> I think it's BeKindness.com is the website where you can find this beautiful music and purchase it, share it with others. Until we meet again, everyone, we'll see you in your dreams and on that bridge. And um, 
We are going to awaken that kitten within by any means necessary. Dot nam, Rowan. Dot nam, G. Thirteen thank yous. Honey in the heart. No evil. They said that number seven's right in the middle of those thirteen. Those number, that number thirteen and mother segment's number is thirteen. And number seven is St. Gervais' number. And number one is Archangel Michael. We are all here and there's only one of us. Yes, there is. Namaste. Aloha, everyone.